Let us now go to Kennebunk, Maine, where Peabody, an Emmy Award-winning comedy writer, Jim Earl, is standing by. Hello, Jim. Do you know who this is? Is this Martha Stewart? Indeed it is. I'm uh, here with my love of my life, Jim Earl. Jim Earl. Jim Earl. And the two of you are quarantining in Kennebunk? Yes, we are. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what kind of preparations are you making for, for this? I'm spending my isolation by introducing the Martha Stewart Beyond Meat Breakfast Sausage. Beyond Meat Breakfast Sausage? That's correct. Would you like to hear more about the meat I put into my mouth, David? Of course. My Beyond Meat Breakfast Sausage is made exclusively from plants mm. without soy or gluten. Mm. It's just wonderful. It sounds delicious. But David, in my house, sausage isn't just for breakfast anymore. I love to gnaw on a big sausage in front of my TV or in my car. You can eat my sausage, my Beyond Meat sausage, in a Greyhound restroom. Okay, I don't know why. Sausage is a good thing to put in your mouth. Mmm, so many beautiful sizes, colors, and forms. Tender and delicious, very moist, quite spicy. You will love it. Your sausage. Yes. And we are talking about sausage, a source of protein. Of course, David. During these times, it's important to stock up on supplies of meat. Take good care of your meat. In my kitchen, you'll rub, slap, stroke, and beat your meat before you insert it into my awaiting hot oven. And and we are talking about a plant-based protein. Yes. But all out of meat, don't fret. This could be the perfect time to go to the attic and unpack all those heirloom babies you inherited from your great aunt. Uh, Properly stored, mummified baby meat lasts forever in your pantry and tastes just like jerky. There's nothing like it. Not just I know that. many of your listeners are petrified at the thought of running out of your favorite Cabernet during a quarantine. Yes. Well, fret no more. I'll show you how to make a simply superb toilet wine. It's just wonderful. A wine? Yes. All you need are four McDonald's ketchup packets, an expired quart of orange juice, Mm. a slice of slightly moldy bread, and 12 ounces of your best morning urine. Warm, fresh morning urine acts as a sugar base to interact with the bread yeast. Seal them all together in a one-gallon trash bag and hide it in the top tank of your toilet. Be sure to let out the gas fermentation every few hours, or the guard, I mean your neighbor, will know something's up and beat you mercilessly with her nightstick. Toilet wine, Dave. It's perfect for every occasion. Okay. Goes well with dog, cat, or even that unlucky delivery man who happens to get stuck in your bear trap again for the third time this week, and it's only Monday. So it sounds like you're preparing for a a longer quarantine than most of us uh, expected. And that brings me to my favorite kind of root, the carrot. All it takes is a 12-inch pot of soil and plenty of sunlight to grow a big, thick carrot right before your eager and hungry eyes. Carrots come in all shapes and forms. But the ones that delight me the most are the big, thick black ones with purple veining. I've ever seen it. A- well, David, check out my blog for 
excellent cleaning tips during this time of crisis. I encourage good personal hygiene around the house. For instance, every morning I trim my pussy willows. And then I relax in my tub, bathing my big chow chows. During the winter, I like to keep my chow chows covered. My chow chows. Okay. Come spring, I let them bounce around free in the fresh air and sunlight. David, I would love to let you see my garden and have you prune my hornbeam hedge. Then I'll properly instruct you on how to clean my hayloft. And come winter, cover my zesty shrub with burlap. To sum up, you'll help me trim my pussy willow, bathe my chow chows, prune my holly, clean my dusty hayloft, and cover my shrub. Then you will sex me savagely like a racehorse. Okay. That's all for now, David. Remember, don't get sick. It's a waste of time. I'm Martha Stewart, and I know a good thing or two. Ta-ta for now. Okay, all flight controllers, go to go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Ecom. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. If you've listened to my show long enough, then you already know I'm opposed to philanthropy because I believe charitable foundations set up by mega billionaires are undemocratic. There is little to no transparency on how that money is spent, where it goes, where it comes from, and who benefits. The alternative to philanthropy is demanding that mega billionaires and their corporations pay their fair share of taxes. And our government, the United States government, our sloppy government, gets to decide democratically how those tax dollars are spent. For more on this, we are joined by Tim Schwab, whose cover story for The Nation magazine is entitled St. Bill. It's out this week, and it examines the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where their money goes, and why it goes where it goes. He joins us today from Washington, D.C. Thank you, Tim, for doing this. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a great piece. It's the cover story in The Nation magazine, and it's about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which seems to be problematic for many reasons. You focus specifically on the foundation, the the investments that the foundation makes, where it goes, where the donations go, and why. Let's start off at the beginning. What is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? When was it set up? How much money is in its endowment? And most importantly, in in writing this story, how much transparency were you given? So the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, a lot of people know it to be the biggest philanthropy in the world, which it is by a very large margin. It sits on a $50 billion endowment, at least it did until, you know, the recent economic downturn with COVID-19. Um, but it has a huge endowment, $50 billion. That's more than the, the 
the economies of a lot of the countries where it works in places like Africa. Okay, and explain um, to us what, again, an endowment means what? Because this is part of a big part of your story. What does an endowment mean? So that's the, the pool of money from which Gates gives charitable grants. So that pool of money is largely donations given by Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. And um, in addition to that, this endowment, because it's invested into anything and everything, is making is earning investment income every year. So the idea of a foundation is Bill Gates says, I, I'm going to die with this fortune that may exceed a hundred billion dollars instead of giving it to the government i can spend this better i can give it away more efficiently i'm going to set up the bill and melinda gates foundation with an endowment of a hundred billion dollars he parks a hundred billion dollars into this account that is then invested to generate income and that income is then dispersed to deserving charities and other foundations that's how a foundation works, right? That's how a foundation works. And so Bill Gates personally still has $100 billion, even though he's given $36 billion to the Gates Foundation. He still, of his own personal money, still has $100 billion. I but see. yeah, you're, you're correct in how it works. And that's a cat in the background? Or a child? Sorry, that's that's a child. Uh, can I excuse myself? No, 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 no. That's fantastic. Every, it's, it's, it's music. It's human? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How old is your baby? Uh, 14 months. Ah. Ah. And it's not being left unattended to do my show, right? Uh, no. Oh. no. Just briefly unattended, yeah. Is there not somebody else? Me. Not by me. Yes, my, my spouse. Oh, okay. I was hoping my yeah. ego is so big that you would leave your 14-month-old unattended for, for my show, but uh, okay. So he's got all this money in the endowment, and it's generating income. You would think that he would want to give away all that money, that by the time he passes away, there would be zero money in the endowment. Is that the the goal? Yeah. Bill and Melinda Gates have said that they plan to give away almost all of their wealth in their lifetime. That's not to say that they won't still leave their children a huge amount of money. You know, I mean, relatively huge relative to maybe what you and I have, maybe a billion dollars each. But, yeah, the, the vast majority of their personal wealth they plan to give away. To the foundation. Um, the Gates have so many different pools of money going. Um, you know, I have tried to talk to Bill Gates personally. I tried to interview him several times, um, and I am always declined. But it seems as though Bill Gates may be giving money uh beyond just what he gives to the, the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But, yeah, that's their primary philanthropic vehicle. So the takeaway from your piece in The Nation is Gates is making more and more money from his charitable donations through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The foundation is making more money, and the foundation is making tax-deductible donations to corporations that the philanthropy the foundation has invested in and that Bill Gates personally has invested in and that Warren Buffett has personally invested in. I mean, I don't I, 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 this is not what you say, but it's almost implied as though the foundation is laundering money 
to give back to Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett, to their the corporations whose stock they own. I mean, there is a definite separation between the Gates Foundation, which is a $50 billion endowment. Then you have Bill and Melinda Gates private wealth, which is $100 billion. And then Warren Buffett, I don't know how many billions he has, let's say $80 billion. Right. But, you know, what I'm really exploring or excavating in this in the nation is how the Gates Foundation overlaps with private companies. And in doing so, it's created a real welter of conflicts of interest, because when the Gates Foundation gives a charitable a tax deductible charitable donation to a company, in many cases, the foundation's endowment has an investment in that company. Now, Bill Gates' personal wealth, that $100 billion that he and Melinda have, we don't know uh, where all that's invested because that's his private wealth. Um, you know, I think it absolutely bears scrutiny. Is there a way that Bill Gates um, could be um, invested in these companies to which he's given a charitable donation? I mean, we don't know because he's not going to disclose this, and I've asked him to. Right. So over at The Nation in your piece, St. Bill, you explain that the Gates Foundation, in order to produce income, takes the endowment and invest in companies such as Merck, the drug manufacturer. So right. they invest in Merck to grow the endowment. And at the same time, you're saying you've uncovered that the Gates Foundation owns stock in Merck and at the same time is giving tax deductible donations to Merck. Exactly. And that is legal is that legal yeah i mean the way so you know congress and the irs they do have rules against what they call self-dealing which is you know in more layman's term would be a financial conflict of interest i think everybody understands what what's implied there with self-dealing but these those rules really only imply to the most extreme cases where you know you and I sit on a, the board of a philanthropy and we're giving money to companies that you and I are, you know, 90 percent owners of that we own a very large percentage of. Um, so it's really only the most kind of egregious and extreme cases of financial conflicts where it becomes, it, as I understand it, it becomes a problem for in terms of government oversight. Right, right. And there is no oversight, really. You can't get Bill Gates on the phone. He doesn't have to show us his tax returns. Is that fair to say? The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, how transparent are their tax returns? So the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, like all foundations, has to file an annual IRS um, submission that includes information like how much uh, money they have and where their money is going. So in those um, those IRS filings, you can find every charitable grant that they made over the course of the year. Um, and that sort of became a basis for the, the investigation I did is looking at that. So it gives you some level of transparency, but it doesn't it doesn't give you that much detail uh, about what the where the money is really going and how it's really being used. For example, they'll tell you, um, you know, you could see uh, hundreds of millions of dollars going to your alma mater, to Columbia University, um, but you can't see the professor that's receiving it or the exact department that's receiving it. All you'll see 
it, this money is going to Columbia University. I see. Um, you'll get a brief description of how the money was used, maybe, but um, it's not often not enough to really go on. Right. Um, you know, another wrinkle I discovered is that the Gates Foundation will award a grant, but within that money that they give, there's also a subgrant that can get granted out where you don't see where that money's going, and in some cases, it's going to private companies. To private companies, right? And one of the things that I'm slowly beginning to understand about money is that it's power, and power is more important than money once you have enough. So. If you have a billion dollars, sure, you want $20 billion, but what you really want is power because that allows you to change the world and, and make it in your own image. So let's look at the Gates Foundation's endowment because in your piece in The Nation, you have a graph. You say in the past five years, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation endowment has generated $28.5 billion in investment income. So that would be dividends that it's earned off its stock, correct? Right. When you say investment income, does that include the, the, the absolute value of the foundation going up? Because you say it has $28.5 billion in investment income in the past five years. Does that mean it's generated cash or it's gone up in value? Yeah, it's gone up in value. That's the fair market value. As I understand it, that's a snapshot of the fair market value of what the stock's at. So maybe it's not dividend, but that's where the, the stock price is. And that's what the fair market value. I see. Yeah. Okay. So over the past five years, you write that the Gates Foundation's endowment has increased by $28.5 billion, but it's only given away $23.5 billion during that five-year period. So the endowment has grown, I can't do the math here, by about- Five billion. Five yeah. billion. So that's power. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it raises questions about the long-term influence that a private, a billionaire philanthropy can have. Um, the last time Congress substantively looked at this issue was 50 years ago in 1969. And, you know, one of the rules that they have for private foundations is they pay out 5% of their endowment every year. The idea is you don't want these rich uh, philanthropists to have uh, to consolidate political power ad infinitum, that there should be a, a sunsetting of these foundations. And by compelling them to give away 5% of their endowment a year, you know, over a course of a few decades, that endowment should disappear. But, you know, when the stock market's going crazy, like it has been the last decade, um, the Gates Foundation's endowment is not decreasing, it's actually increasing. And it's they're making more money than they're giving away. They're making more money than they're giving away, partly because, as you point out in, in the nation, partly because they're giving money away to companies that the endowment is invested in. So it's yeah, hard I mean, to I sunset a foundation when the charity is giving tax-deductible donations to corporations that you're invested in. Yeah, I mean, I... I it's hard to draw a, a strict A to B line that they gave this money to Merck and then Merck's stock went up in that way. But as a general idea, yes. Okay. And we're not going to talk, and you really didn't talk too much about Africa and his work fighting off malaria 
and uh, but but what the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has uh, an impact on the United States, and you start off by talking about Davis Guggenheim, who directed the train wreck entitled "Waiting for Superman," which sings the praises of charter schools. Talk to me, if you can, about the influence that Bill Gates has on charter schools in the United States and uh, somebody like Davis Guggenheim, uh, the director who made Waiting for Superman, which is a, uh, well, it's a, it sings the praises of charter schools. Yes, I think it's unquestionable that charter schools, um, which many of your listeners probably know, but just to drive home the point, these are privately managed or privately administered public schools, um, that promoting charter schools has really been a signature effort of the Gates Foundation. Um, and this film by Davis Guggenheim, it's, it sings the praises of charter schools, and the Gates Foundation ended up putting in $2 million dollars to promote, to help promote the film. A few years later, Davis Guggenheim is making a documentary about Bill Gates. Um, I'd say a pretty uncritical documentary about Bill Gates. Um, for Netflix. It doesn't tell it. Yeah, for Netflix. Yeah, a three-part hagiography right. that, you know, just uncritically praises somebody who, you know, as documentarians who I consider to be journalists, your job is to challenge structures of power, not to exalt them. Say that again, um, please. Say that again. Explain to us the role of a documentarian and a journalist, please, because this is important. What is the role of a documentarian and a journalist? It's really to challenge structures of power. Um, and the last thing you want to be doing is exalting or supporting structures of power, which is what this film does. The Gates Foundation is a $50 billion institution. It is unambiguously a structure of power. It wields that power in support of agenda items in the United States, like charter schools. Um, it has a global health agenda that's not without controversy abroad. Uh, it needs to be treated by journalists and documentarians uh, as such, as a structure of power. Um, but frankly, most of the journalism and now the documentary filmmaking surrounding the Gates Foundation has been overwhelmingly uh, uncritical, even favorable. Um, so I so, you, like have, so you have Davis Guggenheim, who gets money from B Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, makes Waiting for Superman, singing the praises of charter schools, because that's what he was paid to do by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And then a couple of years later, he does this profile for Netflix on Bill Gates singing his praises. You write that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is buying influence. They're making tax-deductible donations to, to the media. Yeah. I mean, the, the financial conflict of interest, David, it's not it's never going to be that clear, but it, it's almost that clear. So the Gates Foundation gave two million dollars to participant media, not directly to Gates, uh, to Davis Guggenheim. I think that money came after the film was completed. Um, so it's not as, as clean of a A to B financial conflict of interest, but the, the conflict nevertheless remains. Right. Right. And you have a new piece coming out in the uh, Columbia Journalism Review, 
about how the media can be bought by charitable foundations. Yeah, I wouldn't quite frame it as that the media can be bought, but it's in the nation I examine how the $250 million that the Gates Foundation has given to news media to support journalism. I kind of mentioned that in passing. In, in my new piece coming out in Columbia Journalism Review, we'll really examine that pile of money, that $250 million, which is not an insignificant amount of money, which is going to many of the the news sites that you and I read probably everywhere from you know Al Jazeera to ProPublica. Um, and you know at the same time that the Gates Foundation is giving a lot of money to very important top-tier news organizations, a lot of news organizations aren't doing critical investigative reporting on the Gates Foundation. Right. Um, yeah. Right. When, when you have Bill Gates pushing charter schools and you're giving money to the media, if you're Bill Gates and you're giving money to the media, they're not going to investigate charter schools and how Microsoft benefits from charter schools. Talk to me about how Bill Gates influences our public schools in a way that benefits Microsoft. I quote Diana Ravitch in my article, um, who's a, a really a leading critic of the Gates Foundation, who said a lot of uh, done a lot of great research and said a lot of smart things over the years. Um, you know, her view is that you know we think of Microsoft as a software company, but it's really a diversified corporation that now is looking at agriculture, healthcare, finance, education. You know, the thread here is all technology. So with education, it's educational technology. It's getting more technology into the classrooms. So a really interesting point that she makes <clears throat> in the article I wrote for The Nation is that um, when the Gates Foundation supports educational technology, in a way that's kind of seeding the market for Microsoft, which is peddling some of these education technologies, even if it's just in a general sense, but she pulls back from that and said that's not her criticism. Her criticism is really that Gates has a, a more fundamental interest in free markets and private enterprise. Right, right. He believes in big business, and you write over at the nation, and I was shocked that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation gives to ALEC, the Chamber of Commerce, the American Enterprise Institute. I mean, the American Enterprise Institute is... You know, you think of the Koch brothers behind yeah, that, that's exactly not Bill right. Gates. Exactly, right. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, in the halo, you know, of favorable or certainly uncritical media coverage of the Gates Foundation, I think we've kind of lost track of who Bill Gates is. And who he is is the second richest human on Earth. He is, first and foremost, a billionaire, and we need to look at him that way. He's also uh, the former head of one of the most controversial technology companies or just companies, period, in the world, Microsoft. You know, this this uh, tech villain archetype we now see um, with Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, that was Bill Gates, you know, just a decade, a little more than a decade ago. Yeah, the Justice Department at one time was trying to break up Microsoft. He was right. a predatory capitalist. He would buy anybody who was competing with him. And if he couldn't buy them, he would 
put you out of business, and the Justice Department stepped in, and they were going to break up at one point Microsoft. Instead, they had to pay some fines. He was, at one time, the anti-hero to Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was looked upon as innovative and the good guy, and Bill Gates was the bad guy. This was about 15 to 20 years ago. But he set up the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and has refashioned his image. Yeah. And and to take us back to that comparison with the Koch brothers, you know, there's a lot of similarities between Bill Gates and the Koch brothers. And you enumerated the sort of the overlap that you're talking about in terms of ALEC, in terms of the American Enterprise Institute, the Chamber of Commerce. And, you know, I think the, the news media and, you know, has an easier time taking a hard look at the Koch brothers, but taking a hard look at the Gates Foundation is really hard. It must be really hard because nobody's doing it. Right, right. He's acting unilaterally. It's undemocratic. And one of the things that I'm discovering is that more and more billionaires don't believe in democracy. They just don't believe in it. They don't trust it. And they think they can solve problems the same way they solve problems in their business unilaterally and so he gets to decide the trajectory of agricultural policy in africa bill gates he decides he's picking the winners and losers when it comes to what kind of seeds are planted what kind of drugs are dispensed that's a lot of power given to to one foundation isn't it yeah, I mean, he doesn't have absolute power, but he certainly has outsized power and outsized influence, which, you know, is not earned through some electoral politics or any kind of democratic process. And it's not checked or balanced through any kind of government oversight. There are no checks and balances. And a $100 million donation to a country in Africa can build up an industry and destroy another industry. He gets to decide what kind of water purification is used. Bill Gates shows up with a suitcase full of cash. Everybody turns their attention to Bill Gates. And and we move away from other solutions, other alternatives that might be more democratically formulated, that might be more appropriate, that aren't going to have a funder, um, that the government doesn't have funding for, that doesn't have a billionaire uh, patron behind. Right. Now, does he pay taxes? Because I always say this is not his money to give away. This is our money. This is all part of his tax dodge. He's still hasn't repatriated a lot of the profits from Microsoft. There's a lot of Microsoft profits sitting overseas that he hasn't repatriated. Does Microsoft, do we know how much taxes Microsoft pays? There was a recent, wasn't it with the recent, I'm not the expert on this, but with the recent uh, Trump tax bill, didn't they create a, almost like a giveaway for corporations to repatriate a bunch of money? Uh, What I can say is, historically, it's definitely been the case that Microsoft has been a renowned practitioner of tax avoidance strategies. Um, I think the Senate even did an investigation into uh, Microsoft as a case study of offshoring um, income. Um, Bill Gates himself, you know, he, you know, when he's questions about things like the wealth tax, will say he's paid more taxes than anyone else. Right. 
you know, right. he'll throw out numbers like $10 billion. But when you ask him to see any kind of documentation about that, um, let's see your tax forms to substantiate that, you won't get that information. Um, and he, you write, has branded himself as somebody who favors the estate tax. His father and Warren Buffett, they all go on television talking about how important the estate tax is. But that's a branding exercise, you pretty much say. Well, the reality is that the estate tax won't apply to him if he follows through with his promise to give all of his money away. What the estate tax does is when you die, whatever's left of your estate is subject to a pretty stiff tax. You know, for somebody like Bill Gates, almost all of it would be taxed at 40 percent. This is a very theoretical sense. This is if Bill Gates didn't have an army of tax attorneys to sort of help him negotiate that. But the other thing you can do with your money is just give it away through philanthropy and then you avoid that 40 percent tax. Right. The best way to read Bill Gates's charity paradox that the piece you wrote, St. Bill, for the nation is to understand something that has taken me almost a lifetime to understand. If you're struggling financially, you think the answer to everything is money. And that when you look at somebody like Bill Gates, you think he just wants money and he wants more money and he wants more money and they all want more money. And what I have begun to understand is what Henry Kissinger once said, and that is power is the ultimate aphrodisiac, that power is more intoxicating than money. We only think about money if you're part of the 99 percent. We don't understand the game that Bill Gates is playing, that Warren Buffett is playing, that Michael Bloomberg is playing. They have more money than they can possibly spend. Now they want power. That's how you have to read this article. You have to understand that these guys are accruing power, anti-democratic power that's being taken away from us. It's not so much about money. It's about power, power that we've abdicated. We've given up to these guys. Yeah. And, you know, by undemocratic, you know, he's never been elected to an office. Mm -hmm. He's he doesn't work for government. Yet you'll see him regularly in the media recently as a public, almost like a public health authority on COVID-19, on the coronavirus. Right. Um, He has a platform, um, an incredibly powerful platform that he uses to influence public policy on any number of issues. And that is Yeah, through philanthropy that he's gotten there. We have to make a serious decision. Do we believe in democracy? I think we have so much distrust of each other and of the mob and of our fellow citizens that deep down inside, we don't trust each other to decide what's best for us. And that's part of what the Chamber of Commerce that uh, Bill Gates gives to Alec the American Enterprise Institute, all these think tanks are designed to make us distrust one another so we don't really care about democracy and we abdicate all our power to the uh, sociopaths who crave it. Before you go, you went through 19,000 charitable grants that the Gates Foundation has made over the last two decades. 
in order to go through 19,000 charitable grants, doesn't that take two decades to do that? How do you go through 19,000 charitable grants? Yeah, well, I think there's still a lot of ground to cover, and I'm hoping that my piece inspires other journalists to do their own look at this huge body of data. But it's sitting right there for anyone to look at. Um, Where? This is all, it's in their IRS filings, their annual filings. Um, You can get the information about every individual grant that they gave. Um, you know, this is a foundation that has grown in influence and power that has grown. It's 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 assets. It's endowment has grown. It's really long overdue that we do this kind of, you know, substantive investigative work. I mean, you know, I really do feel like my piece is scratching the surface. And um, I do hope that other journalists um you know, take a close look. Yeah, we have Alex Koch from Sludge on all the time, and he's taught me how to go to Charity Navigator where you can just download tax returns. You know, none of us know how to do our taxes. We we try to do it, but you can read a tax return. It's pretty simple to see the salaries. I mean, I started doing this, and I downloaded NPR's tax return i found out that scott simon gets half a million dollars a year i mean they're paying their on-air personalities half a million dollars a year just to read the news they have executives making close to like eight hundred thousand dollars at npr and then they ask for money do we know what kind of salaries they're paying at the bill gates foundation yeah, I mean, it's really substantial for like, I think the top brass you're probably looking at. I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I would guess it'd be over a million dollars. I mean, generally speaking, their administrative costs for running the Gates Foundation are, are, are pretty dear. Like you're talking maybe a billion dollars a year spent on administrative costs for like salary and travel and their building costs and all of that. Um, you know, every nonprofit or every foundation is going to have that overhead. But, you know, when we talk about how much money Gates gives away, a lot of people just look at the big number of how much money they spent. But not all the money that they spend, they give away. You know, maybe 20 percent of the money that they spend is just going to pay their staff and so on. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're good people like Harvard. I don't know if you saw this story. Harvard has a 40 billion dollar endowment. And they've laid off their dining hall workers due to the coronavirus. No money, no salary. You're on your own. And Harvard has a $40 billion endowment. Where was that published? That's crazy. That's uh, it's the Harvard Crimson. It's in the Harvard Mm. Crimson. Thank you for doing this. Uh, How are you holding up during the quarantine? So far, so good. My family is healthy. There is this sort of sense of impending. You know, you don't know. When it's coming, if it's coming, um, you know, my there's some like recent news that the the cases are on an uptick in D.C. And my wife yesterday said that, you know, in a sense that she kind of has a sense of relief from that, that finally it's like coming so we can just finally deal with it instead of worrying about what may be coming. Yeah, I I was saying I was saying that the the most relaxed people are Tom Hanks and his wife because they have it. So they, it's it's the not knowing that's driving everybody yeah, insane. Right. Yeah, which must be driving you insane in New York. I mean, I'm in the in the epicenter, and uh, uh, you know, uh, I yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, I I'm 
optimistic about everything. I, I always, I, everything has to be a gift. You know, even if you're, yeah. even if you're, you know, even if it's, you have to find the pony, you know, that story that anyway, there, you know, in all this horse shit, there's got to be a pony somewhere. There has to be something positive. And I'm hoping that, uh, you know, we flatten the curve and people learn what's really important. I, I've been saying yeah. that my mantra has been for the past two weeks, nobody changes, but nothing stays the same. Nobody changes, but nothing stays the same. I've been yeah. saying that over and over again. You're not going to get Mitch McConnell to change, but nothing stays the same. Yeah. And I'm hoping that enough people are able to evolve and still be who they are, but alter their behavior because nothing stays the same. And one of the things we need to do is turn off the television and read the nation magazine. You know, stop. <laughs> I, I'm being serious. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, the television <laughs> is not your friend. MSNBC is not your friend. They're pushing pharmaceuticals. That is a, that is a dispensary for pharmaceuticals. Rachel Maddow is just a dispensary for pharmaceuticals. That's all she's doing. She's selling you pharmaceuticals. She's getting you nervous. She's giving you an upset stomach. She's giving you erectile dysfunction. She's making you eat bad food so your cholesterol goes up. She's giving you restless leg syndrome. And when she cuts away to a commercial, there's a drug you can take for all the ills that Rachel Maddow and MSNBC cause. They are not your friends, MSNBC. The Nation magazine is your friend. Read, turn off the TV. There's very little news that you need to know about the coronavirus other than stay the F home. That's all you need to know. And then pay attention to C-SPAN and, and find out what your government is doing and act accordingly. But if you're watching the news, you know, the television news, you're, you're, you're making yourself sick. How do you consume news? Not to the TV. Yeah, yeah it's going to be. Yeah. But what do you what do you go to? Where do you get your information from? You know, lots of the New York Times. Right. Right. Timothy Schwab. Follow him on Twitter at Timothy W. Schwab. That's S-C-H-W-A-B. And I'll link to your amazing piece over at The Nation. How long did it take you to write this piece? I mean, I spent most of last year um, working on this piece and a few other pieces that will be coming out, like the, the one I mentioned in Columbia Journalism Review. But, yeah, this is not it's not cheap journalism. It's not easy journalism. And it's not common to find the resources to do this kind of work. Um, so, yeah, I got lucky to get a fellowship to support the work and stay tuned because there's more coming. Yeah. Great work. Thank you so much. Can you stay on the line, Mr. Sure. Thank you so much. Let's go to Tucson, Arizona, where Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is standing by. She is the author of two books, Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship 
and mating tell us about human relationships and raised by animals, the surprising new science of animal family dynamics with tried home lessons from the wild. Subscribe to Wild Connection TV where you can watch Dr. Jennifer Vertolin and we'll give out more information on how you can sign up for her newsletter. She is an animal behaviorist who teaches at the University of Arizona. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm, you know, physically fine and physically distancing um, appropriately and, uh, you know, doing my best uh, to I, I only went out once to a grocery store. I won't be doing that again, but I, I did do that a couple days ago. Um, and so, you know, otherwise, why won't uh, you when be I go, go for walks? Why won't you be going to the grocery store? Well, you know, I went early, so it wasn't crowded, and I had tried for the pickup service, but that was all booked up, and they weren't going out more than four days. So I thought, well, okay, you know, I'm going to just do one more go to get fresh vegetables, uh, of which there are plenty. Like, nobody's buying produce. It's quite fascinating. Why? Um, Why aren't they? They're afraid of catching the virus through fresh produce? I don't, I don't know. I, I, you, you really, you mean really, if you just wash your produce with soap and water, which you should do anyway, um, it's not a problem. And we do know that it stays on packaging. So I'm, I'm wondering if it's, uh, maybe uh, anxiety is leading to, you know, poor diet choices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure. Or, or because it's non-perishable, you know, the beans, rice, pasta, uh, but but in terms of nutrition, right, we would want to get all of our vitamins and minerals. So I went to get fresh produce and, and see if I could score some eggs, which I failed to do. But um, it was mostly OK. I heard a few coughs, um, but they sounded like wet coughs. So I was like, OK. And I, I had a, a just a regular mask on and I brought my own bags. I didn't use a cart and I was zipping through and, uh, you know, going down empty aisles and things like that. But it was at the checkout, the self checkout where I ran into trouble. Um, because I guess people are still hoarding, um, toilet paper and, and paper towels and, you know, things like that, that they are checking to make sure that you aren't, aren't buying more than one of certain things. And, uh, but I didn't know that that person was going to come right up to my face within a foot of my face. And, uh, I probably would have been much more upset had I not had a, a mask on, but I immediately stepped back and she said, I just need to check, uh, you know, and I said, that's fine, but I, I really prefer if people don't stand that close to me. And, uh, she, you know, checked and walked away and I proceeded to do my checkout and then I overheard her saying to a coworker, I don't know what her problem is. I mean, she has a mask on, but no gloves. And I, I turned and I just said, I don't have gloves on because I wash my hands and I have a mask on because it lingers in the air for up to three hours. And I really just was really pretty reasonable and nice about saying how I didn't, I preferred people didn't stand that close to me because that's the, guidelines that we're being given and she got very upset i'm risking my myself every day and i i said i know which is why i wanted to remind you <laughs> to please not stand that close to me it's to protect both of us and and so it was just so um 
you know, uh, stressful to have that kind of interaction uh, when I'm very grateful for supermarkets and the workers and, and really they should be protected. And we're seeing some grocery stores doing a really good job of controlling the number of people coming in and out and the spacing of, of people. Some are erecting uh, plexiglass barriers mm-hmm. between the cashiers and the and the customers. But others, you know, here they are. They might be um, like I know our local Trader Joe's is 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 controlling how many people go in, but they're not controlling the spacing of people outside in the line right. waiting to come right. in. <laughs> and right. and so so that really just defeats the the whole concept. And and if people are given lines where you you can't cross, it's a psychological thing that helps. Uh, and in fact, if they put little eyes on the line, that would be even better because research shows that if we feel like we're being watched, <laughs> even if it's a, just a, a picture of eyes, mm-hmm. <laughs> we change our behavior. We kind of follow the rules. And right. so if they were able to just, you know, put strips with little eyes on them, uh, you know, six feet apart, you you would probably still have a handful of people who who just would, you know, be obnoxious because we just have that much variation in human population of personalities. But the vast majority would just conform to the spacing, um, and we see that at pharmacy. You know, uh, norm under normal circumstances, we see that at pharmacy lines. You know, they have a line, and please don't cross or bank. You know, don't cross this line until or the airport, you know, when you're going to go to a, a, the counter, there's a line and and rarely do people really violate that. So I think that that's the missing piece in a lot of places that are otherwise trying to do a good job. And I just assumed that maybe she was stressed and anxious about the fact that she had to go to work every day. Um, and Gee, that's think, what led you it. think. Yeah, I mean, and I think yeah. that that's what led to her kind of cranky response. Uh, that was really an effort on my part to just be protective of both of us. Um, and so I think that stress and anxiety, uncertainty and anger about being put in risky situations is fueling, you know, some of those types of less than pleasant interactions. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Be nice, just yeah. be nice in general. I, I yeah. you know, I'm grasping for good news. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I, and I, a couple of people wrote in and said, I, early on, earlier in the month, I was diminishing the the severity of the coronavirus and trying to be a Pollyanna. And some people accuse me of sounding like a, a Fox News apparatchik. Who was, you know, but I I don't think I am getting defensive. I don't think I downplayed the severity of the virus. I might have played devil's advocate, uh, but uh, I, you know, I'm looking for good news. I, I, you know, this is not CNN. This is not the BBC or the CDC. Mm -hmm. I want to keep people informed, but. I don't want them. Well, you know, there's a there's an epidemic now of suicide. Massachusetts reports that the the suicide hotline is receiving record numbers of calls because 
people are self-isolating. We're social animals. Mm-hmm. When you're all by yourself and you have the TV going, I had right. a panic. I had a panic attack on Monday. Mm-hmm. I was getting Tuesday's show ready. I rarely have panic panic attacks. Maybe once or twice a day. You know, it's very <laughs> very infrequent. Uh, right. But I began to. You know, I'm in the epicenter. I live in Manhattan mm-hmm. on Manhattan and the the last thing you want to do is get sick because right. you know especially if, uh, a non-coronavirus related yes thing so yes. you know you don't want to twist an ankle you don't want to bleed right. out because you did something stupid and so anyway i got a little uh little panicky and rightfully so but Mm -hmm. i you know i have to believe that there's good news out there for example for example just Mm -hmm. there's a ventilator shortage in new york city but uh, yesterday governor andrew cuomo said they're figuring out how to share ventilators now Mm -hmm. i'm not saying i'm not saying see it's not but i'm just i'm I'm observing i'm observing that we're industrious, we can evolve, and we can learn things. Right. And they're saying, you know, if two coronavirus patients have similar pulmonary obstruction, we can hook up the same ventilator to them, and we can jerry-rig right. gowns and masks. I'm not saying that, you know, again, I want to be careful here. I, I, I am an eternal optimist. I, I'm not, sure. not going to die. You know, I, I'm just not. I don't believe in death and I don't believe. I, so I just don't accept it. So I'm not trying to discount the severity sure. of this. And everybody needs to stay indoors. Everybody yep. needs to stay away from other people. People don't change, but nothing stays the same. That's been my mantra. Watching right. what little TV I've been able to watch because I I just I start watching. You don't get information watching the TV, but the mantra that I keep right. repeating to my friends and loved ones, and I'm saying this on the show, is people don't change, but nothing stays the same, and that's where evolution comes in. Some of us will evolve and change for the better, and some of us won't. Again, I'm a Pollyanna. What are you doing uh, because of the pandemic? What have you, how have you altered your lifestyle? And there'll be some permanence to it once this right. thing is over. What, what have you done personally that you've noticed where you've said, oh, okay, this is, I'm now going to do this uh, right. forever? <clears throat> well, I, at first, though, I, I, so I want to just, circle back to something you said about being positive. So I do want to, you know, what you were saying about the ventilators, what we are seeing, and, and this is, you know, I, I'm going to pull to other animals as well. So there's, there's a study that just showed that uh, different species of bats, when they're hunting um, in farmland versus forest, they actually cooperate. They form team, they do teamwork, right? They, they work together to um, help each other. And I think that, um, what we're seeing remember is... The, remember the video of the badger and the dog? Yes. The badger and the coyote. The coyote, right. right? 
Yeah. So, so again, other species form partnerships, uh, both individuals within the species, uh, under certain conditions, they'll team up and, and cooperate. And so I think that not just the, the ventilators, but we have, um, uh, you know, people using 3D printers. We have, um, sewing people who are skilled at sewing. Uh, they're running, there's some shortages now on elastic bands, um, you know, to help make masks. So they're sewing masks, uh, to, to ship uh, all over. We've gotten shipments from, from other countries, from China, um, you know, uh, with masks. We've got, uh, you know, I think because maybe we haven't seen the kind of leadership that we want individuals. And this is something we talked about. You know, we won't get the leadership until we go from the ground up, mm-hmm. uh, from the bottom up here. And what we're seeing is in many places, people are trying to do that. You know, I've, so what have I, so then, you know, that's the positive piece that, that we have the capacity under certain conditions to, to form teams and cooperate and just work together to, uh, you know, get through this and try to mitigate the amount of damage uh, that is happening to the lives of people. And we have a long way to go in doing that, but there are examples of that. And so I also hold on to that. Um, for me, you know, my biggest frustration, so I want to also address what you said about people don't change, but nothing stays the same. You know, I've absolutely changed my behavior when I go outside for a walk across the street if I see somebody coming. I've noticed that I'm getting pretty angry when all of a sudden there's somebody up behind me. Right. You know, and 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 it is infuriating to experience people not making changes. That won't be hopefully one of the changes that has to stay permanent, you know, that I will again at some point feel comfortable passing somebody on a bike path. You know, for now, I take the road less traveled and try to uh, avoid people. And it's mostly me having to cross streets, zigzag through areas to avoid people because no one around me in terms of strangers is is, when they're out for walks, somehow they think that because they're outside, it doesn't count, Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) but it does. And so, but more importantly, on a day to day basis, how have I altered my behavior and, and what do I think will stay the same? I mean, some things haven't really changed. Uh, you know, I've, I've always spent a considerable amount of time on my own. I What has changed is I have not and I'm no longer meeting up with a friend or two or three friends to go on hikes, even in washes that might be 30 feet wide. Right. Uh, where we could theoretically stay, you know, six feet apart. Uh, so that I'm not doing at the moment. Uh, so, so that's the biggest change. Not, not meeting with a friend for breakfast or lunch or going for a hike. Basically every weekend I was out hiking with one or more friends on both days and sometimes on a weekday, you know, for two to three hours followed by, you know, a meal and, and a hug goodbye. Um, so, so that has not happened. And other than that, um, I have found that because I'm at home all the time, so I'm, I'm always at home, uh, other than that one excursion to the store 
and then daily walks if if I can find areas where there's no people. So it's not the most attractive place to walk, but I don't care. It's fine. It's outside. It's a walk. And I have little animals that I'm checking on. So I've become much more observant of 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 uh, I'm tracking two little tarantula nests and a, a, a little hummingbird nest. And I mm. say hello to my great horned owl every day. Mm. So me talking to animals isn't really new, I'm, but I'm doing it a lot more. Right, right. <laughs> and um, I'm finding a lot of joy in that. So now I'm thinking, huh, I kind of want to go to areas long term where there are few people because the animals are easier to observe and and I'm seeing the same individuals and I can kind of tell their stories. So that's something that I'd like to keep. And um, I've been much more structured. So for me to find a way to cope uh, and not rigidly so, but creating a bit of a structure. Okay, I get mm-hmm. up at the same time every day. Uh, even though I have nowhere to go. Uh, right, and I, right. you know, I keep a routine that I find somewhat comforting. Do you make your so bed? Do you make your bed? I do. And my bed is made within 10 minutes of getting up. And then I grab a cup of coffee and, and me and Senor Buttons relax on the made bed, uh, with our coffee, with my coffee. <laughs> He's not. Now, one of the, coffee. there are people who believe, <laughs> there are people who believe that the secret to life is making your own bed. Well, yeah, I think I don't know if that's true, but people I do who think come that from a military people who come from a military background uh-huh. will tell you the answer. I'm being serious and I do understand right. it. You start your day, make your bed and right. everything falls into place afterwards. And, you know, I kind of understand that. I wish I, you know, right. Could do well, that. But I, I have a, I have a theory about that. Um, that's, you know, that we could say, you know, uh, there's an analogy there, uh, with animals. So it's about being organized and, and, you know, the military is very structured, very organized and, and, you know, kind of keeping your space uncluttered. We know from, from humans that, you know, uh, cluttered spaces, uh, uh, disorganized spaces, are reflection of internal psychological processes and and mm-hmm. back and forth, right? So you can you actually experience more stress in your space when it is not structured and organized. And so there might be something about the bed being made psychologically soothing that makes you feel set up for success. And you know that's why you know I'm cleaning much more regularly right. and and organizing now i'm not donating things because i imagine but i'm sort of setting them aside somewhere uh because i imagine that it might be some time before goodwill and other places might want to take things from people's homes you know they don't know if you've been sick or not sick. right right uh, right and so but i'm uh, you know doing the trash i am you know uh making my bed i'm sweeping vacuuming today is mopping the floors uh and all of that is making me feel like, you know, my my, my mind is calmer. So right. I, I do think, and I mean, even something as small as a rattlesnake, you know, they actually go through their little territory and sweep away debris and keep it clear. <laughs> um, you know, they, they keep things clear so they can function at their best. And, and so they essentially think that, 
less mess makes it easier for the rattlesnake to be able to find and unhunt for food. And they don't wait for mounds and piles. They, they basically go through pretty regularly tidying up. Right. And so that's kind of what I'm doing more of. And I'm realizing that that makes me feel good. And not that I, my house was in disarray, but you know, you get busy with life and friends and work right. and all of these things. And next thing you know, you're like, Oh my God, I have to clean so badly. Well, you know, uh, what, you what, what you're describing is something that this country sorely needed, which is stop. We just yeah. need to stop. I, again, I'm not saying the pandemic, the, I'm not trivializing the pandemic. But there is some virtue to being forced to stop. For example, mm-hmm. you mentioned, I think, dolphins are returning somewhere because the world. Yeah. So it turns out that wasn't true. Uh, oh. Yeah, I, I, I got fooled. Um, but the water in, in Venice canals is clear. Right. That is true. Right. Um, yeah. Pollution is receding. In water Wuhan is and clear. Beijing, we're seeing we're seeing the damage that we do to 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 the planet and mm-hmm. it suggests that the the pandemic is probably uh, a holistic way for the planet to repair itself that unless humans take care of the planet the planet will take care of humans that seems to All be right. what the the pandemic should be teaching us there there's a, a opportunity here for all of us to just stop and say what's really important here what do i mm-hmm. what do i really need what do i really really need in terms yeah. of money you watch if if you're lucky enough to have any money in a 401k you see that go down and you you can then look around and say what what do i need versus what do i want and then uh, right. Perhaps look around and say, "Oh, you know, I'm a lot luckier than the homeless." Yeah, and and so you know, you begin to count your blessings. This is what the gift of the Great Depression was to the Greatest Generation. My parents lived through the Great Depression. One of the things that they took with them from the Great Depression was gratitude and and, and mm-hmm. perspective and an understanding of what's really important. Some of them did. Some of them right. did. The thing that I'm learning is how precious food is. Mm-hmm. I'm learning that without my water and my mm-hmm. food deliveries, uh, I've never, I hope I will never take uh, uh, food for granted again, right. which we do in the United States. Yeah, you know, it's it's really fascinating that you're saying that because I I feel like um, and I'm working on a few videos. I feel like some people are frightened. Some people are, you know, calm, but prepared. Some people are happier than I've I have spoken to people. They've never been happier. Right. Well, but then there's people who are angry and frustrated. And I think it's because my, my hypothesis is. They don't, they've never experienced that you can't get what you want when you want as soon as you want it. Right. And, and, and the idea that, um, you couldn't just go to the store and get the particular thing that you want, uh, never, never happened. Now, some people like myself are pretty used to not getting what you want when you want it because either, right. you know, financially limited or, you know, just not really motivated in that way. Like, 
the only thing that I have decided that is a super big priority for me to give me some clinging of joy and, and feeling of, of abundance, if you will, in a time where I don't care so much about what I eat. I, as long as I can eat and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I didn't stock up on any kind of snacks, really. I, I, I cause that wasn't the priority. I was like, what is the most nutritious thing for me to have available? And, but my one, I had to distill it down. What is the one thing that if I had to make a list of the one thing I couldn't do without until I have to do without is my very special bougie coffee. Like, you know, that gives me, that's why my day starts that way. It's a source of pleasure and relaxation for me. And so I'm keeping that routine for as long as I can. Until, you know, my favorite coffee runs out. But you're absolutely right. I, I buy virtually nothing anyway. So I haven't really felt a change there. I, now, in terms probably- of, it's also an addiction. Caffeine is an addiction. Another addiction, I agree with you about coffee. Another addiction is MSNBC. I'm addicted to MSNBC and okay. I've weaned myself. Off MSNBC, it drives me nuts. I rather right. get, and here's the other thing that I find interesting. You know, MSNBC is designed to agitate the listener or viewer. I do not watch MSNBC anymore because they're not giving me news. CNN is giving me news, but they catastrophize. Mm-hmm. I'm being very selective in where I get my information from. I go. I have a coronavirus folder that I go to every three hours, mm-hmm. and it's basically the Associated Press, the New York Times, the CDC. I get my quick information, the updates, what I need to know. I'm getting uh, the TV during a time of crisis is not your friend. It's your enemy. It creates mm-hmm. anxiety. But I do enjoy the state-sponsored television. In other words, I like watching C-SPAN. I like to hear Andrew Cuomo, the governor. Mm-hmm. He's problematic. I know that. But I, he has become the purveyor of information. We don't get it. Mm-hmm. We don't get it on the news. But if you watch Andrew Cuomo, he is sitting mm-hmm. there in the governor's office <laughs> and he's on the ground taking, processing all this information. And he's being blunt and truthful, a little biased, a little anti-Trump, Mayor Bill de Blasio every day addresses mm-hmm. the, the city of New York with information, facts. We're being treated like adults here in New York City. We've been infantilized right. by the mainstream media to just be terrified. And both Bill de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo are treating New Yorkers like adults and saying, this is bad. We don't have mm-hmm. enough ventilators. Stay home. Stop playing basketball. It's going to get worse in April, and it's going to be even far worse in May. Get used to it. Your life is never right. going to be the same. That's one of the virtues of being in New York uh, during this pandemic is they're not infantilizing you. They're saying these are the facts. Right. Stay home. 
So my recommendation is to everybody, you know, this is coming to a, a theater near you, this pandemic. Do yeah. not get your information from the the, the, the television unless uh, you, you've properly vetted them. The other thing that I've come to adore is Turner Classic Movies, which I've always adored. But here's my new my new discovery, movies from the 1930s, because I always I, I always had a problem with movies from the 1930s because the sound was never good. But they've restored uh -huh. any movies on Turner Classic Movies from the 30s. They've restored the sound. And so it's a that's my new guilty pleasure. <laughs> not not so guilty yeah. pleasure. Yeah. No, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because you, you, it's an opportunity to kind of figure out what's most important for you and, and then distill it down. You know, caffeine may be an addiction, but I actually drink mostly decaf. So yeah. I'm oh. actually just hooked on well, coffee are, yeah. for aren't coffee's you, sake. Aren't you better <laughs> than I am? No, no, I, I, I do a half and half in the morning and, uh, you know, and then if I want more later in the day, I just make decaf. Because I love coffee. I you know what my have. half and half is? What? I have regular coffee. I have two two coffee pots. One is with caffeine, and the other one is with a lot of caffeine, and then I mix the two. So, mm -hmm. hey, but we, we got to wrap it up. Uh, can we do okay. this Tuesday? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, I'm gonna, let's end on two. Let's end on. Uh, I'll, I'll end on two good pieces of news, and then you get the last word. Arizona okay. in Arizona. The mm -hmm. Trans Queer Pueblo advocacy, advocacy Group reports that ICE has released five LGBTQ immigrants from the detention facilities in Arizona. So they are beginning to release some of the, the detainees. That's one piece of information that's good and it should okay. encourage everybody to advocate. And the other good piece of news is... People are fostering animals that people are home, they're alone, mm -hmm. and the Humane Society is reporting a not necessarily a shortage of dogs to foster, but a waiting mm -hmm. list to foster mm -hmm. animals. So there's some, uh, we'll see what happens after the pandemic, what happens to those animals right. if they return. But, yeah. Uh, animals make good companions, better than humans, by the way. That's my two pieces of good news, that that people are stepping up, that humans are basically yeah. good. You know, some humans are basically good. They're going looking for animal companions. You get the last word, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. Okay, I'm going to say that the good news is that there's plenty of fresh fruits and vegetables out there for people and and that when you're thinking about ordering your groceries for deliveries you know really uh use optimal foraging theory which is a pretty complicated you know ecological concept but basically is maximize your energy for minimal effort so don't go hunting around for your favorite snacks that don't give you really any any nutritious uh value get the the thing that's most abundant even even though it's not maybe your preferred food item, and we're very, very attached to our preferred food items, we will forego abundant things that we don't prefer uh, in favor of rare things that we prefer. But now the cost of searching for and finding and getting those is really high. So I say expand your palate 
to fresh fruits and vegetables, which are in, in high abundance. And, and that's a good opportunity to, um, save money because it's usually cheaper. And, yes. and that, and that is something that we, we all need to try to do. Um, and, and it will also help support maybe local farmers and, and, um, and other people. So, so that's what I would, I would end with that there's so much food available in terms of fresh fruit and vegetables. So go for that next right. time you got to make a shopping list. When in doubt, make soup. That's my, uh. Oh yeah. Soup is great. You could throw yeah. a bunch of vegetables in there. Yes. Fantastic. You know, and it's cheap and it lasts a long time and you can make a bunch. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is an animal behaviorist. She teaches animal conservation at the University of Arizona. Follow her on Twitter at Real Dr. Jen. And you should subscribe to Wild Connection TV. Watch her on YouTube and sign up for her newsletter. Go to jenniferverdelin.com. Read her blog. Sign up for her new, her newsletter and pick up two of her books, Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships, and Raised by Animals, The Surprising New Science of Animal Family Dynamics with Try-at-Home Lessons from the Wild. Now, this would be a great book to buy if you're quarantining with a loved one. Pick up Raised by Animals, order it, order Raised by Animals, and do some of the try-at-home lessons from, from the wild. Yeah, yeah this will really help, actually. <laughs> that would uh, that would be interesting. We'll talk to you Tuesday, I hope, right? Yes, yeah, sounds great. Okay, stay on the line for one second. If you've always wanted to tell me a joke, give me a piece of your mind, or confess your sins to my listeners, this is your chance. Leave us a voicemail at 202-670-2752. That's 202-670-2752. And maybe I'll play it on the show. Maybe. What's up, David? I got to say, Liam, I got to correct him on one thing, right? We're not addicted to Ambien, man. The fans of the David Solomon Show are not addicted to Ambien. We are addicted to weed and video games, okay? And I don't appreciate you smearing us with this Ambien addiction. If you're gonna come at us, you need to come correct. Weed, video games, okay? And I'm a fucking adult, so I smoke my weed in my bathroom, okay? Away from the world, as far as I can get, because I'm ashamed. I'm deeply ashamed. Somebody please help me. Hi, David. Hi, Liam. It's Billy Brown. First time, long time. I'm calling to answer Citizen Bacon's question. My favorite film is anything with a happy ending. Hey, Dave. This is, uh, my name's Ed Fagan, Latin, Arizona. I love your show. I love it, love it, love it. Uh, you keep me sane, and uh, I love you too, brother. Uh, I feel as bad as you do about Bernie. I'm just, uh, and uh, when I'm really depressed, I go back to your pod, uh, your website, and I listen to Harvey K or Jennifer, 
and uh, keeps me together. Uh, I love you. I love your show. You know, I wish I was young enough to cry. Not Bernie. Just kisses me the fuck off. Anyway, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our voicemail is 202-670-2752. Leave us a message. Let us now go to Washington, D.C., where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is standing by. Barry W. Lynn was executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State from 1992 to November of 2017. Besides being an attorney, a lawyer, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Did I get that right? Yes, David. It's it's still the preferred pronunciation. So we're going to talk about the president's press conference, the stimulus package, Nancy Pelosi, AOC, Deborah Burks, and uh, the religious nut of the week. Let's start with the president's press conferences, which I don't watch. I find them of no use. They have no entertainment value to me because I have Netflix and HBO. (laughs) Well, here's why I do watch them. I take a walk every day with my wife, uh, two, three miles into the woods across the street from where we live. And uh, when I come back, I'm usually quite tired. And then I turn on the television and almost predictably, the coronavirus task force is having its press conference. And I just get in at about the time that Trump waddles in and starts to explain the great things that he's done. So that's why I watch it. And then I also watch it because uh, it it just it gives me something to be truly angry about in the midst of being just a, having a generalized anger. But when you see this waddling buffoon come up and start talking about what a great job he's done, then I just I it allows me to laser focus on what the real problem is, and that is that the president is an imbecile. Yes. We have That's it. why I watch it. Yes. But yes. I do watch it. I do have Netflix. I do watch it. I was just given some advice about a new show that my daughter thinks uh, I would like, and uh, so I'll get around to that. But but you're getting outside, which is... Getting outside. Yeah. Has the Republican you know, Party turned into an apocalyptic death cult? There are people who are saying things like, we cannot let the... The cure be worse than the problem itself. That's what Donald Trump has talked about. We've had the, the the lieutenant governor of Texas say maybe we need to sacrifice some 70 year olds to save the economy. They they mean that. Don't they? No, they absolutely do mean that. And, of course, uh, Glenn Beck also has jumped in this bandwagon of a few dead old people. And, and they all most of the people who say this, by the way, are in that category of 65 or over. So I guess they think it's OK to say this kind of stuff uh, because they're including themselves in the mm-hmm. I'm willing to go. But of course, uh, you don't need to do that. It's, it, it, it's obscene. And this, remember, is the 
organization, the Republican Party, that used to believe that it was pro-life. Of course, it was never pro-life when it came to the death penalty, because the more people you could execute in the harshest way possible is the better. But now they're basically saying, you know, if you're old, you ought to be willing to go. And of course, there are this talk now about the circumstances under which people in hospitals and people in nursing homes would be denied certain kinds of treatment and, and frankly some of some kinds of treatment probably should be denied to people who are old and virtually dead but this is starting to infect the way we think about hospitalizations in nursing homes to the extent that we think about nursing homes at all other than to criticize them i saw something today that the uh, the uh, Medicare uh, folks have been very critical of the nursing home out in Kirkland, Washington. that got so much attention because so many of its residents were uh, contracting the coronavirus, criticizing them and saying that they might be penalized because they apparently didn't have enough backup doctors when their own original doctors got sick themselves. So if that's what that's what they think is going to solve the problem, criticizing the places that are taking care of some of the most vulnerable people now because they didn't go along with some uh, requirement that uh, no one could have expected to be implemented this quickly. So now they are a death cult. And they're also, you know, I, I, I get in trouble when I say this sometimes, but I, I think that when you look at the great monsters, of modern history, when you look at Pol Pot, when you look at Hitler, when you look at Stalin, sooner or later, Donald Trump is directly enough involved in the deaths, which I think will, as I said last week, certainly become close to one million Americans soon. Um, he's a monster. He, he is a, a person who I think belongs in that panoply of great leaders who have committed atrocities to their own people. Feuding with Andrew Cuomo about ventilators. But, yeah, I mean, look, he, he, you know, he keeps talking about the ventilators. Andrew Cuomo, uh, of course, mentions every day in his press conferences, which I do find interesting, and they do, I do think they're worth listening to. Yeah. That he says at 20,000, and then Trump says he's he's constantly talking to Andrew Cuomo, who thinks I'm doing a great job, which, of course, he doesn't. And then uh, he says, I'm sending those ventilators, and then the ventilators don't show up. And so you, sitting in New York City, are in the middle of what is a nearly catastrophic event crisis in in hospitals all throughout the new york area and particularly in new york city it's hard to deny it it's hard to get over the fact that all of the projections of a doubling of cases of a doubling of deaths in those hardest hit areas as well as uh, in the country generally is not coming to pass uh, so the downplaying of numbers and i i think people like you and i wish that um, things were getting better, but I don't see a shred of evidence that anything is getting better. None, none at all. Yeah, I'm the, you know, I have to be optimistic. I have to be a Pollyanna. That is my nature. <laughs> I, I just have to think positive thoughts. 
and uh, I, it, it's, uh, you know. It, no, uh, well, it, it's good to be positive, and I think it's good to find positive things that are happening, but it's also, I, I think, important that we be crystal clear about how serious this is and how ludicrous the proposed solutions are that are coming not merely from Donald Trump, but from some of the people on his coronavirus task force and also by some of the nation's governors, including the governor of Florida, who still is not willing to just put the entire state into a kind of shutdown mode like you have in Illinois and you have in New York State and you have in Massachusetts. This guy DeSantis, who's a very close friend and supporter of the president's, just refuses to do that in the same way that he refused to shut down all the partying that was going on in Florida beaches over spring break. He didn't want to lose the revenue and now he's reaping the whirlwind from that with the increasing number of deaths and we're going to see that the spike in Florida deaths occur within a matter of a week or two when the spring breakers decide finally that they made a huge mistake by being there in the first place. A year from now, when they've found the vaccine, they found a way to treat the coronavirus, there'll be a blue ribbon commission that will look into this. And the conclusion will be there's a lot of blame to go around. Everybody was to blame. Now is not the time to point fingers. Let's move <laughs> on and make sure this doesn't happen again. But it's like 9-11. It, it was a problem with our system that nobody could foresee. I'm afraid that's what they're going to say. I mean, I, I'm a bit horrified to think of who would be on the Blue Ribbon Commission. Uh, but um, Blue Ribbon Commissions in Washington that tend to be they're obsessed with things like balance or to have a few people from different points of view on it. But that's generally a recipe for doing nothing and a recipe for for saying, well, you know, we tried. We had such a diversity of opinion and and then conclude exactly what you said. There's so much blame to go around. And, you know, I blamed people last week, and I think you irritated a bit and said, well, it's, I'm sounding like a scold. But I do think I, I am sounding like a scold, and I think that there's a reasonable time when people need to be pointed out for doing terrible things. And whether that's the president who makes stuff up, who t tries to pretend he's doing the uh, the happy news, you know, the local happy news half hour that we used to know 10 years ago. But now he's um, he needs to be called out. But so do the people who do the things which are barely it's, it's almost impossible to accept. There's a woman that has been, has been covered on Fox and on CNN who deliberately coughed. At $35,000 worth of produce in a grocery store. That's, now, no, that's nothing arrested. to sneeze at. <laughs> nothing to sneeze at. I don't even go to the grocery store anymore. I mean, I, I don't even want my wife to go to the grocery store during the elderly hour. Uh, and you can't get groceries delivered here until I think it's two and a half weeks from now. The giant food store may be able to deliver some groceries. So I'm glad we bought groceries and we have a lot of beans and that we're well, 
well established for at least uh, the next two weeks because I don't want to go into places where there are going to be people doing weird things, including coughing on the lettuce. My mantra throughout this has been people don't change, but nothing stays the same. <laughs> that is the, the lesson I'm taking from this, that there's no way anybody's going to admit they're wrong. Nobody's going to say, maybe I should switch to a vegan diet. Maybe I need to do this. But nothing stays the same. And you either evolve or you don't. The problem that I've noticed with this country is we don't learn our lessons and nothing stays the same. And we do evolve towards a uh, dumber beast. We're, we're like devolving or evolving into something far worse. <laughs> well, there's a lot of evidence of that. And, um, you know, I, I, I mentioned this guy, uh, last week, um, the spring breaker, right. who, um, was, um, quite proud of the fact that he was partying in Florida. And it, I think he said, uh, you know, if I get Corona, I get Corona, but I'm not going to give up my partying. And I mentioned his name and, um, my own wife said I shouldn't have done that, but he has uh, just apologized a couple days ago on Instagram. You had said that he should be permanently stigmatized and he should be on yeah, a, put do on not, a list of, yeah, do not hire this guy. That's right. what, that's what I think he should, we should know. Well, I, and, I uh, think that's already been addressed. I don't yeah, think anybody's hiring anybody Slater. right now. Well, Brady Sluter, uh, I'd like to take this time to own up to the mistakes I've he's misspelled, I've made and apologize to the people I've offended. That was uh, Mr. Sluter's apology on Instagram a few days ago. Perhaps he listened. Uh, maybe he's a listener to this program and he heard me criticize him and you um, say I was a scold for doing so. Mm -hmm. Um but um, and, have you, know, you seen the, the have you seen the coronavirus challenges on? Of course. Oh, my God. Of course. They're terrible. This is not like, uh, you know, the ice bucket challenge where you were trying to raise money to cure a disease. These are just stupid pet tricks done by human beings that totally ignore the significance of this problem. I mean, there was a kid licking who, a toilet seat, yeah, licking a toilet yeah. seat, and yeah. he got sick. He's in the hospital. Yes, yes. Well, there's a woman that also uh, uh, was. I think she was the first toilet bowl licker, and uh, she's apparently sick also. Mm. Well, yeah, it's. Um, you know, I like to think, uh, I, I do accept the idea of evolution, of course, I accept the evidence of it, it's, it's a brilliant scientific theory, and I also uh, thought until fairly recently that there was a kind of social evolution going on also, that in when you look at the scope of, of history, that things are getting better, and Steven Pinker, who's a, a kind of a, a humanist philosopher, brilliant writer, you know, kind of looks at the course of violence over the centuries and concludes that even on that score we're doing better we don't we have constant endless wars 
but they're not as bad as they used to be. And that, you know, this kind of social Darwinism, uh, I thought made a lot of sense un- until about a-, a week after the Trump election. And it's not just his election. It's the venality with which he approaches everything. He doesn't just make bad mistakes. Um, he's not merely a Pat Buchanan, an Oliver North. This guy has a venality that is almost unheard of in the American psyche. But now what he's done is he's made it acceptable for all kinds of other people to be just as venal, to be just as hateful about people who are not just like themselves. And he he needs to be blamed for that as well. He's going to be reelected. Well, I think he is. I mean, I think that we perhaps have reached a point where what we should do is just try to flip the Senate. I think there's a lot of uh, annoyance at some of these people who are uh, certainly vulnerable. We've mentioned them before, all the way from, you know, Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell, Susan Collins. I know you have her on every once in a Mm -hmm. while. But, but, I mean, these people should obviously be thrown out. But now it looks like there are vulnerabilities in other states as well. If you flip the Senate, even if this jerk gets reelected, um, he's not going to be able to do anything. That is to say, if Democrats in the Senate decide that they're going to be true opponents, and frankly, you got to worry about that too. And I am incredibly disappointed last night by what happened in the Senate, a 96 to zero vote on a bill, which frankly does so little good that it's obviously outweighed by all of the terrible things in it that will have long term implications for small businesses by overfunding big businesses that want to swallow them up uh, and does almost nothing uh, on the unemployment matters, nothing on the we're going to send you money, uh, all of these things marginally important. A single mother living in New York City or here in Washington uh, could expect eventually to get $1,700 from this plan because she will get 1200 Her child will make her eligible for additional $500. $1,700 does not exactly buy a rental property or in Washington that's very good. And I'm sure in New York, you probably couldn't get a square inch of a hovel for no. $1,700. Well, maybe soon. Yeah. Well, things are yeah. Exactly. Because everyone will die. And, the, and the, even the people who have rent controlled apartments in New York, yeah. they will die. And then uh, who knows? But I mean, this this bill. Um, what about food stamps? That, right. They didn't even address food stamps. No, they didn't address food stamps. Because I guess when you if you use half of the seventeen hundred to pay the rent, then you can use the other half to buy groceries because they didn't deal with that. They did deal with some things, though, that are obviously most important to all of these people trying to cut a deal last night. $17 billion specifically in loans to the Boeing Corporation. Now, it doesn't say that. I mean, I I think I've I've read the bill. It doesn't say that, but it describes an entity in such detail that it could only be applied to Boeing. 
Right. And that's we're so clever at writing stuff, uh, trying to hide stuff. The District of Columbia, you know, we have 700,000 people living here. We do pay federal taxes, unlike certain other territories of the United States, like American Samoa and Puerto Rico, where residents do not, in most cases, do not pay any income tax. We pay income tax, and we pay a, a, a hefty amount of it in comparison to a lot of places. But because in this bill, we are not treated as a state, the states in the bill are guaranteed a minimum of one and a quarter billion dollars. The District of Columbia is guaranteed 500 million, half of that, because we're treated as a territory under these circumstances. So we don't have a vote here, a meaningful vote. We don't have any senators at all. And now we're being penalized with the grants that are going to be necessary to pick up the tab of the incredible cost of health coverage here in the District of Columbia. It's um, it's estimated by the mayor that we'll lose literally $500 million in lost revenues just by having closed businesses in the District of Columbia. So we'll get it back, but we won't get an extra penny to make up the additional health costs here and that's a scandal and you know i like bernie's speech last night when he was trying to explain to these nincompoops like lindsey graham that if you give a person a couple extra hundred dollars because uh, for their uh, unemployment insurance that's not going to mean they'll never want to go back to work again and he thought it was very effective do you want to hear it i have it I'd love to hear it, and I'll comment on it. Yeah, this is uh, Bernie. And now I find that some of my Republican colleagues are very distressed. They're very upset that somebody who's making 10, 12 bucks an hour might end up with a paycheck for four months more than they received last week. Oh, my God, the universe is collapsing. Imagine that. Somebody who's making 12 bucks an hour now, like the rest of us, faces an unprecedented economic crisis with the 600 bucks on top of their normal, their regular unemployment check might be making a few bucks more for four months. Oh, my word. Will the universe survive? How absurd and wrong is that? What kind of value system is that? Meanwhile, these very same folks had no problem a couple of years ago voting for a trillion dollars in tax breaks for billionaires and large profitable corporations. Not a problem. But when it comes to low-income workers in the midst of a terrible crisis, maybe some of them earning were having more money than they previously made Oh, my word, we got to strip that out. We've got to tell those poor people that no matter what. And by the way, when this bill, when the McConnell bill first came up, unbelievably, and I know many Republicans objected to this, they were saying that, well, we want to give a whatever it was, a 1000 or 1200 bucks, but poor people should get less. You see, because poor people are down here. They don't deserve. They don't eat. They don't pay rent. They don't go to the doctor. They're somehow inferior because they're probably going to give them less. 
Well, that was addressed. Now everybody is going to get the $1,200. But some of my Republican friends still have not given up on the need to punish the poor and working people. You haven't raised the minimum wage in 10 years. Minimum wage should be at least 15 bucks an hour. You haven't done that. You've cut program after program after program. And now horror of horrors for four months. Workers might be earning a few bucks more than they otherwise went. Well, needless to say, this. So the Republicans will say that poor people don't deserve a handout because they don't pay taxes. Well, poor people do pay taxes. They pay into Social Security, which the federal government borrows against. And they pay taxes and they're more likely to be audited than a rich person. And there's a piece in the American Prospect entitled Avoid Taxes, Receive Federal Bailouts. You had said last week no bailouts for the aviation industry. Boeing, Boeing has paid single digit federal tax rates for decades. That's right. They uh, have an effective federal tax rate of 8.4 percent. And that's right. And after the tax cuts that Trump initiated, they're taking home an extra one point one billion dollars. That's right. They're 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 making money off (laughs) the tax cuts. I mean, it's just unbelievable. But they'll get a bailout. They'll get a bailout. Well, well, they're going to get they're going to get loans. And uh, as Robert Reich. Hello. Was pointed out, if you really have an airline that is struggling, that here's what you do. I mean, the record, the low rates of borrowing money. I mean, they're so low now that essentially don't pay any interest on them. What these airlines that need money should do: borrow against what are their assets, their equipment, their fleets of aircraft, and the same thing with the. Carnival cruises and the other cruises, you know, today they're not even American companies. No, and they they are not. But they they are listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And today I noticed at the very end of the day, uh, three of the major cruise companies that are listed, uh, their stock prices went up 65 to 70 percent today because they're. They know the bailout is coming, and it is for them. But for small businesses, forget it. This is what I think should have happened. I think Nancy Pelosi gets too much credit for what she's done. She should have started this process of coming up with this third wave bill, focusing entirely on small business, unemployment, Ventilators. Instead of breathing life into the economy, breathe life into the America. We need ventilators. (laughs) Of course we do. But if she had started this, you know, uh, the Constitution believes that all these spending bills ought to start in the House, not in the Senate. But the House was too. They they went home last week. But she stayed here and, and she was working on a piece of legislation. But instead of working on it, calling these characters back to Washington to vote on something, they could have gotten almost anything through that would have focused on buying medical supplies, on making sure that small businesses and you know gig operate, people who are self-employed, that they got the money and then pass it 
send it to the Senate and see what Mitch McConnell would do. But instead, she comes up with nothing. Then McConnell comes up with this horrible bill. And then people like Bernie fix little pieces of it and decide to go vote for it anyway. But if it had started in the House, then she could have said, look, Mitch McConnell, here's this bill. It's great. It does what's needed for people right now. Let's talk about these loans and bailouts and triggers of of the Federal Reserve's own loan program. Let's talk about that after we help the people. But instead, she didn't. And now she wants to do a unanimous consent motion on Friday of this week so that people don't even have a chance to amend the bill. And I must say, I've always liked AOC, but I liked her kind of in principle. She just seemed like a snappy person who is smart. But now, as we chat here, she is thinking about denying Nancy Pelosi the right to have what's called a unanimous consent vote, which would mean that these characters would not have to come back to Washington, and they could just pass it on a basically a voice vote. Two or three people who happen to be there would be there. I hope she tries to kill this bill well nobody read nobody read the patriot act nobody of course they didn't nobody read what was in tarp even though tarp was like three paragraphs i believe it was written of course paulson nobody knew what (laughs) what paulson hank paulson the secretary of the treasury was going to do with it we give uh carte blanche to the high priests of finance, Steve Mnuchin. And we, we, you know, we don't have time to read a 1000 page bill. We must rush. We must rush this bill through. Well, exactly. Do you agree with me that it would be best if the House simply didn't do this on a voice vote? If one or two people had the courage to say this is not helpful to the American people, it's not helpful enough, even for those single mothers and the other people who will benefit marginally for their $1,700 or $1,200. But uh, in comparison to the damage this will be doing to the economy in the future, that's small potatoes. Or maybe I'm just crazy. Okay, so we have to wrap it up, but it seems to me, (laughs) it seems to me when a nation is under attack, the the first instinct should not be to calm the markets. The, the first instinct should not be the economy. It should be the safety and well-being of the American people. That's the job of government. It's to take care of all of us. They should be talking about ventilators. We need masks and hospital gowns. We don't need to be bailing out cruise ships, which gave us the coronavirus. But this is <laughs> end-stage capitalism, my friend. This is... Well, it- this is it where it ends. Is. The Reverend Barry W. Uh, Lynn was the executive director of Americans United for separation of church and state from 1992 to November of 2017. Follow him on Twitter at Barry W. Lynn. And he is, uh, besides being a lawyer, an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Christ it is. Great. Stay on the line for one second. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Reverend. We believe in democracy, not oligarchy. (laughs) Today, we say to the private health insurance companies, 
whether you like it or not, the United States will join every other major country on earth and guarantee health care to all people as a right. is a human right, not a privilege. And together, we will pass a Medicare for all single-payer program. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Let's go to Brooklyn, where the great, and I do mean great, Michael Brooks is standing by. He is the host of the Michael Brooks Show every Tuesday night. Then, of course, he does some special episodes. His new book is Against the Web, a cosmopolitan answer to the new right, published by Zero Books. He is also co-host of The Majority Report with Sam Cedar. Welcome back, the great Michael Brooks. How are you, the great David Feldman? Well, hang on for one second. You truly are great. And I've I've talked to people like Professor Harvey J.K., who you introduced me to, and the great Professor Ben Burgess. And uh, you are, anyway, you are, you are. You really are in every way. And your last episode, Tuesday night, on Ending capitalism. The first, I don't know, your opening monologue, I don't know how long it went. It was 15 minutes. I watched it twice. And you outlined what exactly we need to do by we, the 99%, and the power of labor. And you talked about surplus value, and you did a brief primer on capitalism and what it does to a democracy. We'll get to that in a second. But let's talk about your book. Against the Web, a Cosmopolitan Answer to the New Right. What is this book about? So in some ways, I got to tell people, and I'll be really honest uh, with the audience, there's a bigger argument about building a kind of left-wing politics, which I think is much more appealing, much more dynamic, much more global, much more fun, much more interesting. And I think if you watch my show, to the extent my show succeeds, it's like that. There isn't a lot of like, you know, the show is not like, here's a top 10 list, why your favorite, you know, comedy is problematic, or, you know, this is a problem, that's a problem. It's, but on the other hand, it's a deeply global show mm-hmm. that in the spirit of a common endeavor understands that we need to learn from and uh, build solidarity across every part of the planet to the extent that that's possible. So what the book is about basically is uh, is that 
in the big sense, um, is building a cosmopolitan socialism. But it, it focuses on this group called the Intellectual Dark Web. And it's funny because, I mean, you know, when I got asked to write this book, I knew that we should get it out, you know, fast. Um, because it was a big, you know, these guys were really hot in 2018. I, as much as I disrespect them, I did not anticipate just a complete, total, almost evaporation of this kind of self-branding by 2020. Uh, we're talking about, you know, this group that literally self-consciously came together under this moniker. Did they or uh, did know, Barry were, Weiss? Yeah. I always thought they were defined by the piece yeah, of the New Barry York Times. Yeah, Barry Weiss defined them. Uh, yeah, I believe Barry Weiss used that term, and it includes, you know, Sam Harris, Ben Shapiro, Dave Rubin, the Weinstein brothers, and, you know, Jordan Peterson. And what the book was about, it is about, is first setting the historical stage. What is the moment we're in? Why are these guys so popular? And then why have the answers that the sort of liberal mainstream have provided been so insufficient to answering them. And I got to tell you, not only does the answer that I provide, uh, I think is, is relevant and, and going to be relevant for building a good project for decades. I, it, the, the IDW itself is still relevant because the arguments these guys are making are going to be the arguments you hear. That's the internet, so whether or the, not the, it, the, the, uh, the dark web you're talking about, the IDW. The dark web guys. Yeah. So even if it's not them, what they're putting forward is it, in other words, right? Like it's, these are the arguments you're going to deal with from, uh, the neoliberals and the right. And I'll, I'll just try to kind of simplify it, uh, really by, by using an example I use in the beginning of my book. And, uh, and then, and then I'll, uh, and then I'll, you know, uh, I'll pass the ball back to you. But my buddy, uh, Bashkar Sunkara, who's the founder of Jacobin Magazine, he wrote a New York Times column a couple years ago, several years ago, and it's just such a perfect metaphor for everything, where he said, look, we kind of have three different, let's say the world is sort of three different train stations right now or, or, uh, or airport destinations. <clears throat> and one is... uh uh, hungry, let's say. And he's talking about Victor Orban and, you know, Donald Trump, Bolsonaro, the familiar, you know, Modi, Netanyahu, the, the sort of global rise of this neo-authoritarian kind of nationalist capitalist politics, right? And it's very, we, we know, we know the usual rap against that politics. Then there's, uh, Singapore. Uh, station and Singapore is not democratic, but it's different. It's, you know, it's much more globalized. Uh, it does. I mean, look at how they've handled the coronavirus. There's a certain, uh, technical capacity. Uh, there's some good environmental policies. There's a certain, you know, there's some success to it. In fact, this is the world that, um, they don't represent because they're not, you know, successful, but this is the headspace. This is the Davos headspace. This is the Thomas Friedman headspace. This is the Mike Bloomberg headspace. This is the, in many ways, the Obama headspace. What's a world that's run by elites 
Uh, it's very illiberal. It's very managed. It's extremely unequal. It's extremely corporate. But it's not crass. Uh, it doesn't totally devalue science. Uh, and it doesn't totally devalue a certain type of diversity. And then the third station is Finland station. And that's, of course, Lenin <laughs> on his way back to Russia mm-hmm. before the Russian Revolution. And let's just be really specific about this because we're not going to, you know, litigate all aspects of the Soviet Union. And Boshkar himself is extremely critical of, of, you know, obviously things happened in the Soviet Union. But the 1917 revolution itself is something that we have to look at as an incredible expression of human liberation against monarchy, against, you know, against sweatshops, against, you know, against uh, just the complete immiseration of people and in favor of, you know, broader kind of democratic capacity and action. And, you know, he's like, look, we need to have an option in the world that's that third option. And, you know, by the way, it doesn't necessarily, it could, you know, obviously we see manifestations of this in social democratic movements. I see this today. We just did a segment last night on these Purdue workers walking off the job in Georgia. And what mm-hmm. incredible courage mm-hmm. um, to do that against this, you know, absolutely, uh, you know, vicious, disgusting company that's subjecting them to Corona. And so what my argument is, is that the, the interest, the other interesting thing about the dark web is that inside that group of guys, even though they spend most of their time, you know, agreeing that capitalism is good and, you know, fretting about college students and complaining about being victimized by liberals and all the rest. One of the things that's interesting about it is that it actually, they, you know, Sam Harris, I would say is product in some ways of the Singapore mindset. Jordan Peterson is a product of the hungry mindset, you know, in some ways. So it, it tracks, you can use these guys to track basically different varieties of right-wing or neoliberal argument that keep us back from having a greater democracy, from, you know, building uh, material bonds across culture and boundaries, and uh, that's what the book's about. With also a lot of critiques about the shortcoming of, uh, of the liberal and left as well. One of the criticisms of the left is that they have no grand unifying theory that they don't make order out of chaos. There are so many special interests, and they're they're just going to fight among themselves. Is that true? Well, I I think that to um, I think that to some extent that is true. Um, I think though, you know, this is why uh, some of us are retreat. I think to put this really simply, you need to have a mass labor movement in order to have an effective left. I don't think there's any other way of doing that. That's what you were saying on Tuesday, on Tuesday night show. Yeah, you were great. You said it's, you were being practical. You were saying this is not utopian. This is practical that the power of the people is manifested through labor. Yeah, for, be- for before, better or you know, worse, that's... you said that's pretty much how we have to move forward to take on this neo-authoritarianism. Yeah, I think that that's it. I think that that's really 
um, that's that's it. I don't think that. The, and and of course, as Adolf Reed points out, you know, one of my teachers, like obviously, you know, what a worker means in 2020 is different than what it meant in 1965 or 1918. We're talking about, you know, it has to include what small amount of people are still on public assistance. There is an element. There should be, you know, concepts of organizing people in a union structure that are structurally excluded from the workplace. Then, of course, there's this, you know, massive temp freelance economy. That's one of the biggest challenges today. Mm-hmm. How do you organize Uber drivers? Uh, you know, this, and I'm looking at this theoretically. I have to learn, you know, from people like Reed and others of the sort of practical steps of organizing. But the reason, you know, in, in, in Marx, when he sort of took, you know, basically concepts that I wouldn't say they weren't utopian, but there was a revolutionary mood in Europe at the time. There was this idea of socialism, which is that, okay, it isn't just sort of like the bourgeoisie and the shopkeepers fighting against the monarchs. There should actually be broad well-being for all, for the laborers, for the, you know, for the peasants. And, and Marx, turned it in because, you know, and it's funny, if you actually read like Capital, it's filled with critiques, but also built off of, you know, the uh, British economics at the time. I think the, the classic kind of thing they say about Marx is, right, is it's a fusion of German philosophy, French politics, and British economics. Hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, and, and, and then he made it material. And one of the things that he really made material, which just kind of means like in the world, like in the physical action, like the idea that, um, and obviously this gets a lot more complicated, but in, in most of our thinking, and it's funny because you can see this, whether people come at it, like whether they're like ultra sciencey in some ways or, or new age or, you know, have various political ideologies. We're very much trained to think that we sort of think about things and take on different beliefs, have different ideas, and then we do stuff. And then the, the Marxist thing is actually kind of the inversion, which is that, you know, actually you go and do stuff all day and then that produces how you think. You know, you, mm-hmm. you work in a certain way, you're in a certain economy and that kind of shapes the contours of what you think is possible, what you think is natural, what you think is obvious, you know. And I I think obviously ultimately it's going to be some fusion of two, but I think it's especially because we're so used to believing in like ideas in a vacuum. uh, We don't think about how literally what we do all day impacts how we think. You know, I mean, there's a reason why, why is there... It wasn't like in the last 20 years, everybody all of a sudden just got really intellectually interested in the idea of entrepreneurship or freelancing. There had to be a million books and Instagram posts about that because that's what the economy forced billions of people to do. It made some cases successfully, and that's great, and some people like it. But a lot of people, you know, frankly, it sucks, right? But, it, it, you know, it had to be like, man, we're at this great new phase, and People are really rethinking how they want to work. Well, yeah, some people, a lot of people also just can't work mm-hmm. <laughs> in the same way that they could work in the 50s or 60s, right? And so we have to build a new story to go along with that. Anyways, Marx was obviously cared deeply about 
workers and there is a moral vision, sure, but it's a core strategic insight. The right. other side is all the money, they have the power, they have the resources, and what's the one thing we have? If we don't show, I mean, and that's what's so interesting about today's moment is it's is it's you know it's terrifying and they just passed the stimulus. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. Well, let me, let me. Yeah, yeah, but I but yeah. but I just want to tell people that ironically they you know if you know it doesn't even need to be a majority. I mean, if several million people were just like, no, sorry, fuck you, Trump, not going. That is a body blow to this whole system, and that's the real paradox: is that in every way, people as workers, particularly in today's era have, you know, no power. And then, on the other hand, they have all the power in the world if it's harnessed in some form of collective action. That's the kind of paradox. And that's what Mark zeroed in on strategically. Labor labor is where the power is. If you, you know, there can be various pressures, there can be various this, various that, but ultimately, if the workers say, no, we're not working now, well, there you go. Okay. That's a strategic move. Human nature is always to fight the last war. We're always fighting the last war. The French set up the Maginot line. They didn't anticipate airstrikes. The Pentagon spends a trillion dollars a year. They didn't uh, anticipate bioengineering and, and the, possi- the possibility of a, a pandemic. They didn't anticipate, they're not doing a good job with computer viruses. Are you fiddling with your microphone? Oh, no, sorry. What are you doing? What am I doing? You're- oh, uh, I am sending, I need to, I'm so, really sorry. Hold on one second. Okay, go ahead. I thought everything was on silent. I needed Sam was uh, was texting me about uh, what time today uh, to come on. I'm sorry. I would okay. not have responded to anything else. That would be uh, Samantha B. Okay, go ahead. That would be sorry. Samantha B? <laughs> sorry? Is that Samantha B yeah, or Samantha Sam B. Cedar? Samantha B, yes. Or She's leaving the... her husband for me. It's interesting. Oh. Or as we yeah. we call her, Samantha B-. minus. I don't know why I said that. She's fantastic. <laughs> I just wanted no, to be... Not. Huh? <laughs> What? No, she's not. You're not allowed to say <laughs> no, that. You're not allowed to I'm say sorry. that. You're not allowed to say that. Part, part, part that's, that's not in the comedy Overton window. That's, oh, there's yeah. no Overton window when it, when we're discussing Samantha B or Trevor Noah or John Oliver. You can't even discuss no, whether or not. Sure. You, you can't discuss whether or not they're, they're good or bad or Colbert. You're not allowed no, they're to. They're fantastic. Thank you. They're fantastic. Thank you. So, uh, and you know, not only funny, but really insightful people that are very much willing to push against the grain. Well, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's this guy, Trump, who's the president, and he's an existential threat to the soul of America. And if we don't focus solely on what Trump says and does <laughs> to the exclusion of everything else, we're lost as a nation. We have to only discuss Trump. We'll get to that in a second. Here's no. what I here's what I uh, I'm curious yeah, okay, about. You were asking a really interesting question about pandemics and computer viruses. Right, fighting the last war, and yeah, I worry that the left is fighting the last war, reliant too much on Marx and the power of labor, because I think the the the, the capitalists 
whoever they are, anticipate labor, you, you know, uniting. And so when you were saying on your show, it's all with, it's all, it all resides in the, in the, in the power of labor uniting against the capitalists. Uh, I wonder if that's the last war. I wonder if that's not where we're going to be. I don't know if that's the hill that we're going to. I gonna... think that we got to be really careful about disanalogies. You know, I think that there are patterns of like generally how things work. You know, particularly, I mean, in economics, like you, I mean, that's the thing. You can read Marx, but you can also, you know, there's different things you could read from Ricardo or whoever, and you could just say, like, okay, like, this is a, you know, it's a completely new market, um, but the same principles are applying, right? Like, we don't, I mean, let's just... So what is the game that, let me ask you a question, let me, the the Andrew Yang game with Universal Basic Income, excuse me for one second, excuse me for one second. No, how dare you? Okay, they're playing a different (laughs) game, they're saying work is disappearing, Mm -hmm. They've, right. they've, they're already saying you're going to be replaced by self-driving cars and robots. So work is off the table. They've already anticipated mm-hmm. workers unite. And they're saying they're going to be no workers. What do you say to to Andrew Yang and all the people who warn of the job apocalypse? Oh, you're really trying to get more of these uh, idiots to bother me on Twitter, huh? Uh no, uh, well, what I say is is three things. One, and this is the most minor point, but it's worth mentioning, that that idea, the scale of automation of jobs is, is a hotly contested topic. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what. No, I agree with you. I think it's a myth that we're going to be replaced by automation. Yeah. So I don't exactly. So look, I think it's, look, it's, it's happening in some ways. And then also the other thing is it sounds so grand and magical, but like, you know, I mean, look, an application of that right now, you know, you go into some pharmacy and they're like, please do self checkout. And you're just like, actually, could I just check out with you? And not deal with this stupid machine. (laughs) Right. It isn't now, you know, and yes, self-driving cars are a thing. There's huge regulatory questions and, but so, okay. So there's that. Then the second step is that Marx is deeply relevant and whatever. It doesn't need to be, I mean, Marx is important, but it could be, you know, there's plenty of contemporary Marxists, uh, you know, as an example, like even a guy like, uh, like Aaron Bastani, who's a you know a guy who's probably about my age. He wrote a, a book called uh, Luxury Communism, and it's all about yeah we have this enormous tech innovation as part of the book, most of which is built by the way as we all know on public research, the origins of things like the internet. Now a lot of that is military, and that's a whole other thing that we're going to eventually need to deal with. But you know all of these grand things that supposedly come from the public from the private market always start with government. So the really thing really starts to become, you know, why the hell not 
have a public internet that instead of being a pernicious spy service for a handful of platform capitalism companies uh, is is uh, is something that is is uh, you know a matter of public good, um, and then we can keep going out from from there. You know, like yes, okay, we can have. Uh, it would be great if certain jobs could be automated, and what if those automations were conducted, you know, by a, a government that had nationalized strategic industries. Um, and the people whose jobs were getting trained were not just getting like a piddling little UBI. They were getting like an incredible full, uh, social system and then being incentivized to do other things. You know, Jeremy Rifkin wrote a book called The End of Work in the 1990s where he didn't just talk about things like UBI. He was saying like we could, we could pay people to do all these things that we don't socially value. Mm-hmm. You know, that we don't economically value, we socially value, but we don't economically value, you know, like why shouldn't people be paid to be coaches and mentors and caretakers and things like that? We have a huge social rot in our country and there's all sorts of, you know, people who have all sorts of gifts and capacities that aren't recognized in the market. So, and, and then that leads me to the third thing with Yang specifically. I mean, the thing that always really disturbed me about Yang was that if you would dig in and in interviews with him, it would always start on the upfront with, you know, it's math and we've got to go boldly into the future. And then like Mehdi Hassan would be like, okay, this is really interesting. And what about having like a wealth tax? And he would be like, Oh, that's not going to happen. You know, ba- basically the perspective of, of the sort of Yang perspective that I could see mostly was pretty much, there isn't going to be any democratic accountability. That's there what isn't I want. Going to be any right. real shift in right. power, and so please just take a little pittance to you know jerk off and eat ramen. And right. I still think we need to do better than that. Because even because by the way, if you said a three thousand dollar a month UBI, you would already be, and you said along with that we're going to have rent control because that's major. You know, most people got the UBI and. New York, it would just go straight to the landlord, but you would have to, um, you know, you'd have to have some, it's not that I'm opposed to UBI, but it has to be involved in a broader effort. I think the UBI that people like that are talking about and is floating around Silicon Valley is very much, uh, uh, Ben Burgess told me about how in a certain phase in, in Roman history, like down on their out, former, I think, like, you know, soldiers, the Roman, you know, they didn't want them to rise. Mm-hmm. But they obviously weren't really going to give them anything, so they gave them some kind of basic grain allotments or maybe even a touch of land to shut the fuck up. And I still think we can do better than that. Right. The yin to yang is we have to, and you touched on this, and I was making a bad <laughs> joke about, sorry, you talked on Tuesday's show that it's not really about economic systems. It's about democracy, that democracy should supersede whatever language we use to exchange labor for goods. And what I think most Americans don't understand is the antipathy towards democracy. And among our ruling elite... I, I had a guest on the show, a Harvard-educated lawyer, and I asked him, 
do you think the solution to all this is democracy? And he gave this long pause. And I said, the fact that you have to think about this reveals so much about who you are. You don't trust the American people to vote. And so if if the left is fighting the last war, is the right fighting the last war? Suppression of the workers, the idea that we can use <clears throat> automation and a universal basic income as a cudgel to prevent the 99% from, you know, coagulating into some force, some tyranny that's going to take over Washington, D.C. Is the right fighting the last war by suppressing the workers? We see it in in the Senate debate over the, the $2 trillion stimulus package. They don't want workers to get additional money uh, over and above what they're getting uh, um, from their unemployment checks. What does that say about how the right sees the 99%? They want, they made it crystal clear this week that they want the workers terrified and easily manipulated. And and I'm watching the debate thinking, well, if we're going to be replaced by automation and we're going to need universal basic income because you're capable of shipping all these jobs overseas. Why are you so concerned about throwing the American worker an extra $600? What is that about? What What is the right thinking? Well, I think it's not just, you know, because I would assume maybe the Harvard professor you had on was probably some type of liberal. I, it, it goes back to the interest, to the part of the beginning of the conversation. And this is where it, this these terms do start to become somewhat important. I, I think, you know, I, there's a there's a political nerd tendency to get way too obsessed with terminology. But that ta- but, but we uh, need that because that and I think yeah, that's okay, what so you do in your book. You have to the, you have to create order out of chaos. And and when you're up against neo-authoritarianism, yeah. that it, that the, the appeal of authoritarianism uh-huh. is, is that Orban and Trump they say this is this is the truth. This is order. And we you're writing your book. Your new book is Against the Web, a cosmopolitan answer to the new right. You have to rely on language and terminology to make order out of this chaos. Oh, yeah, no, I absolutely let me say, I think that and I think you see this with Bernie and I think you see this with a Rashida Talib. People who are on, or you know, or Elon, or AOC, or whatever, like in that group, there's some, you know, there's some socialism, and the this is a contingent of people who have some belief in small d democracy, and whether it's the right as corporate oligarchs or the neoliberals, because let let's be really clear about this. <clears throat> This, you know, within 24 hours of Donald Trump, you know, doing his moron press conference about, you know, it's going to be fine, go back to work. <laughs> Thomas Friedman wrote essentially the same argument for the upmarket crowd in the New York Times, right? He found a couple of people with some prestigious affiliations to kind of say, we could do this. He hemmed and hawed. He emphasized how worried he was. But essentially, he's like, you know, I want people to get back to my wife's footlocker, and let's do this. Right? Is that where the fortune comes from? And the footlocker, 
Uh, yeah, his wife, I believe, owns a chain of like retail malls or something. Yeah. Her family owns that. Yeah. So, so you know, no wonder he wants, uh, um, you know, people back to work. But I think that the and and it, and what's so amazing, right, is that in all of these cases, we have the clearest and easiest answer, which is okay. There's a pandemic. People for you know, at least several months, it seems like from everything I've read, uh, need to essentially stay at home. And, you know, maybe that can be, you know, obviously have some flex around, you know, taking runs, walking around the neighborhood, but you know, you particularly, you need to stay put. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what needs to happen. All right. Let's get everybody 3000 a month. Let's suspend rent. Let's suspend mortgage payments. Let's, uh, you know, Let's do a bunch of, you know, and then obviously once people are taken care of and not freaked out and worried, then we need to have a, a Marshall plan for our, you know, our uh, third world health system, right? That's it. Simple. It's not complicated. We all know what the answer is. And the reason that that doesn't happen is probably first and foremost, just raw corruption. Like, you know, Trump isn't going to use the Defense Powers Act because the Chamber of Commerce is going to look out for its clients and they have an incredible opportunity to price gouge right now. And so they're going to take it. Or, you know, the stimulus can be a huge slush fund for corporate America to steal and they're going to take that opportunity. So there is just the raw rot and corporate corruption for sure. But I think there's also an ideological component because the truth is, is that you start showing how utterly easy it is. You know, we've just spent years saying that Bernie Sanders' agenda, you know, Democrats, Republicans, everybody in media, you know, Hillary Clinton, it's a pony, it's crazy, it can't happen. Well, actually, it could literally happen in a matter of days. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if we give that to people, then all of a sudden they might not be used to being treated like absolute shit anymore, and they might expect more, and we need to stop that at all costs. And that's also what's happening. Right. And do you think... In their in their heart, people like Hillary, Obama, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, who arguably are interchangeable when it comes to at least their economic beliefs. Do you think they fear the worker? Do you do you think that they view the ninety nine percent as a mob that must be controlled and frightened and off balance? So. They don't ask for too much. Do you think Hillary believes that there might be a subtle difference? I think that there might be more of that, maybe more of that particular belief in the Republican Party. My sense of Obama world, and by the way, Elizabeth Warren world, people get triggered, but whatever, I don't care. I think there's more of, I think, I think, Look, practically, I'm not sure how much this really makes a difference. The Republicans are weird because on one hand, there's obviously, and I know you didn't mention it, but I think with, you know, there is actually a crude populism with the Republicans where they actually, at least rhetorically, are infinitely more respectful and deferential to their base, right? Mm -hmm. But I think amongst Republicans, there's still, I mean, look, they're a right-wing party, so I think there's even more of a sense of just, like, kind of natural order. Like, hey, look, you know, the, the rich people own the land, and 
you know, you work, shut the fuck up kind mm-hmm. of thing. I think amongst the Democrats, there's a lot more like, no, 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 no. You know, we care about working people and poor people. And in fact, we even were the ones who believe that there might be, you know, there's, there's some, you know, a handful of like gifted prodigies out there, which we should, you know, give a grant to and, and get them to a, you know, a good college and maybe they can end up making money. Um, but what we need to do, but we can't have labor unions actually really have power because they need us to help them. You know, it's certainly not that they would be the leaders. You know, it's not, again, I always go to Brazil. Like, I think <clears throat> among many reasons, you could see the antipathy to Lula from, uh, you know, the, the president before Lula in Brazil was a guy named Fern, uh, Fernando Cardozo, who was an academic. He, you know, had a PA, he was a, actually like a very respected academic in the 70s and 80s, and spoke multiple languages and, you know, very, you know, and, and very respected by the Bill Clintons of the world for his, you know, his urbane intellect or whatever. Now, Lula is an infinitely better president and a global rock star. Who you interviewed? Who you interviewed in jail? Who I interviewed. I had the honor of interviewing. And you could just see that part of it is, is, you know, who the fuck do you get off, you illiterate metal worker? But it's like, well, he gets off by being better than you. Uh, and that, you know, and, and I think, I think that the democratic mindset, a lot of it is sort of like, you know, hey, we're, you know, we're going to look out for them occasionally, but right. we know what's best for them. And, uh, you know, that's it. That's the problem with the myth of a meritocracy where they allow uh, low income, quote unquote, geniuses into the Ivy League or Stanford or wherever. And then they become convinced, like Deval Patrick, who comes from a lower middle class family, gets absorbed into Harvard, then Bain Capital, he becomes the governor of Massachusetts, and he actually thinks he earned his position. That's the problem with the illusion of a meritocracy. And that's in the Democratic Party. That's the problem with the Democratic Party. They actually think they deserve to be where they are, that they earned it. And they become paternalistic. And it's how the Republicans get away with calling Obama and Clinton elitists, because they are. They're intellectual elitists. They think they're two types of people. Maybe it's not... You know, maybe they are looking at, they think they're looking at for the worker and the least among us, but they do think that there are two types of people. The Clintons and the Obamas think there are two types of people, those who get waited on and those who wait. There's no question about that. And that's why the Republicans do so well. You uh, you have this amazing, well, all your episodes are amazing, but you have this episode 132 of The Michael Brooks Show, Everybody should download it wherever you get your podcasts or watch it on YouTube. End capitalism, or it'll end us. End capitalism. And in your opening monologue, you talk about the importance of democracy, how democracy supersedes any economic system we operate under. And for the American people who are not swimming in Marxism and class divide, just trying to figure out where we go next. I know I sound like a boomer when I say this, and I am a boomer. I can't help it. 
I can't help yeah, it. And, I, and my thinking, you know, I'm trying to be radicalized. And am I wrong? I think you are. I'm trying to get radicalized. Uh, 1776, Adam Smith writes Wealth of Nations. We have in 1776 the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, a cautionary tale about what's going to happen to the the third document that's written, 1776, is the Declaration of Independence. And uh, those are three important writings. Uh, is it all there in the Declaration of Independence? Can we find it in the Constitution? Can we get tearful about our our founding father, our horrible founding fathers, every one of them? Can, can we get tearful about the foundational myth of the United States and build off of that the way Ralph Nader does? You know, I do a radio show with Ralph Nader. So, you know, his answer, and you spoke to this in episode 132, is... It's not the economic system. It's Congress that if we take back Washington, D.C. and democratize everything, we will we won't have a utopia, but we will at least resemble something like Denmark or Germany. And do we have to end capitalism? Do, do we, yeah, and, and does that and do. could that but debate me, become I'll, irrelevant? I'll, sorry, could the debate about capitalism versus a free market, which some would say there's no such thing as capitalism, there's no such thing as a free market, there's no such thing as state-owned businesses. I mean, it's all how you perceive this. If we had a well-functioning democracy with guardrails, could well, this is the this is the thing. This is the, and is that, and I'll work backwards. Okay. What keeps getting proven is that those guardrails don't work. Uh, like I'll, I'll say Bashkar again, he said, you know, he's like, by temperament, I would, it would be great if there could be some kind of social democratic stasis, but there can't be because, I mean, one, you got to look at it in a global way. So I don't, Look, I think it's foolish to not recognize the incredible gains of the New Deal, the incredible gains that Europeans created, uh, for sure. Now, we've got to look at both the, obviously, the racial divisions in the New Deal that are very important, and also in terms of the kind of broader global uh, supply chain, like Europe, Part, look, it achieves, it, this is a balance. It achieves those things because of worker movements and some really incredible uh, leaders in Sweden and elsewhere. But it also is resting on a supply chain of the spoils of like underdeveloping Africa as an example. Mm -hmm. So you always have to look this in a global way. The second thing is, is that what's interesting to me, you talk about going back into history and I think actually this kind of fantasy about going back to like the 60s economically or the 50s economically that is something that's ultimately just out of date because one we saw that for a couple of de decades we sort of had this arrangement in the west and starting in the 70s the right just utterly dismantled it 
and they dismantled it ideologically. You can read the thing, uh, the Powell memo. They dismantled it through globalization and trade, and all of a sudden, you know, even in Europe, which yes, they've kept more of our gains, their gains than the United States for sure, but there's, you know, <clears throat> these same German car manufacturers that in Germany, in their production facilities in Germany, they have workers on the boards and they co-plan the future. And, you know, again, that's the quality's gone down there too. People should look at what, you know, Schroeder did in the early aughts. Uh, so it's not a utopia by any stretch. Capital is always going to try to claw back the game. Right. That's the reason there can never be stasis. And the thing is, is that, and so even those German car manufacturers, though, they are the ones who exploit non-union car laborer in the South, in the United States, incredibly effectively. So in Germany, <clears throat> they're doing, you know, kind of corporate, uh, you know, corporatist, responsible capitalism. In the South, they're fighting the basic blocks of a union movement. So it's, it's global. And the other, and we know from history that it never stays in place. As long as you have capital with such power, um, they will always fight against the gains. They might temporarily accept it, but they're always going to fight against it. That's the nature of it because, you know, endless growth. You can't stay contained. You can't just, you know, you can't look in a capitalist model and say, hey, this is kind of working for everybody. Let's chill out. That's not how it works, you know, in, at the scale at which we do capitalism. And the other, you know, back to the kind of founding father stuff. I mean, you can, yeah, I mean, if you, I, I, I don't really, again, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, I think it's kind of like you got to choose your own adventure. You know, America is a obviously genocidal, racist empire from its inception. You can't deny that. And then on the other hand, it's a democratic revolutionary country with a republic with a really dynamic history and incredible movements and of course some amazing things in the constitution and the declaration you can't deny that either so my thing is you you can't deny history because that's wrong but you can you know fight for the version you want that's kind of the point but ultimately i would say the limits of that of the that declaration is that it is before you know marx and marx is marx has put the economy into play for the demo, for democracy that was the advancement they weren't anti-enlightenment quote-unquote they actually said right so if human beings should be able to govern their fates in political affairs they should also have significant power over economic affairs that's mm -hmm. when we get to things like democratizing the workplace and labor movement, trade unionism, and worker cooperatives. And the last thing I'll just say, too, and maybe this slightly will soothe the boomer brain, is that it's not – the modes of analysis are always relevant. They're probably more relevant today than ever. But the historical examples are fascinating and things to learn from, but they're not going to be replicated, like just as – you're not going to replicate what happened here in the 60s. You're not going to replicate what happens in 1917. You have to look at what can happen today. And so that's why 
I almost feel, you know, I think saying post-capitalism instead of socialism in a way is more relevant because it, it, in some ways it's going to be uncharted. It's going to be new. Um, we do have some great roadmaps, but we don't know all the answers to it. Right. And in that context, to also markets and capitalism are not the same thing. You know, people, it's an amazing propaganda job. People get this idea of like, oh, well, capitalism is nice. You know, I go to my little farmer's market and I buy from the local farmers or I become a patron of the Michael Brooks show. That's not what we're talking about. I I have no doubt that in a post-capitalist socialized system, there can still be micro markets. But yes, uh, you know, Exxon, Google, Boeing, uh, you know, Purdue, these things can exist. Um, Amazon, they must either be nationalized as strategic industries subordinated to democratic control uh, and, you know, in some ways probably, you know, rad- radically broken up or not exist anymore, right? Like you can't have uh, the sort of factory farming that we have uh, from something like Purdue, no matter who owns it, because it's and it's a threat to the environment and also helps create things like these pandemics overall. So, would you be amenable? Would you be amenable well. to uh, the state owning a significant voting block of these corporations when they get bailed out? In other yes. words, absolutely, of and, course, and having that be enough. In other words. Delta Airlines, which never paid any taxes during their boom years. JetBlue never paid any taxes, but now they're coming hat in hand. They want to bail out. Could you say to JetBlue, okay, we'll bail you out, but uh, we're going to own 20% of JetBlue. We're going to own stock. And it's going to go to help bolster Social Security. And we're going to have some say, but... Not too much say. That's no, not nationalizing. No, no, That's no. not for nationalizing JetBlue. No, for strategic industries, I want a lot more. And and I, and actually, this is another thing that's interesting to me because I'm more in the current model we're in. In some ways, I would say like, all right, the government's going to take an equity stake, and we also need to, of course, really exactly write clearly that this is going to be for things like national health care, social security, and Medicare. Our profits are going to go into that. And then also, uh, no, I want the board to be at least 50% worker. Right, that, like they have in Germany. A co-man. Yeah, I, I, look, as far as, yeah, I think that that model's really worth looking at. Right, um, but that's, but different know, from, that's different from state ownership. I mean, ultimately, I do think that there are, like, I think Amazon needs to be completely state-owned. I think Google needs to be nationalized. And I think there's other things, again, as part of that same process that just can't exist. Right. Amazon, like frictionless delivery is a disaster for the environment and for workers. At some point, you're going to need to reintroduce the idea to people. You're going to need to wait a couple extra days for your packages. Right. <laughs> like, you know, and also that, you know, yeah. And, so and, what, and what is state ownership? What is what is state ownership? It, you know, in the real world, in America, we live in America. Bernie gets elected. 
we haven't even touched on that. We don't have time. But let's say Bernie gets elected, and they're actually teaching. Let me just take a side trip here. How to organize in high schools. You know, they teach. If you have kids, they they always teach, you know, business. How to start a business. How to start a lemonade stand. They don't teach the kids how to organize the lemonade stand. And I'd be, you know, I'd be curious to even ask the Democrats, do you believe in unions? Do you believe in organizing? You're so busy criticizing the Texas Board of Education for creating textbooks that offer creationism. What about uh, textbooks that teach all kids how to organize? Would you support that? That's a, that's a question that's that's never asked. I I, I would sus- oh. go ahead. No, I mean, yeah, that's such a great idea. Yeah, and, but- I, and I do think you know ultimately in in because I I do have to go on a couple. Of I, minutes, know, I know, I know, I know. I do I do think that you know the whole. Yeah, I mean, this is a decade. This is one of the reasons why when you have on Milton Alamadi or Richard Wolf or Harvey K, and you just get deep into various histories or Adolf Reed, you know, that that I'm very history focused because I do think that part of the reason that we there's so much is because we just have no context for understanding it. And but what so, does state ownership look like in the United States? I know you you got to go do the majority report, but what does state ownership look like? We bailed out the airlines, and some people are saying we should nationalize the airlines. So does that mean we have Senate hearings to determine corporate policy? I mean, we're voting as a... I mean, how do you see... I mean, I'm all for owning the banks. I thought we should well, have... I would, what I would probably do is what I would probably do off the top of my head with some form of this is coming into government ownership and then we are devolving power essentially to, you know, the relevant unions to sort of take command of it. That that would be something that I would... Worker-owned. Yeah, that basically how can we facilitate... And there was... You know, a lot of process like this in Sweden with things like the Meidner plan. Can we take government ownership as a facilitation point to generate worker-owned companies and and cooperatives? Um, and you know, maybe honestly, in other situations, you know, might people might want to not even take that on. They might want to just say, "Hey, I don't want to govern this. I just want to have a great salary and benefits that are guaranteed for life." Uh, and we could still have a more kind of traditional management structure, but I want to make a real wage and always have my benefits. And, you know, the government could maybe mandate that. So, you know, I don't, I don't know all the answers, but. And, and you would still, you would still so. issue shares. You could still trade, sure. you could still trade it on the market and the. Pen- I guess. I don't know. You know, I feel like this is the other thing too that I just feel like, you know, it's like, who knows? You know, we gotta. We are so far from where we need to be. Like, I, I tweeted the other day that we need a rent suspension. It's fucking obvious. Well, you, guy, you talk about you know, a state senator in New York who's introduced legislation. Yeah, Mike Giannaris has actually introduced something. But this was last week when it wasn't even on the map. And this guy immediately goes, well, I hope that uh, there's a provision <laughs> to protect 
small-scale uh, landlords who will be very hit by this. And I was just like, dude, you know, like, what the fuck? Like, this kind of nerdy nonsense. Like, you know what? If there is a great, amazing bill, a beautiful bill for a national rent suspension followed by rent control, followed by a massive production of public housing, okay, I have no doubt that somebody can write in a nice, nifty little provision that will protect the grandma who rents out her basement. I have no doubt we can do that. But we don't, we are so far, you know, it's like some of these questions, I mean, look, they're important. And again, I think a guy like Matt Brunick does an amazing job of really writing policy. Like, what would this actually look like? And that is really important. But sometimes it's like, you know, guys, when we get into the nitty gritty of this stuff, it's like, it's, it reminds me of like a morbidly obese man being like, well, you know, if I trained, my concern is that there's people who go into the Olympics and their joints get hurt from overtraining. So I just want to make sure when I'm on this, you know, this regimen that I don't hurt myself. It's like, hey, you know what? Let, let's start with taking some walks. <laughs> drinking some water, like let's let's introduce some basic sanity into the system, right? And then we could figure that out. Okay, but, I, but I, listen, I know you have to go. I love you. I, you have. I love you. You too. are. You are. I mean, I can't. Anyway, let me let me just wrap this up, and you get always you get the last word. You know, I've been my children in order. To, for me to have my children in my life, I have to turn as far to the left or they'll just walk away from me. So I am trying to be a leftist. I really am. I'm a boomer and I'm really trying. Uh, one of the things I say when I'm around my kids and their friends is, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? And it's the hardest question for them to answer. I said, you know, you're up against capitalists. You're up against the intellectual dark web. They know what they want. And you pointed it out. They're neo-authoritarians. What do you want? What do you want? What do you envision? What are you fighting for? I want democracy in all areas of life. Exactly. I want people to have as much command individually as well as collectively over their fates and well-being as possible. And attached to that, I want to completely get rid of all of the utterly preventable suffering that we could take care of in an instant. Every single human being can have great housing and health care. Zero problem. It's not a technical challenge. It's a pure distributional one. And I want people to have public parks and time to enjoy themselves and be fully, fully, you know, engaged in life. And so- then after that... You know, then that's it. Then people can figure it out. I, I don't think we're not going to live in a utopia. There will be all sorts of problems. Right. But, uh, expand democracy, eliminate preventable suffering. Exactly. You can do it in a week. Right. And that's why I'm a Naderite and not a Marxist. The answer is democracy. The answer no, is. No, but Marx was about democracy. And we just explained that. Yes. That arrangement that you're looking for is tenable in today's world. And democracy in all areas includes the workplace and business. And that's what, you know, Richard Wolf, as an example, is talking about or Bill Fletcher Jr. with the global African worker. So look, I. Well, it's a framing. You know, it is a framing. I know you have to go, but you're getting me yeah. worked up. 
it's it's how you sell this to the to the Americans. You can sell democracy. You can sell democracy. democracy. You can't I sell Marxism. Democracy, but you also and how about and post capitalism? Because it does have to be post capitalist. We can't feed this bullshit anymore. It's killing us. Okay. Michael Brooks is the host of the Michael Brooks Show. His new book is Against the Web, a cosmopolitan answer to the new right. Watch the Michael Brooks Show on YouTube every Tuesday night. Go to his Patreon account and sign up. How do people support you on Patreon? They go to patreon.com slash TMBS. And for $8 a month, they get an over two-hour-long public show. They get a Sunday show, which is a deep dive into illicit histories. We cover a lot of uh, international stuff. There's histories from Iran, from Jamaica, from Africa. There's introductions to all sorts of theorists, but also a lot of practical tools uh, for activism. And then we have a post game, which is another couple hours. It's really fun. Uh, and we're also, you know, during the quarantine time, we're doing a ton of extra content both on the YouTube channel and for patrons. So go to, you know, obviously if you can, it's a tough time and we're giving, you know, we give people deals always, but for $8 a month, if you can afford it, you get absolutely everything. For 21 and above a month, we do Skype calls. We do a whole bunch of other stuff. And it's, you know, if you can, a lot of people do that because it's another way to really support the growth of the show. Patreon.com slash TMBS. Subscribe to the Michael Brooks Show YouTube channel or on iTunes or Stitcher. And uh, that's it. I love you, buddy. Stay on the line for one quick second. Say hello to Sam for me. Hang on for one quick second. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Today, the doctor we all know is Jay. He's calling in from far away. You'll want to hear what he will say. Some good advice he will relay. Make all your troubles go away. Doctor Jay Sute is here to stay. He tells his jokes cut. He's a comedian. He fixes children's, the sick and needy ones. I'm Doctor Jay Day, pediatrician. Doctor Jay is in the house. Let us now go to Vernon, Connecticut, where the hardest working pediatrician in comedy is standing by, Doctor Jay Sute. Hello there, Doctor Jay. How are you, sir? It's good to hear your voice. How am I doing? I'm, I'm, you know. In my uh, apartment, doing the show, can't go anywhere. I'm in Manhattan. We are the epicenter of this crisis, and we're dealing with an entire city that's locked down and an entire country that is absolutely terrified, staring into the abyss and uh, right. wondering what uh, what the future holds. How are things yeah. in Connecticut? How are you? Well, things are, uh, you know, not as good as they have been, but they're good. 
Uh, I unfortunately developed a cancer about a month ago, and uh, that is uh, kind of taken up the time. So uh, kind of out of the blue, but kind of, you know, not unexpected because I took such great care of myself. So, no, really, this has nothing to do with that. This was just a weirdo thing, so. Right. But yes, so I have a little bit of a, of a cancer thing going on that's uh, not going to get better. And uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, it's uh, it's sad, but it's also a relief that it doesn't have a whole lot of suffering. So right. So yeah, we we had talked last time you did the show. You were complaining about. Your memory, you're a pediatrician, a working right. pediatrician. Right. You're, you're in your early fifties. You're at the height of your powers. Oh, have, you, have you hit your sixties? I'm 65. Oh, I yeah. only, for some, Six, I'm 50. Yeah, I just turned 50 ticks. I, I forget the dates since the, the, the surgery, I, the, the dates, I get confused on the right. dates, but. Yeah, you're in you're, but, you're uh, in your fifties, right? Fifty three, fifty three, fifty three, and uh, it happened very quickly. And you wanted, yeah, with, with, within the last uh, month and a half, and, went from uh, having everything to having a tumor and not even be able to remember my comedy act, which right. is tragedy, the tragedy for a comedian. Right, <laughs> right, right. So forget it, your comedy act. That you've honed over your whole life, right? It's gone, right? So, uh, and and where is the tumor? Uh, had had one um, about uh, one one point three centimeters that they had to kind of cut, stop, and then there's another tumor there that they de- they never got to resect because it bled too much at the beginning to right to help it, and then. By the time it got healed again, it had already it had already uh, spread. So, really, wasn't much to to do except uh, you know close things up and uh, hope for the best. Right. So that's right. what it is. And it's sick, but you know I have great kids. I love my girlfriend, my sister. I have the best supports, and uh, you know hopefully I can at least get one spring training game out of Yankee Stadium before. Uh, it all set. It all, it all closes. Right, right. So, and it's a tumor in your brain. Yeah, yeah. It started yeah. started uh, about six weeks ago, or six weeks ago. Yeah, somewhere in there. So I started losing my comedy skills. That's the weirdest thing. Because I stopped. I couldn't tell jokes anymore. It's the weirdest thing. Well, people but, who've seen your act uh, beg to they differ. They have to. That's true. People, I think people have seen your echo losing. They can his, understand my side, yeah. Losing your comedy <laughs> skills. Did, did this man ever? Uh, so we we had talked. So you and I had, have been talking, and I love right. you, and we and this is not. Uh, uh, so we, we had said, you know, do I? How do we do this? Because you, you, there's some things you want to say, and yeah. and, uh, and you know, I'd like you to. Keep doing the show until you. Can, I would love to. Yeah, until you can no longer. To, yeah, and we kind of toyed with how to do this. Like, uh, maybe you start telling the audience what's going on, and 
And I say, uh, you know, can you hold the phone? You know, you're popping your piece. I thought I'd do. You're popping we, your piece. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, you're, fact, you're, yeah. you're telling me this, this story, and I thought it would be funny if I'm just fixating on the sound quality. I thought of that. <laughs> you that, laughed. That, that yeah. That was funny. Yeah. That just makes me laugh. Yeah. And then I thought of doing this. Hang on for one second. This. You you thought that was funny. Did you do that anytime? Yeah, yeah. It's fun. And Anne has been great, too. She's got a great sense of humor. You know, I think my my kids and and, uh, my sister and my girlfriend are great supports and they have good senses of humor. And we're going to try to do this with a little bit of sense of humor and not too to be, be too sad about things yeah. because it's, it's not one of those things that you can really be sad about. It happened really fast, really quick, and out of the blue with, you know, I mean, I, I would have I would have bet the farm that I would have had a heart attack or something, but right. cancer did not seem like it was going to be the, the, the thing that, that took me down. So right. Right. weird, just weird. Yeah, you, you know, I met you, I don't know, three years ago, and... You're a beloved figure in Connecticut. You're a pediatrician who does comedy, and you're a beautiful soul. You're a beautiful person who, you're. you know, I, being a pediatrician uh, in the abstract sounds like, oh, what a delightful job. And it is a delightful job yeah. until it's not. There, there are a couple right. of cases that you really don't talk about. You never talked right about the difficult cases but yeah. you you could tell that you were haunted by some of the things you saw and you dealt with it by doing comedy and it was impl- yeah. the, the the beautiful thing that i love about your comedy is your pediatrician you go on stage and you talk about how much you know you hate you don't hate the kids but the parent you complain about the kids you complain about right. the parents and you always kept it light and the comics know, without you ever talking about it, that there's right. a side to being a pediatrician that people shouldn't really have to know about. Is that a fair statement? True. Yeah. True. Yeah. I had a good, a good cry. Good cry with Joe List today. I haven't talked to him since it all happened a couple of weeks ago. I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said. Guy. I'm sorry. Uh, Joe Joe List, comedian Joe right. List. Yeah. I enjoy. It. Quite a bit, and uh, today I finally got a chance to talk to him about what was going on. Yeah, that felt good to to get that out of my my system because he's he's a great guy and funny guy and someone that I uh, you know would, would would call a friend as well. So yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's it's hard to 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 deal with that. But like I said, I do have good friends, and uh, I've been fortunate throughout my career as a pediatrician and a comedian to have met really interesting people who you know are people that i look up to so i'm i'm very lucky in that way yeah what did doing stand-up do for you what what did because you 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 let me be me i'm sorry it let me be me yeah that was the one thing i i had that no one else had that i had and uh while i was clinging on to it as much as I could. It uh, it wasn't working the last month and a half, two months. I just couldn't 
couldn't string a, a joke together. The weirdest, weirdest thing and something I've done my entire life that I've never even thought twice about telling a joke. Yeah. I, just, I have I to. I, I just have to say, uh, you never could string a joke together. But yeah, I, just, I feel obligated to just say that. Yeah, uh, it's, it's in, in pure disclosure. Pure disclosure now. Yeah. Yeah. I just. I, I figure now <laughs> I should. Tell. And and so you would work all day as a pediatrician, and then right. and then a couple nights a week you'd go out to the comedy clubs up in Connecticut and you'd yep. do benefits. Yep. And, and make people laugh. Yep. That's what I did, and I enjoyed it. Do you think you would have done comedy if you weren't a pediatrician, if you weren't a doctor? I, I don't know if I ever would have had the nerves to to give it up all for for that. You know what I mean? I just it's a it's a something I would have loved to have done, but just I didn't have the stamina to to do what has to be done to do it the way you're supposed to do it with like the guys who work work hard like yourself yeah you know so it's not easy but how do you certainly feel like i had lots of energy to be able to do this for the the, you know the time that i did it and then just all of a sudden just poof gone yeah yeah you know i always take laughter for granted i mean i'm always laughing i surround myself with people who are funny uh, yeah. In our house growing up, it, you know, you had to be funny. And, you know, with my kids, they my kids had to be funny. I would when they were growing up, I would give them right. no, notes on their jokes. Everything has to be funny. <laughs> I have to laugh. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, and so when people say it's important to laugh, it makes you feel good. I make the jerking off motion because I, I don't I, I'm just so accustomed to laughing all the time. Right. Yeah. Uh, why is it important to laugh? Because you you genuinely love comedy and comedians. Yeah. Why is it? Know. Why is it important to why? laugh? Why? Who knows? Who knows? I have no idea. But I just know that it's something that always made me feel good as a kid, and uh, I was able to to, to do it at a, a high high level of of uh, uh, not just the comedy, but. Everything, you know, mm-hmm. it, was, it, was a, it was a good, good, good combination for what my skill sets were. What's the biggest laugh you got? What's the biggest laugh you ever got with one of the kids that you were treating? Oh, I can't. I don't even know. I, I do. I do love the, the 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 new one with my daughter and her son-in-law uh, having the. The kid and uh, the fact that uh, he he he's uh, also the patient of my 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 three my 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 son-in-law plus his two uh, brothers, his brothers three brothers yeah and and that I, I grew up as their doctor too and uh, uh, that that was kind of a, a cool thing to happen and need to have that as a, a, you know my my wedding ceremony and. My daughter giving her away and doing the ceremony that was that would meant everything and then everything went downhill after that so <laughs> it was it worked out perfectly you know i I was able to get through the whole wedding thing without 
screwing anything up and have it be perfect. And right. then it started to get screwed up after that where I couldn't remember stuff as well. But right. up until that day, everything was perfect. So, right. so, so, so your, your son-in-law, your new son-in-law was when he was a baby was one of your patients and his brothers, yeah. his two brothers his were, brothers. Yeah. So, so you were, you, you saw, uh, his, uh, Jules before your daughter did. I did. Yes, I did. I did. <laughs> Not as impressive as you would think, but still nice. <laughs> uh, okay. I didn't have much to offer with. All I know is the day that catheter came out, I knew I wasn't putting another catheter back in a month ago. That, that Once that came out, I was done with my catheter business. Oh, you, yeah, yeah. That hurt like hell. And yeah. honestly, if there was no chance I was going to feel better after that, there's no way I would ever put myself through it again. It was horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And you miss two days. You have two days where you're in an ether world that you don't know what's going on until they're yanking a catheter out of your tubes. So it's not fun. And how do you spend your day? I would assume you're quarantined. Yeah, well, you know, I... I have doctor's appointments every day. It seems I have somebody coming in, checking my blood pressure, something. Yeah, got to earn their keep, I guess. Right, right. <laughs> but you know, I, I I feel fine. So as long as I feel fine, I want to keep talking and uh, you know, be be my friends. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's not. It, it, I don't feel anything other than tiredness. You know, I get tired. That's well, that's because you're talking to and me. I, well, that's that, the purpose well, of this show is to put people to sleep. Yeah. Today was a tough one, though. Today was telling my people at the office that I, I wasn't going to come back to work um, and be done with the pediatric part of my life. So it was, it was a tough, a tough day yeah. to, to deal with that. So, but I'm doing the right thing. I know I'm doing it right by my kids and uh, it sucks, but it is what it is. And, Lots of suck happens in life, so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it's hard to believe that I've made it 23 years since my mom passed away. I haven't lost any family members, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's just weird that that would, 22 years later, would be my mom dying for the, you know, other than old age and stuff like that. It's weird, just very strange. But, but also a nice relief knowing that I don't have to worry about this haunting up and, and, and just, you know, sneaking up on me, it's, it is what it is, and it'll be something that will be reasonable and not something that's going to be torturous to anybody, which is what I'm most important about. What would you like people to remember you for? What is the, what are the things? What was, I don't know. I don't know that I've gotten to that point yet, really. I mean, yeah. I just would like to, you know, I'd like to enjoy another Yankee game, really, to be honest with you, with, without having it be a problem. I would like to be able to go and enjoy a, a New York Yankees game before it all happens, that's all. Yeah. yeah. And I have good friends that will get it done for me when the time comes, but, you know, it's only so much time, so. Yeah. I don't need to be morose, though, you know. It's, I, I'm, I'm not a sad person. I just, today was a sad day because I kind of had a say, I don't, I can't be a doctor anymore. And uh, that the skill 
isn't there anymore. And that that's just, uh, you know, it's an end of an era. Yeah. And are it's you... All I ever, it's all I ever did. It's all I ever did. Pizza making and pediatrics. It's all I've done. Pizza making and pediatrics. So you were dealing sometimes a baby in the oven and sometimes it was yep. just... Absolutely. Something else in the oven. That's right. I don't know. My joke writing ability, whatever you've got, I think it's catching because that wasn't funny. Yeah. No, it's, some, it's sometimes hit or miss, you know. What are you going to do? You know, and, and like I said, I try to be upbeat on everything, but like this afternoon when I got off the phone with my doctor this afternoon and kind of decided this is it and we got to get the announcement going out to the office and and everything and then once i did that then it was pretty much done so right right but, but you're gonna keep do, you're doing the show it. you're gonna keep every doing the show every until, week i'll do it I'll, yeah i'll do the show every week if you want uh, absolutely and it doesn't have to be long it could be quick whatever whatever works i i'm yeah. happy to, to talk you need i talk i talk all right uh hang on. i got i got all good weed now too so that's good because that's all come through you got some good weed? Most importantly. Yeah, that's right. I can, I can at least get that going for me, so that's good. And, and what does you the know. weed do for you? Oh, I just had a cough. So, I'm sorry? All right. No, she, I saw she just had another phone call. Actually. Okay, we'll we'll wrap it up, and then we'll, we'll talk uh, for... Next uh, week sometime. Yeah, for Monday's show. Um, okay. For Tuesday's show. Great. Uh, I love yep. you. My my listeners love you, and we're gonna we're gonna keep uh, doing this, right? Sounds perfect. Okay. Yeah. I, I that's all. That's the only thing I really care. You know, is uh, my friends and uh, Feldman podcast, of course. So. Yeah, yeah. We love you, Doctor J. We do love you too, buddy. You are you I are one of the most. Uh, I think you are. Next to Jeffrey Epstein, I think you are the second most <laughs> beloved person among my listeners. Wow, that is that is quite quite a testimonial. That's great. I like that a lot. I love Hi, Rodney. Hi, Rodney. <laughs> I will talk to you next. Uh, how's week. How's Rodney? Your dog? Oh, he's good. He's sitting right next to me now, right right uh, here. Uh, and uh, Sammy, my, my Sammy, my my sister, Stace has been here almost every day. She's uh, taking a, a day off tomorrow, so she needs to go break. But uh, Anna's been great. My kids have been great. And just couldn't ask for better people to be my support. So. Yeah. Well, you are, you are loved. You are. Uh, I, I, I do feel that. I do that. I, I, I got a, I got a rough, rough uh, twi twist of fate here, but. Yeah, you know, I have good people with me. That's, right. that's what. Uh, let me just say one more thing. Sure. You're not alone, so put your penis yep. back in your pants. Okay. Well, thank you for reminding me. Again. <laughs> it just comes out every time. I, every chance I get, it comes out. So I appreciate that reminder. It's a subtle reminder, but it's there. I love you. I love you. <laughs> I, I love, love you. you. I really love you, and my listeners love you. And uh, uh we'll, ta my yeah. we'll talk more fun stuff once uh, once I get that out of my system. Okay. Stay on the line for one quick second, yep. Dr. J. Sute. 
You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Let us now go back to Kenny Bunk, Maine, where Peabody, an Emmy Award-winning comedy writer, Jim Earl, is standing by. Jim, you're in Maine. I understand that Governor Janet Mills is asking out-of-state visitors to not come to Maine, to stop bringing their their disease with them. Is really? I thought it was just it's so inconsistent here in Kennebunk. They're saying, "Hey, welcome." Welcome out of towners, but remember to quarantine yourself or or stay at home for 14 days before you start infecting everybody. Yeah, and and hoarding uh, supplies and groceries and taking them back to your walk-in pantries and your big freezers and uh, all that. And yeah, that's pretty. Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, and you're still selling those chloroquine phosphate breath mints, I believe, right? With their anti-malarial properties to people. Well, yeah, our, our fish died, so we have to uh, yeah. got to find some way to unload all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Now, Jim Earl, you uh, you drove cross country. How did you go from California to Maine? How did you end up in Maine, and when did you try? I took I took a JetBlue flight from LAX on March tenth. Mm. All the way to Boston. Yeah. It was half, half full. Uh, that's why I see, that's why I look at life. The plane was half full with disease, not half empty. <laughs> <laughs> you have a criticism of last Tuesday's show. I, I praised Andrew Cuomo. There is talk. I've heard, I can't quote the person. Who told me this? But this is a person who is very high up in the upper echelons of the Democratic Party. They are saying that Joe Biden is going to be stepping aside and that they will nominate Andrew Cuomo. He will be the Democratic nominee since he is becoming America's mayor. Rudy Giuliani was America's mayor after 9-11 and Governor yeah. Andrew Cuomo is now America's mayor. That really worked out for the country and Rudy Giuliani. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, we don't have a president right now. Is no, that a fair did we, have, did we Did we have a president when Obama was uh, president? Okay. Or did we, have, did we have Wall Street in his, uh, his cabinet full of uh, Citibank cronies? In times of national crisis, Jim Earl, some of yes. us, some of us decide to rally around the flag and <laughs> keep calm, remain stupid. Isn't that the old expression during World War II? Keep calm, remain stupid? I think it was uh, loose lips gives you the shits. <laughs> <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of dysentery. 
in uh, World War II. You know, you know, there's something about disease that I've, I looked up. Yeah. That uh, more more people die of disease, soldiers die of disease during wars than they do at the actual war. I, I also read that, I don't know if this is true, but I something like car accidents, like in World War II, I, I, and I'm, I, maybe I dreamt this, but more American soldiers died from car accidents than from bullets. That can't be true, right? I don't. I don't. I don't think that's true, unless they had the the Pinto back then. Yes, there was a good idea by Ford, right? They name a car after a bean, and then they wonder why the rear end explodes. <laughs> ah, it's a classic joke. Yeah, I. Yeah, I pulled that yeah. one. That was one of my one of my first jokes as a stand up comedian, and <laughs> all of a sudden the joke stopped working, and I realized that nobody remembered that the Pinto's rear end used to explode. Yeah, and just like they don't remember that the uh, Democratic Party's rear end exploded many times in the past. This is that's what brand loyalty gets you. I'm going to keep on buying a Ford. Yeah, even though their quality, you know, kind of went down the tubes in the mid 50s. But so let's keep on going with the Democratic Party, even though they they turned into a Pinto decades ago. Well, but, you know, we're relying on Ford to build our ventilators and you're not going to turn down a ventilator, even though it's made by Ford in a time of crisis. So you're not going to turn down the Democratic Party in a time of crisis, are you? You're going to go with Andrew Cuomo for president. No. I would never vote for him. I will never vote for Andrew Cuomo, nor will I vote for Joe Biden. It's the same difference. Cuomo, I don't know why people are lionizing this piece of shit, but he he is he the re, only reason he's not receiving federal federal funding that the other states are is because he's cutting Medicaid during a pa- pandemic. And he's trashing six billion dollars in federal aid. As a result, he's, he's cutting, cut. He's cut. Yeah, he's, he's. Yeah, he's cut. Yeah, and he's cut indigent care services by one hundred fifty-seven million dollars, and city hospital reimbursements by one hundred eighty-six million dollars. So he's cutting the Medicaid budget during in the middle of a pandemic. Plus, he's got. Prisons full of of infected people. Rikers Island. We'll get to that in a second. Let let me just let me just back up what you just said, because it happens to be true. This is from the New York Post, which you know, for all intents and purposes, that you you can read the New York New York Post, and it's somewhat reliable when it's not the editorial page. A panel appointed by Governor Andrew Cuomo backed a plan that would slash Medicaid spending to New York hospitals by almost $400 million as the facilities scramble to address the coronavirus epidemic. The Medicaid yeah. redesign team. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the, as a result, this is all part, whatever his motivations are, well, he's a typical austerity Democrat who's obsessed with balancing the budget at the expense 
of the most vulnerable in his state, and those are Medicare and Medicaid recipients. It's typical. Yeah. And that's that's what Barack Obama tried to do with uh, – did, and then – tried to do even more by getting with his grand bargain he and joe biden's grand bargain offer to republicans to uh, cut social security yeah yeah cuomo set up this commission in january and demanded they come up with 2.5 billion dollars in savings because medicaid is leaving a four billion dollar hole in the state's annual budget yeah. Yeah. What did he do? You know, who gives a shit? You know, money is an illusion. We, have, we haven't been on the gold standard since FDR got rid of it. Thank goodness. All you have to do is print up more money. Print it up. Aren't you afraid of inflation? Yeah, if you print too much of it. But that's never happened. When does that ever happen? Except in, in Germany after World War One, And that was for different reasons. What about the, what about the seventies? Whip inflation now. <laughs> That's, uh, whip inflation now is reminiscent of uh, what, what? What did Pence unveil? Beat the pandemic in fifteen days. Isn't that the White House's plan to to stop it dead in its track in fifteen days? And it's going to work. This two week uh, so called lockdown is going to change everything. I have faith. In our government. All right. So, so we've been talking about ICE detention centers being a Petri dish for the coronavirus. A vector, right. And it is well within the governor of New York's authority to release nonviolent offenders. Somebody like Michael Cohen, who has asked to be released from prison. This was Donald Trump's lawyer and right. a judge said, nope, you have to stay in in prison. Do you th- think somebody like Michael Cohen should be released from prison? No, I think he should be held as an example, but everybody else should leave, <laughs> I think. <laughs> you know, I have my standards. What, what about Harvey Weinstein? Do you think he should be released from prison? I, I think- like the way you say, I like the way, way you pronounce his name correctly. Everybody says Weinstein. It's Weinstein. Yeah. Listen, yeah. Yeah. Well, he's, you know, I, I'm in favor. He actually, Rikers is full of 85% of the population of Rikers Island, 5,000 people. 85% of them are, have not been found guilty. And the, and the remaining percentages are there for petty theft. This is the so, New York City jail. Yes. And many people call it an insane asylum. Many people believe that this is where the homeless end up, this is where the drug addicts end up, this is where they put people who need psychiatric help instead of justice. Yes, and the employees called a a, a, a torture chamber, basically. And there's 70, 21 inmates have been tested positive for uh, COVID-19 and 17 employees as well. And they're... You know, they're lying down right next to each other. There's no separation. It's this is a literal Petri dish. And so are every one of our prisons. Right. And nobody ever talks about our what? How many bases do we have around the the world? One hundred and eighty bases with uh, 
we have like 3.2 million active uh, military personnel uh, around the world mm-hmm. in closed quarters. Uh, what's going to happen when when that gets out of control with them? I mean, this is this is how societies break down. This is if we have no longer have anybody in control, even of the horrible bad things that they control. Then yeah. what does that mean? Well, in ancient Athens, ancient yeah. Athens, their democracy broke down because they overextended themselves. They became imperialist powers. They had multiple wars around ancient Greece. And uh, then suddenly they found themselves surrounded and um, in a long extended war with Sparta and then disease struck and a natural disaster. And we've had natural disasters like drought. And and they were enveloped with a plague like we are now. And that broke down, that destroyed the democracy and destroyed Greek life uh, forever, basically. That was the end of Greek society. People were dropping dead in the streets, in the sacred temples, which was sacrilegious. People were leaving bodies in the streets and the temples. And this was about 40 or 50 years after Athens became the most powerful and richest place on earth uh, up until modern times, practically. They had beat the Persians. They had the greatest storehouse of wealth in history. And uh, they built the Acropolis, all those beautiful buildings, the Parthenon, uh, from their spoils after conquering the Persians and the surrounding Greek uh, mainland and uh, Asia Minor and uh, West Asia, Turkey and those areas. And they became imperialists, not colonialists, but imperialists like like we have. And they tried to export their democracy everywhere by force. And people started hating them because of it. They engendered universal hatred from the rest of the known Western Greek world. Not unlike America. So you're saying, so, you're, so basically you're saying buy gold. <laughs> buy gold, that- yes. <laughs> buy, buy gold. Uh, collect your silver. Yeah. All right. Uh, I wanted to ask you about somebody else who was hated that uh, seems to be getting a lot of attention in a second. But uh, there is some good news. Let's let's go. Uh, you know, let's go. You, you said the JetBlue flight was half empty, right? Or half? Yes. Flight. Yeah, and it was very clean. It was very clean too. There was a lot of they took a. I noticed a lot of uh, cleaning going on. Yeah. Okay. So uh, one third of the world is on lockdown. That's that's good news, right? I guess so. Yeah. Right. One third of the glass is locked down. Yeah. That's good. Well, in El Sa- you know, other countries are doing the right thing. You know, El Salvador, you know what this bill, the stimulus bill that the, the Senate and the White House just agreed to, which the House will probably never agree to. But, you know, it gives two trillion dollars to big business and uh, Americans spend like almost that much on food every year. Mm-hmm. And all they're giving is a twelve hundred dollar check 
to most people, and the rest goes to big business. In other countries like El Salvador, what they're doing, they're suspending utility, rent, and house payments for three months. We're not doing that. They're they're giving they're 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 stimulating the economy directly from the source from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. We're not doing that. We're giving it to we're giving six trillion dollars basically when it's all over with to Wall Street. Now you believe Who, in stimulating from the bottom up? Is that correct? I believe in stimulating from the from the bottom. Yes, or in the bottom. <laughs> okay, just wanted. Uh, <laughs> yes. All right. You know, I have always believed that. Dave. Okay. Well, let's now turn to uh, tyrants. There's somebody you wanted to talk about. You said there's a tyrant out there who's being exposed, and uh, on Twitter, and I'm always for that. We we follow politics, <laughs> and sometimes we focus too much on you know, the coronavirus, but there's still there are still fascist dictators in the world who need to be called out. And you say that Twitter is exposing a, a dictator, a horrible human being. Who, who is that? Oh, Ellen. Ellen. I, I don't. Who, Ellen is the leader of what nation? Uh, well, uh, CBS. Is that where she broadcasts from? You talking about Ellen DeGeneres? Yes. No, no. You said you you said to me that there's been like a, a Twitter revolution. Remember in Iran ten years ago there was a Twitter revolution, and that 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 it's igniting across the world, and, and a dictator is falling, a fascist regime is crumbling uh, because of yeah. Twitter. And I said, this sounds exciting. Freedom rings. This reminds me of Tahrir Square, uh, where people united to topple Mubarak. Right. And you said, this is like Tiananmen too. This is a, is it? Wait, wait, but you said Ellen DeGeneres. You you, you said Ellen DeGeneres. I'm talking, what does that have to, what does Ellen DeGeneres have to do with this? Well, she's like a big tank, and people are just getting in the front of her. Oh, come on, Jim. Let's you know? what, what, what's going on? What what happened with Ellen? Well, some guy, some guy who used to work for her, I guess, on Twitter, uh, said that, uh, "Hey, I'll I'll match. Well, if for every uh, account of a bad experience with uh, Ellen DeGeneres, who was." mean and hateful, I will give uh, $2 or, or whatever to the L.A. food bank. And before he knew it, he was inundated with <laughs> stories. <laughs> the poor guy. How much does he have to give now to the food bank? That's terrible. Well, I don't know. I would think it would be thousands. But maybe, I, think, <laughs> it's, I think it's doubling exponentially like the coronavirus every two days. Well, let me get this straight. You're saying that a former employee of Ellen DeGeneres, who I believe is the queen of nice? But apparently not. Well, no. I mean, she is the queen of nice. She tells people to be kind to one another, kind of the way Rosie. Remember Rosie O'Donnell had a daytime talk show? Yeah. And yeah. she was the queen of nice, right? 
It's weird how some people just don't turn out to match their public personas. Well, are you telling me that Ellen DeGeneres is not nice to the people who work for her? I can't believe she dances on her show and she's funny and sweet and kind. Well, what, what, her know, employees are coming forward and, and they're saying that John Stewart is anti-union. I can't believe that 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 people who once worked for Ellen DeGeneres are are now coming forward on Twitter and saying mm-hmm. that John Stewart is anti-union. Am I? I'm confusing. Who are we talking about? Well, kind of both, I guess. There certainly are. I get your point. There are a lot of ungrateful people out there. Okay, so what 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 are we discovering about Ellen DeGeneres on Twitter? Well, uh, she's anti-union. She uh, fired a head writer for uh, ref- because she refused to cross a picket line Karen during Mil- the writer. K- Karen Kilgareth. Yes. Yeah, we yes. know her. You know her? Sure. She didn't want to work during the strike, so Ellen fired her. Yeah. But that's okay. Then then what's wrong with that? Well, th- that's I think that's against labor law, but nobody ever enforces that. So, you know. Do you have any other tweets that? Yeah, well, there's uh, apparently uh, Ellen would keeps a big bowl of chewing gum outside her office and requires everybody to start chewing on it before they go into her office to be around her because she doesn't like the smell of anybody. (laughs) This is what we learned on Twitter. Yes. And then there's the time when she uh, received the wrong order at a restaurant and threw a plate of fish at a waiter's face or a waitress's face. Mm. Like it makes any difference, but yeah. You know, she's just picky. That's not nice. No, it's not nice. I mean, the waiter should have brought her the right food. Yes. That's what I was saying. It's not nice to mess up an order. Right. You know? You know, the people who entertain us and make our lives better every day have a big responsibility. And, And when they go to a restaurant, they deserve to be treated nicely. Yes. And, and with respect. With respect. Any other uh, interesting examples of Ellen uh, Ellen being abused? I mean, how dare her employees go into her office without chewing gum to cover up their fetid breath? Or whatever it is, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, you're not supposed to talk to her. Why? Uh, she has a talk show. She talks enough. Why would anybody think that they but there's a limited supply of talk and and she has to conserve her talk for her talk show how dare anybody waste her talk by talking to her well it's not just talk you're not supposed to make eye contact either of course not that robs her of her soul everybody knows that if you look too deeply into somebody's eyes you suck the soul out of them it's like it's like uh you know, if you take a picture of someone, you you take their soul. Exactly, exactly. Well, that doesn't seem so. What what is it? Is this a this guy is giving two dollars to the food bank for every example of abuse that has been heaped upon Ellen? 
Yes, I forget the exact amount, but it was it was something like that. There, you see, this is great. Once again, Ellen gives. She gives to the food bank. Sometimes she'll uh, adopt a dog that doesn't match its her drapes, and she'll re, she'll give the dog back to the shelter. Remember that? Oh yes. And you know she did she did a public service by putting that little mom and pop uh, dog adoption uh, business out of business by you know after after she went on the air the next day or the two days later and yeah, cried her this happened eleven years ago this was eleven years ago she she adopted a dog and it didn't match her carpet so she returned it to the shelter. Or wherever she got it from, and right, no, no, she didn't return it. She she gave it to somebody else, which was against the dog agency's rules for some reason. It was something about traumatizing the animal, whatever. Well, no, but don't you think it was more traumatizing to live with Ellen? I think it was very generous on Ellen's part <laughs> to save that dog from Ellen. That was kindness on Ellen's part. Any other you know, any never... other tweets that? Have revealed the 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 scorn heaped upon her by ungrateful minions. Well, uh, I remember. Uh, yeah, somebody wrote that uh, one of her employees came in and told her that the Ninth Army had been pushed back uh, three kilometers by uh, the Russians, and she had that employee sent out of the bunker. And uh, shot in the head. Oh my God! That that sounds so. That now that's unfair that she did that. Well, you know it's uh, it's treason. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You're you're right. You're right. I yeah. Just the image of her having her head writer shot in the head for allowing the Russians to break through the uh, Eastern Front. Right. I mean, uh, even if it was true, yeah. you just don't you just don't say it like that. You know, you got to couch it in yeah. a way with phenobarbital uh, yeah. injections. Right. And and you're and you uh, you've heard that Alan insisted that the Hungarians continue to march Jews onto the trains, even though Ellen should have taken the. The oil that was being used uh, to send that to the, her soldiers on the Eastern Front, but she cared more about the extermination of certain people than she did about her own soldiers. Is that? I, I didn't hear that one, but I, I did hear that uh, she ref- she gave orders not to be strictly not to be woken up, even though she sl- loved to sleep late every morning. Yeah, not to be woken up under any circumstance and. That's how the invasion of Normandy happened. The Germans were caught with their pants down because Ellen likes to sleep late. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe not a good person after all. Well, she's difficult, I guess. Yeah. To be expected. Jim Earl is an Emmy Award, Peabody Award winning comedy writer, and you can follow him on Twitter by going to his handle, Jim Earl 666. Yes, thank you very much. Let's plug your book, Morning Remembrances. Yes, it's a uh, it's an amusing book of uh, 
rewritten obituaries of real personalities who have touched our lives in every way. With a forward by Rachel Maddow, who you have nothing but nice things to say about. And uh, Mark Marin, Who you also have nothing but nice things to say about, right? You've worked well, I, for I, both of them? I, I basically have. I never worked for Rachel. I worked with her. I worked uh, for and with Mark. Right. And, 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 and you're a big fan of the Rachel Maddow show, as I understand it. I think it's a cesspool of uh, Russia Gator, Russia Gator bilge, but which I also kind of have a gripe with uh, Ralph Nader about. But Ralph Nader, what does he have to do with this? Well, he uh, he kind of fell into the Russia Gate nonsense, which is kind of disappointing. I don't. Just what about Mark Marin? Certainly, you 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 love Mark Marin. I think I think it's disgraceful that a man who had Barack Obama in his garage just basically asked him what his favorite color was. Right. And if you had Barack Obama in your garage, you would have shut the door and turned the car on. Correct? Not before asking him to show us his dick. Right. Well, you add that's your that's your signature. That's what you do. You you ask people to like Ellen dances and you say, show me your dick. That's your trade. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> first, I, first, I should say, show us your nuts. Uh huh. Now and show then, me they your dick. Around, then they dance around like a crazy person. <laughs> Before you go, diabetic fury. Tell me about diabetic fury. Oh, that's uh that's Martha Previtt's handle, and she'll tell you about it. Well, hello, David. It's Martha Stewart. Oh, hi, Martha. I understand you, you know Martha Previtt, and Martha Previtt has a, 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 a Twitter account that covers uh, what's up with insulin and how diabetics can find insulin. Is that correct? Well, uh, somewhat sort of like like that. Something like that. But you can follow her at, at diabeticfury.twitter. Maybe, maybe is, is Senator Susan Collins there? Maybe she can explain what diabetic fury is, please. Oh, just a moment, please. Senator. Su Hello, David. It's Senator Susan Collins. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get what a. What do you want? I'm uh, busy. I'm, I'm trying to get a straight answer from Martha Stewart about Diabetic Fury, which was set up by Martha Previtt, and it, wow. it deals with what? What does it deal with? Well, David, diabetes, as you know, I'm a champion of diabetes. Did you know that? You're, you're for diabetes. I'm a champion of diabetes. Yes. I make sure that people pay top dollar for their insulin. Wow, oh, that's very nice of you. And nobody's covered. Mm. Anyway. Yes. So you can follow her rage, her outrage of her, the handling of this terrible crisis of people that can't afford insulin because of people like me, Susan Collins, who keep people the poor and the the people without insurance in this country can't afford insulin. Fuck them all. That's, That's your campaign. Is, is I'm that... Senator Susan Collins, 
And if you can't afford your insulin, that's not my goddamn problem. Get a job. How's that? Excellent. Thank you. And stay away from me and keep your damn outsiders out of our goddamn state. Did you know Maine has only 36 hospitals in our state? No. 36 hospitals in the whole state. We can't afford to have all you carpetbaggers from New York City traveling up here and staying in your big summer homes and your big tax havens, paying uh, income taxes on your summer properties. We need these hospital beds for our poor people that can't afford insulin. So thank you very much, Mr. Feltman. I'm Senator Susan Collins, and make sure you go follow Ms. Martha Previtt on on Twitter at Diabetic Fury. Thank you. Thank you. Stay on the line for one second. Have you called in your backup e-coms now, see if we can get some more brain power in this We got one here. Roger. Fly in, go. Go and go. Never mind, he's straightening up a little bit. Okay. Okay, now let's everybody keep cool. We got the limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good, so if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. 3,000 doctors have called for the release of inmates detained by ICE. They say they're in danger of contracting the coronavirus inside those detention centers. Joining us once again is Pablo Gutierrez. He's an investigative journalist who's been covering this story. Thank you so much. I know how busy you are. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, David. Good morning. Good morning. So we had talked on Tuesday about a detention center in Elizabeth, New Jersey, where one of the guards had contracted the coronavirus. Now we're discovering that they're having to quarantine some of the detainees. Yeah, that's right, actually. That detention center has become the first one in the country where an ICE detainee has tested positive for uh, the coronavirus. He is a 31-year-old male from Mexico, and uh, he has been transferred to a local hospital, Hackensack Hospital, uh, where he's being treated right now. But we don't know the the level of exposure. You know, that's that's something very scary right now because we know how contagious this virus is. There are unsanitary conditions in these detention centers that you've uncovered. Do they have nurses? Do they have doctors on board? They do. They have a... Um, uh, an infirmary, but the units that, that they have, the, the, these uh, infirmaries, they're not equipped. 
to to handle a uh, large number of COVID-19 patients. And that's uh, one point that the CDC made this week when the Department of Homeland Security requested additional funds to quarantine immigrants uh, who have tested positive uh, for the coronavirus. What the CDC said is that basically it's not only a danger to the inmates and to the people that work in these uh, detention centers, but to the overall public. We are seeing now in New York City how our hospitals can hardly cope with, with the numbers of patients that are that are coming to the ER rooms. One of the dangers, uh, David, is that if you have a, a massive outbreak in these detention centers, those people will have to be sent to local hospitals that are already, you know, stretched to the max. So no matter where you are on the spectrum of immigration and immigration reform, this goes way, way beyond that. CoreCivic, the GEO Group, and Management and Training Corporation are the three biggest private prison corporations in America. They're building the detention centers and operating them and owning them for ICE. And last year, some of the leading investment groups, I think J.P. Morgan Chase, decided that they were no longer going to offer financing to these companies, and they set up a trade association called Day One Alliance. That's a a lobbying group, a trade association that represents these uh, private prisons. And these are some of the claims that they make, because I've looked over their website, and they have pictures of smiling detainees, but no hyperlinks to justify what they claim. They claim that they reduce recidivism, that they're protecting taxpayers, that it's cheaper to house these detainees in a public-private partnership because there's so much waste in the government. And then they say they're protecting the detainees from from jails, that, that the detainees are innocent and we don't want to lock them up in county jails and be exposed to run-of-the-mill ruffians. But you tell us that the, the jails that are run by local governments are a huge source of revenue. If you have to choose between a a private prison or a county jail, where are you more likely to see better treatment of the detainees in, in these county jails or in the in the for-profit prisons? So there is no need to have them in a county jail or in a private prison. Right. There is no need to do that. We know and we can look at the stats and we can see that when immigrants come to this country and they're seeking asylum, a large number, an overwhelming number of them, when previous policies were in place where they would check in with immigration and then they would be released to their family members, we see that they are going down to court because they want to fight their cases here in the United States. There is no need to have these people in jail, period. We can have them out in the community. If you want to put an ankle bracelet, you can do that. If they, you want periodic checks with ICE, you can do that. 
that is the solution. The solution is not jail. Right. Whether whether it's private or whether it, this is a, a a county jail. Now, let me give you the numbers, and I hope this just kind of sinks in with everyone that's listening to the to this. <clears throat> right now, in the United States, there are roughly thirty-seven thousand human beings in lockup because of ICE because they were detained by ICE. 37,000, 22,000 of them have no criminal records. And these are publicly available figures from the federal government. 22,000 with no criminal record. And of those that do have a criminal record, it's basically for crossing the border. Right. Yeah, so we're putting non-criminals in a criminal setting, a a, a setting that's designed to house people that have committed crimes. They're not criminals, but we're exposing them to a situation where they potentially become seriously ill and die and Say you don't even care about that point. Right. That right. we just care about ourselves. Right. They are. If something happens in these jails, if there's a massive outbreak, because the potential it's there. It's it, it's a it's a you know it's it's there. The potential is there. Those inmates are going to end up in our local hospitals. They're going to take somebody's ventilator. Because they're going to need it. Right. They're going to take your ventilator when you get sick. Last week, two doctors who are employed by the Department of Homeland Security, they wrote to Congress. They said there's an imminent risk to health and safety of the immigrant detainees and the general public and the people working in the ICE detention facilities. We're hearing a lot about a $2 trillion stimulus package do we know if there's been any discussion in Washington about releasing the detainees or at the very least getting masks to the people who are in these detention centers? Is there any anybody in Congress doing well, anything um, about this? <clears throat> yeah, Hispanic caucus has been vocal about this. I know that there's been multiple letters that have been sent to the acting director of ICE to Homeland Security requesting the release of these prisoners. I know that, for instance, uh, there was a letter signed by 3,000 doctors, David, basically calling this a, a, a public health emergency. There's been so many calls, but nothing has happened. The only thing we know is that DHS has said, we need more money because they're going to get sick and we have to quarantine them. Right, right. That's basically all we know. And there's an inspector general who who is keeping an eye on ICE and these detention camps. Before the pandemic, there was a rash of detainees dying from the flu 
it was treated as the cost of doing business. Did you say there was a mumps? Yeah, there was a mumps outbreak a few months back in Bergen County Jail, which is the first county where we have the first ICE detainee that's tested positive for uh, COVID-19. And the ICE raids, we were told, stopped for the pandemic. But they're continuing, aren't they? They're still locking up. There, there is reduced enforcement. They're still working. And uh, so that enforcement, from what they tell us, is aimed only at people that have a criminal record. But there is enforcement still happening right now. Right. ICE is a union job. If you work for ICE, it's a union job. I would assume that the union is concerned about the pandemic. I would assume that the workers can't be too thrilled about showing up, going to these detention centers. Any pushback from the union? Any solidarity from the ICE union? Well, we know that that some of the some of the ICE officials have tested positive for COVID nineteen. That happened in the Elizabeth Detention Center. The person that tested positive there worked for the medical office there. ICE uh, on its website also has been updating on the number of COVID nineteen cases there, and there's been more personnel from ICE that has been affected by this that uh, have tested positive. And I'm trying to look at the number, but I think there's more than 10 so far. Right. But you would think the union would speak up for their workers. Yeah, absolutely. It's not only a a danger to to the inmates, but it's a a danger to to the officers. We know that ICE and uh, DHS already requested about 45,000 pieces of PPE, mainly those N95 masks. Mm -hmm. I know that there's an uproar with with many organizations, not only uh, on the immigration side, but also on the healthcare side, because you know, they're saying, okay, so you're going to give masks to ICE officers, but we need them in the hospital. We we see what's happening here in New York City where they're wearing trash bags for PPE. Amazing. You know, so, so it's a matter of, you know, who gets priority, who needs it the most right now, because we don't have that many. Right, right. We've been talking with Pablo Gutierrez. He's an investigative journalist covering ICE and the detention centers and the plight of these undocumented Americans who are being held in what are, by definition, concentration camps. You can follow Pablo by going to Twitter. He's at Pablo GTS T47. Let me just spell that out. P-A-B-L-O-G-T-Z. T47, Pablo Gutierrez, and you will get every day updates emailed to you via Twitter. It'll be in your messaging menu on Twitter, and he's giving really informative updates. I'd like you to keep coming back. I want to stay on this, and I have been calling for the abolition of ICE for years now, before the pandemic. What can my listeners do? You know, they're stuck at home. And they can become good citizens. What can they do locally and nationally? What if they wanted to 
do something locally. How do you 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 touched on this on Tuesday's show? How do you find out locally who ICE is working with locally? So so there's a couple of things that you can do. You have the time, right? Calling your uh, senator, your U.S. representative, and demand the release of ICE detainees, non-criminal, as I said before, persons that are there, basically because they just came to this country to seek a a better life. Uh, So that's one of the things that's the easiest thing to do, go there. Number two, one of the uh, best and easiest ways to to get in in touch with somebody is through the ACLU. They're doing a great job. They've been doing a fantastic job for the last Few years. Right, but, and, that, but uh, I'm I, talking I, about citizen action. Yeah. So it's 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 calling your <laughs> local municipality, calling the police, exactly. and saying, "Hey, yeah. do you work with ICE? What's going on?" You, you, yeah, you can do that. You can you can Google your county and uh, just Google to find out if they have a contract with ICE. Uh, and most of these documents are are available. They're they're there. You're going to find it if they have one. I, I wanted to mention that when we were talking about uh, ICE employees that contracted COVID-19, and this is according to, to the website, there they list 19 employees for uh, positive with COVID-19, uh, and they say that they're not assigned to detention facilities. So this could be ICE officers that are working on the streets. And then, of course, we have the Elizabeth case with a uh, member of the medical team and then the other case that right now they're confirming is the detainee in uh, Bergen County Jail. The guards inside the core civic privately run detention center in Elizabeth, New Jersey, those are not ICE employees. Those are those are private guards. Correct. Yes. Non-union. As far as I know, non-union. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Follow Pablo on Twitter. Pablo GTZ as in zebra T47. And I will link to uh, his Twitter address over at my website. Pablo Guterres is an investigative journalist doing great work. Can you stay on the line for one quick second, Pablo? Of course. No problem. Thank you. Well, we're just wrapping up the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Steve Scrovan is here, and uh, I won't give the names of the other two people unless they want to volunteer. What are you guys going to do for the rest of the day? Steve, what are you going to do? Well, I got big plans for the day. I'm uh, I'm thinking about putting on a belt. Ah, a belt. Yeah. So you're wearing pants without a belt right now. Well, you know, yeah, pants that don't require a belt. And pants is probably a generous description of mm-hmm. what i'm wearing i'm in a pair of pants with a belt but i have mm-hmm. slippers on and i have on my to-do list putting on a pair of socks to complement my slippers to complement the slippers yeah 
But I can't decide I yet whether they should be Argyle socks, which I don't normally wear out in public. But since I'm self-quarantining, I might as well let the uh, Argyles rock, let them shine. Yeah. But uh, not sure. David, you're you're kind of in the hot zone in New York there. I've I got a question, yes. you know, because I didn't hear Anthony Fauci today. I, I get that I can touch my face. Mm-hmm. Where is he on the penis? Uh, 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 my forehead. <laughs> if I'm, I don't understand the question. No, uh, the question. He's is not a, he's not a tall know, man. So things. what? Not touching things. Oh, okay. <laughs> I. Uh, by the way, I'm wearing a mask around my, uh, I better not say that. Uh, uh, can I mention the names of the other two people? Of course. Sure. Uh, Matthew sure. and, and Michaela. How, what do you, we're all doing, we do the Ralph Nader radio hour remotely from separate parts of the world. Matthew, uh, what's your schedule for today? Well, uh, you know, I might uh, take a shower. Hmm. Uh, it's been, you know, several days now. Uh, perhaps uh, uh, have some lunch. Now, are you taking extra time to cook your lunch, to bake? You know, do you do you make a whole day out of making your uh, lunch? No, I try to do it as uh, quickly as possible so I can, uh, you know, go back to laying on the floor, which is what I do most of the time now. In a fetal position? I switch it up, you know. Yeah. At my age, I'm laying on the floor in a fecal position. I don't know what that means, but uh, Michaela, uh, what, what's on your, you know, Michaela, you're uh, young. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Compared to... 24, right now. I'm sorry? 24. 24. You're 24. And and have you gotten a list of older people I'm paying you to visit? (laughs) (laughs) Paying? What do you mean? Well, I'm just saying that there's some people I'd like you to go visit. You being a... Oh, oh. I have some enemies. Carrier of potential. Carrier. (laughs) Just, I'm not saying that. I'm implying it. We have to be delicate here. Well, if, if, if we had an HR department, I would report you for trying to use staff as bioweapons. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't we, Matthew, why don't you tell us, why don't we plug the Ralph Nader Radio Hour? Matthew is our producer. Why don't you tell us who's on this week? Who's on uh, the, the show we just finished taping yes. uh, is mm-hmm. uh, author Catherine Eban uh, to talk about uh, the drug supply, the overseas drug supply, and how that relates to coronavirus. And uh, Jamie Love, who uh, is a uh, famous uh, advocate for uh, drug patents and, and affordable drugs uh, overseas for dealing with things like uh, HIV and AIDS in Africa. And lead singer for the Beach Boys. And that as well, a very talented individual. And a power forward for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Okay. So not true. Uh, well, not not well, true. These are these are these are just jokes that we weren't allowed to make. <laughs> to make it, yeah. Yeah. Also, now, how, how's everybody fixed for condition. toilet paper, by the way? How's everybody fixed for toilet paper? Well, I'm a Republican, so I just use the Constitution. 
Ooh. Okay. Just the- well, I, I was worried about the shortage until I realized that I have I have nine seasons of original Everybody Loves Raymond script stacked in a storage <laughs> facility. So that well, so that show continues to be a lifesaver for me. <laughs> Steve, uh, be well. Michaela, be well. Matthew, be well. You too. Yeah. Thank you, Thank David. You. Yeah. Stay away from people. Don't mm-hmm. shake anybody's hands. No, no, no. Must be nice to be 24 and know that you got nothing to worry about. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Any advice from to my young listener? <laughs> to my young listener, Sorry. by that I mean the... the Kid under the age of ninety. <laughs> About what to do? About yeah. <laughs> what are you binge watching? I well, right now I just acquired this foster dog, so I've mostly been watching him. He is has a lot of separation anxiety, so uh, I have not been alone for a second. What 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 is he? What, what's his breed? He's a Rottweiler Lab mix. He's seventy pounds, and he's only ten months old. <sighs> I actually just I just saw a news story uh, from Bloomberg uh, News uh, earlier before that New York City is running out of uh, foster dogs because because of the crisis. People are all yeah. adopting dogs for companionship. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's a, a, a small ray of good news amidst all this, yeah. uh, all this horror. That is really great news. Or they're eating them. And the cats, too. Apparently the cats. My husband's getting a cat, and they said that all they have left at shelters now are, like, really shy cats and really enormous dogs. Wow. Wow. That's, that, you know what? That, that, and once you foster these animals, you don't let them go. Right? Well, I mean, I, I have fostered animals and then let them go, but but most people probably will keep them. What's his name or her name? His name is Zephy. Zephy? Zephyr? Because yeah. he's windy? I don't know. It was just, what I don't know what Zephyr's from, but my housemate said the name and we liked it. Yeah, Zephyr is like a warm wind coming off the side. I, I mean, I guess, is it a soft wind? Because he's definitely not a soft wind. No, it's like a warm Boisterous wind, yeah. Energy, yeah. That now that would describe him. That would make sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody. Ralph Nader Radio Hour. How do people download it on iTunes? You just subscribe uh, on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever. We're we're on all the platforms. So go to Stitcher. Stitcher, all of them now. Spotify, YouTube. Go to any one of your platforms, subscribe for free, or you can just go directly to the RalphNaderRadioHour.com website. There we have not only um, uh, transcripts, but we have links to all the books and uh, organizations of the people that we have on the show, plus great quotes from uh, the uh, interviews. And, call, and follow Ralph and follow Ralph Nader on Twitter at, at Ralph Nader and sign up for his newsletter. That's right. You can yeah, get his news, You can get his column, his weekly column delivered to your inbox and call your local 
radio station and say, I want the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, everybody. Stay on the line, everybody. Let us now go to the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where comedian Kevin Bartini is standing by. You want to laugh? Two of his albums are available wherever you buy comedy CDs or downloads, showing the horses who's boss and the unintentionally white album. Welcome back, our old friend Kevin Bartini. Oh, come on. David. No. David. Hello. No, don't do that. (laughs) How are you, my friend? I'm doing okay. So uh, any gigs you want to promote? So any gigs I want to promote? Uh, Yes. You know what? Yes. I have something to promote, David. Okay. Honest honest to God, I do. Uh, This has been... Um, actually kind of the bane of my existence and my wife's existence for the last week or two. But, uh, this is a project we've been working on to kill our time and create a bit of an income stream for ourselves. Good. But, Good. you know, that my wife, Jessica, is literally like one of the top fitness instructors and professionals in all of New York City. I mean, she works at the best places. She's got movie star clients and everything else. And because her gyms are closed uh, and she can't be teaching, what we've done is created a live stream where every day people are joining her. She teaches her classes online. And, uh, you know, people are watching the live stream from all around the country. It is a uh, by donation, you know, donate a few bucks if you can. But if you can't, there's a free link. It's really about just fostering community and getting people to work out and do things in their own apartment um, and homes that they normally would be able to do in the gym. So she's right. done a great job of, of changing things around. And uh, so how do, how do we do, how do we do this? How do we do? This? We go to, we go to uh, the web address is sassy girl fitness, NYC.com. And uh, you can go there and you'll see we're updating with the schedule of next week's classes but she's basically got one at like noon and another in the evening time we're adding we're going to be um you know taking those live streams and then we'll rebroadcast them later so people maybe on the west coast who are you know just getting home from work later in the night will be able to watch it and what, and what, uh, and what do we see when we're watching this so we see a we have a camera set up right in my in my living room and my wife has her yoga mat and uh, and and everything set up i actually i built her like a little set you know i moved furniture around made it look pretty i i have professional lights and stuff and a whole st- just because of my life as a comedian you know i already had everything in the house cameras and lights and sound and all of that so you'll see uh you'll you'll get you'll see her for the first few minutes as she just keeps the camera on and lets people just join and then then it's a 45 minutes of a pretty pretty killer uh, workout for people. And I should tell you not to be intimidated if you don't normally work out because my mother has been doing it and she never worked out before and she's enjoying it. People are doing it with their kids. It's accessible for everybody. So I highly recommend uh, if I have anything to plug is to go to sassygirlfitnessnyc.com and to check out my wife's awesome live feed. Fantastic. 
I'm yes. going to start doing it. I need to I exercise. Do, yeah. Have you, you been outside? Should. We're in the epicenter, my friend. I know we are. So, uh, are yes, you? I have been outside a little bit. I have um, not in the last couple of days, um, but I have uh, gone for late night walks uh, alone and um, gone and done my groceries at you know late late at night. I'll go to to a place at two in the morning when nobody else is around, and uh, I don't know. I uh, personally, for me, this whole thing. Um, this whole quarantine, it, uh, honestly, uh, on some level, I just feel like the rest of the world is living their life the way I normally do. Like you're right. It's, it's true. I mean, I, you know, you, you I, I rarely leave the house. I'm, I'm, I'm finding different things and ways of keeping myself busy. You uh, always wash your hands. Hand. You're a chronic hand washer. I am a chronic hand washer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good about that. Uh, so, I don't know. I've, I've been doing okay. How about yourself? I know you're keeping yourself very busy with your podcast and 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 doing a lot of interviews and putting out these. You must be setting new records, right? I think I saw one the other day. It was over five hours. Did you put up one? Yeah. 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 So, you must be doing just yeah. about nothing. But, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's uh, good to keep yourself busy. Keeping myself busy. I'm trying to stay on top of who were neglecting, you know, uh-huh. are the ICE detainees, the homeless, the, the underreported uh-huh. stories. I, yeah. And uh, uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm grateful that I can do this show and I can keep mm-hmm. myself busy. I, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, the trick for me is not watching television. The minute I turn on yeah. television, I start getting anxious because, you know, we are in Manhattan. The mm-hmm. the simplest way to find out what's going on for me is, you know, you go to the New York Times, you go to the CDC, Washington mm-hmm. Post, get get the updates, get check the numbers on the board, see how we're doing versus other cities. And yeah, uh, and uh, and accept the fact that we don't have a president. That we I think so. I well, first of all, spoiler alert on that, because I wanted to tell you one of the things, because I've not been watching the news like on a daily basis, like right at the very beginning, I watched one or two episodes, of maybe Rachel and whatever. But, you know, I have a subscription to the New York Times, so I get the actual physical paper every day and it's still coming most every day. Um, but with with the with that subscription, I fall behind sometimes. So I have a pile of back issues or sections that I didn't get to. And so I've been filling my time and getting caught up. So I'm actually getting caught up on old news. And, and so, jugs, right? I, I, last and time jugs. I, I remember I'd go over and you go, you know, eventually you got to throw jugs out. They pile up. You're not going to read these. <laughs> well, uh, you know what I always said when people are telling me, get rid of those old copies of jugs uh, is, hey, one day uh, there's going to be a quarantine and I'm going to be stuck here, and I'm going to be happy to have them. And so, like Burgess anyway. Meredith in that Twilight yes. Zone episode, finally right. you're alone with your copies of Jugs, and you right. accidentally step on your box of Jergens and Kleenex. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I accidentally burned my hand. Or, or you burned your like. hand, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I'm looking for funny stories, and uh, yeah. it's, it's an embarrassment of riches. Is it? Where, where do we start? Well, no, but there was a. Uh, I'll play uh, next week. We'll talk about the yeah. councilman in Florida who says you can kill the coronavirus by 
shoving a hair dryer up your nose. I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. I heard people were saying that. I I uh, I also like the people who uh what what was it they actually took? It was something that cleans their koi pond and they thought ingesting that cuz it sounded like one of the drugs. Chloroquine phosphate? Yeah. 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 yeah, and the guy died by drinking that, uh, and yeah. his his wife was very sick. Uh, yeah, that's about the funny story I found. Yeah. <laughs> <Not much. laughs> okay, all right, let's be... Not much funny going on in the world, unfortunately. Well, yeah, the you thing know, is, there have always been people this stupid. They've mm-hmm. just never been given a platform, like, right. the, like the Oval Office. Yes. Usually, people this stupid are marginalized, not thrust into uh, a leadership position. Kevin Bartini, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Stay safe. And we'll talk. We'll check in with you next week. Yes, please do. And please do. And plug your wife. uh, Okay. Yeah. It's sassy girl. S a S S Y sassy girl. Fitness. N Y C dot com. And uh, when's this going up tonight? Late yeah. night, Thursday night. Yeah. Okay, so uh, check back, check that site, bookmark that site. We are uh, uploading new stuff, and um, we'll be we'll have new live streams coming to you later this weekend. Beautiful. Stand line for one yeah. second. Thank okay. You. All right. Let us now go to Madbury, New Hampshire, where citizen journalist David Bacon is standing by. Hello, Citizen Bacon. Hello, David Feldman. How is New York City? Pandemic on the Hudson. How is New Hampshire? Yeah. We're the epicenter, so it's... I heard, yeah. I don't go outside. I don't, I don't know why you invited me down to visit you then. That makes I, no sense. I, if you want to come down, I'll buy you. I think they're about to... I think it's impossible to leave New York City. In about two days, uh, I think they're just not going to allow us. We're going to be stuck on the island. Uh, but wow. that, that being said, tell me about Madbury. What's going on up there? Um, I mean, we have, I think we're down to like, uh, we're not supposed to have, be with more than 10 people at some sort of, like, predetermined meeting, but, you know, like, something like that. But I guess there are exceptions for the legislature, for the grocery stores. Um, uh, People, I mean, are some a lot of people are taking it very seriously, and uh, some people maybe less so. But, you know, a a lot of stuff is closed. Some things are closed, some things are not closed. It was interesting, I would say... A week ago, well, we're talking on, what is today, Wednesday? Yes, sir. Um, A week ago today, there was still an auction house having an auction, Mm -hmm. which I couldn't believe. I went to an auction, uh, it must have been the Thursday before that. And 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 there I was like, okay, you want to wash your hands? Because everyone has to touch everything. And, there, you know, we kept away from each other. But it was like this. And most of the people are really, you know, there's, there's people in their 80s and 70s and 60s. It's an older crowd at these things. And it's like, I can't believe you guys are even coming at all. And then, like I said, a week ago, I did not go to that one. I couldn't believe he was still having it because a lot of places had closed down. 
There was right. a really good sale. So, yeah, so really good more, sale more important, I, we, we have limited time here. Yeah. You, you're, you have a Republican governor, Chris oh. Sununu, who is yeah. the son of uh, George Herbert Walker Bush's former chief of staff, who was also the governor of New Hampshire. He has not issued a stay-at-home order yet, correct? Not yet, no. And a couple of the... Uh think a couple of the like uh some of the people like the hospital the head of the hospital in exeter and i think that there's another place and there's two important people have have asked him to do that but he doesn't want to do that yet he's still trying to uh make a balance i guess between uh people's lives and uh and and business. this week you saw your first coronavirus death 13 new cases have been yep. confirmed in yep. new hampshire there's a shortage of medical personnel and services for the homeless. The homeless. Yeah, you know, they, no, go ahead. Finish that. And, and from what I understand, uh, the, the homeless population is not getting the attention they, they deserve. What's the weather like up there? Are they, are they still? Well, we have, we have snow now because we got hit with some snow the other day, but it's, it's warmer. I mean, it's melt, you know, it's all melting now. They but provide, it's so, it's don't, they, don't they provide buildings with heat throughout the day for people who are living at uh, below the poverty line and for the homeless that you can go to places in New Hampshire um, for heat? We normally have this, you know, like uh, the housing stuff. I know there was that, there was a girl along, a young lady that I interviewed a long time ago that mentioned that the one in Dover had closed one of those housing units for people. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know we were necessarily, again, I didn't, I mean, I haven't researched yeah. any of that, so I'm not certainly, I can't, I don't know enough about that right. topic to. And uh, your, your, to your state legis, the state legislature will be closed until April 10th. And a court has upheld the ban on large gatherings of fifty people or more here in right. Man- the governor, the governor just lowered it to ten, though yesterday. I oh, think. okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. What are you so, doing I mean, to the, keep? What are you doing to keep sane or insane? Well, depending on to be. I mean, my life isn't that different because I work out of my house, as does my wife. Um, I go. I can't go to my auctions, and I have less of a social life, of course. But like, I'm working now. I'm typing things. I have forty-five thousand things on eBay right now. I'm selling stuff. The mail person comes to my door and takes my packages away. Um, mm-hmm. So that's no different. I still have income, you know. Right. My wife too. Um, my I had to pick up my daughter from college though, so we now have uh, you know a, a full house again. Right. You know. Uh, with, with the kids, so that's different, and it, that's certainly, you know, that's her, it's her freshman year, so it's a big change for her. You know, she certainly doesn't want to be back at home and not being able to, like, you know, have friends over and stuff, so that's kind of a... And, you know, so it's, and it's new because now she's doing the distant learning, and, you know, like, okay, she's taking... She's got a biology class, but, you know, you can't do labs and stuff, so that kind of puts a... You know, you're, how much learning are they... You know, you're not going to do as much learning and stuff, so right. that's... Right. Different in things. Um, and then my other daughter who's in high school, that also is going to, you know, they're doing the uh, distant learning, but that hasn't started up for her quite yet. Um, but that's going to be very, that's going to be Monday, I think. Now you call her. them so uh, daughter bacon, wife well, bacon, you know, my cousin, cousin bacon. My cousin, 
My cousin, who's when he had little kids, you know, he called them his bacon bits. Bacon bits. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because they're bacon bits. David Bacon, Citizen Bacon, joined us today from Madbury, New Hampshire. Quickly tell us your Biden story. We we're we got to keep this a little short. Oh. Okay, so I just this is just something because oh my god. So I I got to meet Biden a couple times, but he again never did a gaggle with the press. So there were no questions the entire time he was in New Hampshire. Except for the filing when he stuck. That was the only time you could ask him questions. I was not at that filing. Whatever. It doesn't matter. I was there. I didn't get to whatever. I didn't get that. So he then came out. I filmed him. I ran around and I got in front of him and he was like shaking hands as he's walking down the line because he did a speech in front of the Capitol building after the filing. Okay. Okay. So, wait, so he's walking towards me and at this time, that's when I was I was getting the candidates to wish people in my life, my kids, my friends, happy birthday. I did it for you with, um, what's his name? Um, Get the, well. the, the guy from New, from Germany. Oh, Cory Booker Germany. said happy birthday to me. But I was asking you yeah. to say get well. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. We, right. We're running out okay. of time. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so... Biden is walking towards me, and I'm going to get, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, who do I know who would want Joe Biden to wish happy birthday to, you know, to them? And I'm thinking, but it's very fast, he's right there. And I'm like, oh, I can't, I don't know anyone who would want that, you know? Right. So he got to me, and I just said, ah, say happy birthday. And I didn't have a name. And so he just goes, happy birthday. And mm-hmm. so, okay, that passed. And I was like, that's weird. Then later I was thinking about, where have I heard that? Because you never just hear happy birthday. It's always happy birthday. So-and-so, you know, happy, whatever. So I'm thinking, where have I heard just someone say happy birthday? And then it dawned on me, it was a cartoon from my childhood called, um, it's the snowman thing. The, 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 who's the snowman that comes to life? Frosty? Frosty the snowman. When Frosty the snowman comes to life, he goes, happy birthday. It's the first thing he says. So I, and it just was like, yes. Joe Biden is like Frosty the Snowman. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's all. It's, you know, yeah, they both, have, they, they both have water in the brain. Yeah, and they just, they, he doesn't know what's going on. He just like, you know, he, you, could, you could probably like lead Biden around to like whatever, and he would just go along. You know, he just, his brain's not working properly, you know. But right. I said from day one, he just couldn't do it. And it just, it just dawned on me, and it's so sad that he... Is the person, I, mean, I think we yeah. need to invoke yeah. the Twenty Fifth Amendment. The Democratic yeah, exactly. Party, the Democratic Party, needs to invoke the Twenty Fifth Amendment. David Bacon, Citizen right. Bacon. Well, I have one of the super fast thing. Why doesn't this is the time for California to secede from the nation? Why? Yes. What's the point of having a freaking country? Why? Why do we have a national government if you know, it's like no freaking break apart? Now's the time. California, they want to do it. Get out, then. Do it. That'd be amazing. David Bacon, great job. Stand in line for one second. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Here we go. Well, it's the end of the week, possibly the world, and that can only mean one thing. Liam Mackin, and he joins us for listener questions. 
You got a question, we got answers. Ask us anything. Go to DavidFeldmanShow.com. <clears throat> Hit the Ask Me Anything button. I don't say this often enough. I really value my listeners, especially the ones who hate Leah McEnany. Fewer and fewer, though, unfortunately. I think what's happened yeah. is, you know, familiarity breeds love. In Liam's case, they're beginning to like you, despite your lack of respect for Bernie. So uh, we want to hear from you. Hit the Ask Me Anything button and listener questions. We'll answer all your questions or leave us a voicemail. That's right. We have a a voicemail uh, that you can, you know, call us and uh, let me get that number up. What's that sound in the background? Uh, that would be uh, me eating Pringles. How is Pringles? Your your girlfriend? I guess. <laughs> How is Pringles? Pringles is the name of my dog. Okay. 202-670-2752. Give us your hand-washing song. We played some hand-washing songs last Tuesday. If you have a hand-washing song, call us at 202-670-2752. Maybe we'll play it on the show. How are you, Liam? I'm good. I'm feeling really proud today, David. Proud of my country. Proud to be an American because... A couple of hours ago, we became the number one epicenter of coronavirus in the world. China invented it, but the USA perfected it, and we brought the numbers. It's about time we took their intellectual property from them and and ran with it. That's right. And, uh, you know, and then it's almost like they don't know what to do with it. They're, they're like uh, slacking off. They're flattening the mm-hmm. curve. And we're just going to run wild with it and see where it goes. Right. They outsource the coronavirus. <laughs> How does it feel, China? Huh? Yes, that's right, China. Suddenly it's not so much fun when the uh, shoe is on the other bound foot. <laughs> Walking, After- <laughs> walking three paces behind your husband. That's right. After your children make that shoe in a factory, it's now on our foot. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Well, I'm in the epicenter. I am in Manhattan. Uh, but we just can't kill you. No. You're, you're like John McClane. Yeah. Whatever we throw at you, David, you just keep coming back like John McClane in all the Die Hard movies. Yeah. So let me just say to my listeners, stay home. Don't listen to Donald Trump. We don't have a president. Let me just make this clear to you. We we've discovered that mommy and daddy are idiots. We're orphans. We don't have any leadership in Washington, D.C. You have to fend for yourself. Stay home. Don't listen to Donald Trump. Stay the F home. If your boss is making you go to work, uh, expose that boss on social media. Uh, write to me. Maybe I'll even maybe I'll read the name of the business on the show or leave a voicemail at 202-670-2752 and let us know the name of the company you work for that is forcing you to go to work. Joanne, the 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 yard company, you know, Joanne's the, Fabrics, yeah, yeah, they're 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 suddenly essential services. Unless you're sewing masks and right. hospital gowns, 
using that fabric? Maybe, maybe. I don't know. Here's 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 the only exception, and and I really respect this. Is the wife of Hobby Lobby CEO was told by God Himself that everybody should go back to work. Yeah, yeah. And frankly, you know, like we don't have a president, but we do still have a God whose name is God and his son, Jesus Christ. Money. The God is money in this country. Liberty University is, uh, they're going back. Another another heartwarming story out of the out of the whole quarantine thing though is people are getting together and chipping in money uh to help Amazon. Like uh you know, Jeff Bezos is running a fundraiser to help Amazon through this very very tough time. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you I I I immediately uh checked to see if there was a maximum amount I could give because I just can't give enough money to help keep Amazon afloat. Yeah. And it's very, very troubled time. The mayor of Chicago is warning if you go outside to exercise, you'll get arrested. Wow. Uh, to be fair, I exercised in the nude. So that, that's kind of a yeah. It's kind of a given. It's, uh, also, oh, Jesus Christ, David. What is What happened to... Dude, we were nailing it a hundred years ago. Yeah. This country was fucking nailing it. A supermarket has been forced to destroy $35,000 worth of food after a woman intentionally coughed all over it. That was in Pittsburgh. Where, well, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. You know, it's it's funny... <laughs> Something about jizzing all over it. I don't know. I'm I'm I, I'm not funny today. What can I say, David Feldman? This country is uh, America. I, I thought Trump was full of shit when he said he'd make America great again. But uh, we, we have never been prouder to be an American than I am listening to all these news stories. You'll like this. By the way, uh, there is a quarantine in effect unless you're a Republican, in which case uh, election day is tomorrow. Yeah. So go out in numbers. Uh, the voting booths are in the local ER. Yeah. Get together. Now, have you have you championed? Uh, have you started eating plant based meat? Why would I do that? You haven't switched over to a plant based diet. Why would I switch over to plant based diet? Okay. Why would I do that? I, I actually ordered a bunch of chicken from Costco. Yeah. So I'll be eating chicken for the next month. As opposed to uh, trying to... Oh, yeah, was, okay. <laughs> Chicken's the name of my dog. Uh, well, let's see. <laughs> the U.S. now has more known cases than any other country. Is uh, this the segment where you try to convince your listeners to kill themselves? I'm just... You mentioned it. Uh, uh, I did. I did mention it, but not on. Yeah, you know what? I, you know what, David. You know what's even sadder than this? Did you ever watch The Price Is Right when uh, Louis Anderson used to host it? Louis Anderson never hosted The Price Is Right. Louis, I'm sorry, not not The Price Is Right. Family Feud. Yes. Holy shit! Can't believe it. Did you used to watch that? Sure. The look Louis Anderson hosting Family Feud is sadder than. Anything that's happening in the coronavirus right now. 
Okay. That was terrible. Yeah. That was a tra- that was a tragic waste there. All right, hang on for one second. All right, the category is small <laughs> And then the guy would say, uh, Shetland Pony? And just like Louis Anderson's whole face would fall and be like, uh, show me Shetland Pony. Eh-eh. Oh, my God. The top choice was Chihuahua. You do a good Louis Sh- Anderson. Shetland Pony isn't even a dog. All right. I'm looking at the numbers. Well, okay. Uh, you know, I... I uh, hmm. Well, they said the numbers were going to go up because uh, they're testing. So right. They, so that's why we have so many confirmed cases. Okay. But also, people won't stay home. Yeah. Just stay home. Like, honestly, if if you can take one thing from this today, stay home. Do not go to the beach. Yeah. Have you been outside outside at all? I go out for about an hour every day. I take a walk. I avoid people. So not much different than my normal life. Right. Right. Uh, Yesterday, I went out and cleaned the leather seats in my car just because I had, like, nothing else to do. I was actually excited to do it. Because then I could, like, turn on the radio and just be outside in the sun for an hour cleaning the leather seats of my car. Okay. President Trump says the hospital ship, the USS Comfort, will head to New York Saturday. Uh, Yeah. Pelosi makes the bipartisan passage of the $2 trillion stimulus in the House. Get ready for that sweet $1,200 check, baby. Record unemployment claims. 3.3 million. Yeah. A lot of lazy bums out there. Yeah. All right. Let's do listen. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps, America. Yeah. Well, you know what? Let's listen to the presumptive nominee of the Democratic but, Party. But wait, wait, wait. But yeah. 300,000 of the good news is 300,000 of those unemployed are comedians. Yes. So yes. we're actually getting people out of the business. So that's actually a good thing. Here's Joe Biden. And what we have done is the reason why most of the world has repaired to us, particularly after World War II, is because of who we are as a nation. We, the people, we hold these truths, etc. Beef up the number of responders dealing with the crush, these crushing cases. And, uh, and in addition to that, uh, in addition to that, we have to uh, make sure that we, uh, we are in a position that we are. Well, let me let me go to the second thing. I've spoken up on that. The president must use the Defense Production Act. It's terrifying, isn't it? What what's that? Him. Better than what we have now. Yeah, but, uh, well, yeah. Uh, I don't see Trump losing to Biden. Do you? Yeah. You do? I do. Okay. Here's Bernie. Here's Bernie running into Senate staffers in front of the the Capitol, in front of... uh, the Senate building. The Senate this office. is him just happening to run into some people while cameras were rolling. Yes. 
Okay, go. so it's just coincidentally, cameras were rolling and trained on him as he bumped into these people and had an unplanned, spontaneous moment. Yeah, and and he's okay. walking with his wife. Okay. How are you guys doing? Good, sir. How are you? Thank you. Why are you so close to each other? Are you serious? You know, watch television. See what people are saying. All right, let me go upstairs. That work? Right, guys, go inside, and then I'll be downstairs. Sure. How are you I said, you know, I'm serious now. You should stay inside. You're not. I know you're young, but uh, young people are getting sick too. All right. All right. Thank you. Why is his wife with him on his way to work? Wait, you got a problem with marriage? <laughs> I'm just like, is she co-senating with him? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think a woman who got in big trouble for that was named Hillary Clinton in the 1990s. All right. Here's I Bernie's mean, speech two nights ago. Two nights she ago. She killed a lot of people as uh, Secretary of State. In Libya, yeah. In Libya. <laughs> you don't think so? Uh, I call her shrillery because she's so shrill. Okay. Here's Bernie speaking for workers. They're debating right. the stimulus package. Here's Bernie. Debating with who? On the Senate floor. This is Bernie. Okay. And now I find that some of my Republican colleagues are very distressed. They're very upset. That somebody who's making 10, 12 bucks an hour might end up with a paycheck for four months more than they received last week. Oh, my God. The universe is collapsing. Imagine that. Somebody who's making 12 bucks an hour now, like the rest of us, faces an unprecedented economic crisis with the 600 bucks on top of their normal, their regular unemployment check might be making a few bucks more for four months. Oh, my word! Will the universe survive? How absurd and wrong is that? What kind of value system is that? Meanwhile, these very same folks had no problem a couple of years ago voting for a trillion dollars in tax breaks for billionaires and large profitable corporations. Not a problem. But when it comes to low-income workers in the midst of a terrible crisis, maybe some of them earning or having more money than they previously made. Oh, my word, we got to strip that out. Gotta, we got to tell those poor people that no matter what. By the way, when this bill, when the McConnell bill first came up, unbelievably, and I know many Republicans objected to this, they were saying that, well, we want to give a whatever it was, a thousand or twelve hundred bucks, but poor people should get less. You see, because poor people are down here. They don't deserve. They don't eat. They don't pay rent. They don't go to the doctor. They're somehow inferior because they're poor. We're going to give them less. Well, that was addressed. Now, everybody is going to get the twelve hundred dollars. But some of my Republican friends still have not given up on the need to punish the poor and working people. You haven't raised the minimum wage in 10 years. Minimum wage should be at least 15 bucks an hour. You haven't done that. You've cut program after program after program. And now horror of horrors for four months, workers might be earning a few bucks more than they otherwise went. Well, needless to say, this is that's Bernie. That's that's great. 
I'm sorry. Love, I would love a passive aggressive old Jew on the world stage negotiating like that. Now your mother's well, no. your mother's we're Jewish. Going, we're going to be taking our missiles out of out of the Middle East. Uh oh, that would be terrible. Could you imagine if we signed a peace accord right now? Oh Lord! And then, uh, and then you know, like the Prime Minister of Britain's listening to that. Like, what is he talking about? So we're going to give a bailout to the airlines: Delta, American, United, Alaska Airlines, Spirit, JetBlue. According to the American Prospect dot org, they pay single digits or negative taxes. Well, they're going to need that money to move their seats closer together. Mm-hmm. That's funny. That Delta, funny. Delta, JetBlue, and Alaska paid an effective federal tax rate of zero or less in 2018. Uh, they took all their cash flow, 96% of their cash flow was spent on stock buybacks. Uh-huh. No, no rainy day fund. For the airlines, they just bought their stock back. No raise to the pilots, no raise to the workers. They just bought more stock. They took more stock off the market with their excess cash, and they don't pay taxes. They mismanage their business, uh-huh. and then they come hat in hand asking for a bailout. I want the name of their accountant. <laughs> You know, I bought some stock last week because I was like, you know what? Like, uh, I bought a very little amount of stock. And I was just like, it's a good time to buy stock. I didn't buy too much, but uh, like, I bought stock in this company. Their shares were under five dollars, and I was like, all right, well, you know what? I buy twenty shares of that. So and that's a hundred dollars. You 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 spent a hundred dollars. Yeah. I spent a hundred dollars, and the, I don't want to brag, but. An hour after I bought the stock, the share prices dropped thirty cents each. So it's gambling. I uh, I guess I will also be going hat in hand to the Senate for a uh, for a bailout this week. Well, you know, you have people who will say it's only fair that we bail out the airlines because they pay so much in taxes. No, they don't pay taxes. And by the way, they don't create. <laughs> Great jobs. They're anti-union. We have pilots flying on the cheap. Ask the stewardesses about their concessions. Flight attendants. I'm sorry. You're right. I apologize. I was wrong for inviting Ask you the on the show. the stews with the great gams. <laughs> the what? The stews with the great gams. Yeah. All Stop right. Let- ass and ask them how they feel about the deal they got. All right, let's do listener questions. We got to keep it short today, and we have to figure out. We do. We and we also we can only play twenty minutes of Bernie audio today. Well, we also have to figure out what to do with our. You just played a ten-minute speech on the Senate floor. Just to bait you. (laughs) That took up so much time. All right, it was it was a minute, two minutes. Me? That's not going to bait me. We have to figure out. The dude already lost. What are we doing with our subreddits? You can't even get Biden to debate him anymore. What are we doing with our subreddits? Uh, well, you still got two subreddits, and uh, I don't know. I feel like I feel like you at some point, David. You have to decide which one's the official David Feldman subreddit. 
Yeah. David Feldman's show has 118, is up to 118 members now. Okay. So that's good growth. And then the David Feldman show is up to 81 members. All right. So we're going to have to have both those moderators on the show and we're going to have right. to figure out. We got thrown by the. And need a moderator, both I'm sorry? moderators. What? You're going to need a moderator for both moderators. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have to figure out what to do with the subreddits. Everybody should join those subreddits and, and. Also, I have a Zoom account. So if you ever want to do, like, uh, I know you were talking about doing a live, uh, streaming thing. Zoom is a live streaming, uh, conference, uh, program that everyone's using right now. And, uh, we could do something where we do a lot, one of these live for the listeners. We would do it live with the listeners, and do they chime in? How do we do that? They don't have to chime in. But can they chime in? I mean, they can, if that's what you want. Do you know how to do this? I'm learning. I'm learning how to moderate a Zoom. So we would invite the listeners to join the Zoom conversation, and we would do it. I mean, I guess they're, they're, like you have like 13 listeners, so it's not like there would be a ton of people. Right. We could probably get, we could probably get to them all. Okay. All right. Courtney I'd love Z. To see what Tom looks like. I'm sorry. We'd love to see what Tom from Portland looks like. Yeah. All right. This question comes to us from India. Yasser. His zodiac sign oh. is I don't care. I know his brother no sir. Oh. Okay. Our listener in India. I hope you're locked down and safe. Hi, David. I was listening to your session with Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, where you were talking about self-imposed scarcity and how scarcity is a good thing and it should be perceived as a divine lesson. Well, I was reading this book by Elijah Itzabovic, former president of Bosnia and Herzegovina, and he writes, quote, by establishing the unity between animal and man, evolution abolished the difference between nature and culture, starting from quit different point, religion reestablished this difference. Therefore, from the act of creation, man and all culture with them inexorably, inexorably has opposed the whole development of human history. Okay. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> goes on and on, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, Yasser was just copying and pasting something. But thank you, Yasser. Uh, I think he's got uh, yurt fever. <laughs> is, that, is that what they have? I don't uh, know. What are they? I, you know, it's uh, I'm an American. <laughs> if you live somewhere else. You have yurt like fever. That sounds like a, like a Johnny Carson monologue joke. <laughs> he has yurt fever. Yurt fever. What did John Travolta get from... Sorry, I won't go there. May a yak come and defile your wife. All right. This one comes to us from Madam. She's a uh, pieces, that's her zodiac sign, pieces, and she listens to us in Temecula, California. She says, I'm a teacher, and we are pretty much totally off work until April 13th when distance learning starts. I teach French at a public high school, wee oui, wee. Oui. Rumor has it we will be closed. <laughs> yes, you may go to the bathroom. 
poo poo. <laughs> I have to go poo. Wee wee. <laughs> you know, there's a place in Wee Wee, France, and around the corner, fudge is made. Yeah. My son, I, I think Family Guy did this joke, but my son came up with it first. Why, if Wee Wee means yes, why doesn't poo poo mean no? And I think like three years later, they did it on Family Guy. I hope he's sued. Yeah. Rumor has it we will be closed until next school year. I have a senior daughter, a senior daughter. So she has a daughter She's who's nine. over. Huh? <laughs> She's <that> daughter's 90. <laughs> her daughter's 90. And it's a super bummer. All her stuff is probably going to be already has been canceled. The prom, graduation, college visits, award ceremonies. Let me tell you something. If I were a senior in high school and they canceled the prom, graduation, award ceremonies, I would be so happy if I were in high school. Do you have a senior daughter? See, what's her name? <laughs> Sue. Okay. What does she like to do in her spare time? Soul. Hey, what are you doing? So now you don't have a date for the prom <clears throat> or you're not going to the prom, right? <laughs> uh, that, <laughs> that would make it about 25 years in a row. That you've been taking somebody to a high school prom. That I, that I don't have a date for the prom. Hmm. Every year I go, and every year, it's more and more awkward when I stand in the corner alone and watch the other kids dance. Okay. So I picked this uh, question to read on the show, this comment to read on the show, and try to figure out why I picked this comment from Matt. Let me, let me guess. Uh, they talk about me. I love the new immunologist you have on the show. He's great and has the best personality, but is also super informative. I'm so happy he manifested himself. Another super fave is the guy from Yuck Yucks, Mark Breslin. He was correct. Yeah, he was correct when he said that the Republicans would rather sacrifice the elderly versus giving up capitalism. A few days later, the lieutenant governor from Texas said exactly that. Keep up the great work, David. I listen to your entire podcast as I'm home, revamping every room, closet, and cupboard in the house. I'm making this time stuck here very worthwhile. Well, thank you. That's one of my favorite comments. You know why? Because they don't compliment me. <laughs> because they compliment every other guest on the show. Uh -huh. I'm telling you, I, I, I'm going to start a uh, I'm going to start a petition to get me off the show. <laughs> this next one comes to us from Clyde. I'm going to start a GoFundMe, and if I raise ten thousand dollars, I'll never be on this show again. Okay. This uh, next question comes to us from Clyde. He is a Scorpio, and he's located not in Florida. He says, "I wear size eight women's shoes." Okay, Clyde. Anyone else notice that Feldo's dented forehead makes him look like Star Trek Next Generation makeup and effects started to make him a Klingon but lost interest? Oh, thank you, Clyde. All right. Uh, you know, David, I haven't seen you in forever in person, and now I'm dying to. I mean, I've never said that before. I have never wanted to see you in person until now, like, I want to see what this dent actually looks like. 
This next comment comes to comes to us from. You know what's yeah. saddest thing in this whole thing right now in this whole quarantine is the comics who keep the the stand up comedians who keep saying that they that they're like dying to get out and do shows. I can't imagine. Like I, I don't feel that way at all. I love doing stand up, but I love also not doing stand up. Well, you know, your fans also love you not doing stand up. <laughs> I'm just saying, there's like so so many comics who are like, oh man, I'm stuck in my apartment and all I want to do is these live stream shows. And then you watch these live stream shows and they're terrible, like uniformly terrible. Really? Yeah, it's like, oh, stand-up strip to its basic essence is just bad. Like when you're not in a room full of people and you're watching some of these people for the first time, like really at their core, you're like... Oh, you don't really have jokes. You just kind of get up there and talk. So you've been listening to my show. <laughs> this comes to us from... I did listen. I accidentally listened to your show this week. I mean, I was like kind of flipping it or flipping around a little bit. And at one point you were like just ranting about how the government needs to break up Harvard like, a, like they did with Ma Bell. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. You're saying like Harvard is a monopoly? Yeah. It's not. Yes, it is. It's not a monopoly. There's like a there's like a dozen Ivy League colleges that are just as esteemed. Do you think that it's a little uh, frightening that most of our Supreme Court justices come from either Harvard or Yale? Uh, <clears throat> I mean, like, where would you? I mean, <laughs> let me ask you this: Would you feel better? If they came from Cardoza University on on 14th and 5th? Yeah, I would. Would you feel better if one of them was from Liberty University's law school? Uh, No, but I would feel better if... uh, I think the American people are underrepresented when the only people serving on the Supreme Court are from Harvard, Yale, or Stanford. The same goes for our government. Most of the people in the upper echelons of our government are from Harvard, Yale, Stanford. They are neoliberal technocrats, elitists, they're effete, and they think they're two types of people. Those who are waited on and those who wait. Sounds like uh, someone who got stuck in the category of waiting on others. Yes, this comes from bossy and opinionated. I'm just saying it's it's not like it's not like Ma Bell. I mean, like people can go to other schools and get jobs going to other schools. But we're ruled by the Harvard elite. I I, I don't see it. You don't see it. I don't see it's it. It's a cabal. I, it is a cabal. And it needs to be broken up. Anytime there's a concentration of power, uh-huh. you have to take it apart. Well, my question is maybe just uh, they're the only schools turning out Supreme Court justices because they're the only schools that are giving the proper education for Supreme Court. You really believe that? Your mother's a lawyer. My mother is a lawyer. Okay. You think that only Harvard can produce a great legal mind? I think maybe maybe it's just that uh, the really great legal minds are drawn to these schools because they're more ambitious. 
Really? Like the people who really want to be Supreme Court justices go to these schools because they know it's the path to or get to the Supreme Court. Maybe they're indoctrinated at Harvard to think a certain way so they get picked to be on the Supreme Court. Right. They get educated to be on the Supreme Court. They get educated to maintain the status quo, to to cater to the power elite. They're vetted. They are vetted by the wealthiest and the most powerful right, so in Harvard. They can't. In other words, if you, can, you get into Harvard if you're going to be an asset to the richest one percent, not if you're going to challenge it. Right. If you want to make Big Macs, you go to Hamburger University. If you want to be Supreme Court Justice, you go to Harvard. There is a Hamburger University. I've, I'm serious. I visited it. It's in Chicago. It's in the, the I know there's a Hamburger yeah. University. Yeah. I didn't pick that out of my ass. Yeah. Uh, this is from Boston Opinion. They're saying there's a reason why The Simpsons is so good now. It's because all the writers are from Harvard. But it wasn't created by anybody from Harvard. <laughs> do you understand? Do you understand the point I'm making? Sam Simon didn't go to Harvard. Matt right. Groening didn't go to Harvard. James L. Brooks didn't go to Harvard. Right. People from Harvard are not original thinkers. They are trained to follow the rules, so they learn sitcom writing. They learn. Oh, I can. Okay, how, how do I get a job in sitcoms? I'll learn what the, what they're buying. There's no original thing. There's no original thinking coming out of Harvard. They, the people who are accepted into Harvard learn the rules that are established by the ruling class. Barack Obama learned the rules and was accepted into Harvard Law School so that when he became a senator and a president, he followed the rules. Well, we're seeing what happens when someone who doesn't know how to follow the rules is president. Bossy and opinionated writes. Have you? Oh, wait, I have one more question for yeah. you. Aren't you mad at Harvard because you couldn't get that job on SNL? That has nothing to do. I never applied to SNL. I mean, if you'd gotten that weekend update job, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you be a little, a little more copacetic with Harvard graduates? You know, I'm delusional, Liam McEnany, but I never once thought I was going to do weekend update. <laughs> That I knew. That I knew. You know why? Why? Because I care about politics. They would never give the weekend update job to somebody who truly cares about what's going on in the news. And that includes right. Dennis Miller. You know, Dennis didn't follow politics until he got the weekend update job. Right. They're not going to give a position of power like that to somebody who realizes he can influence people. Who's they? They being Comcast. NBC. NBC. Status quo. Do you think the executives at NBC go over the resumes for Weekend Update writers? I think they vet people to make sure they color within the lines. Okay. Don't you think? I... I I, I don't know if I believe it. Overarching conspiracy to keep people out of weekend update. No, there, there, but there is an overarching conspiracy to have toothless political satire on all television because you're not allowed to really make fun of who's in charge. 
For example, is that what you uh-huh. can't make fun of Comcast and Comcast is in charge. I mean, real political satire would be making fun of the corporate overlords. So instead, you, you make fun of this buffoon Joe Biden or you make fun of Donald right. Trump and everybody. Ooh, that's dangerous. He's making fun of Donald Trump. Make fun of the guy who pays Donald Trump's salary. And I'm not talking about the taxpayers. Make fun of the people who installed Donald Trump, who installed Joe Biden. Make who fun are of those people? Huh? Who are those people? The people who sponsor all your shows on NBC. But, I mean, 30 Rock made fun of Comcast for three seasons. Yeah. Make fun of Boeing. Make fun of... Make fun of the the, the, the oil companies. Make fun of... Boss, I mean, you would need like six or seven hours twice a week for that. You're making fun of my show now. A little bit. Bossy and opinionated, right? <laughs> Have you noticed how much Joe Biden looks like a white walker and the crypt keeper had a baby? What's a white walker? Uh, all right. So uh, the most popular show on the planet Earth in the last 10 years was a show called Game of Thrones. Oh. And White Walkers were these zombie warriors. Okay. Uh, here's another one I picked. Let's see if you can figure out why. It's from Patrick. He's in Aries. He listens to us in New England. He loves six-hour podcasts. David, great uh-huh. show. Love Martha Previtz, Susan Collins, but I miss you laughing at Aaron Berg impressions of you. Where is he? Actually, Aaron will be on Tuesday show, and there's a reason I picked that. Do you know why? Why? Because right. he doesn't... Uh... Uh-oh. All right, I'll read you this one. Wait, because he doesn't what? He doesn't mention you. Oh. <laughs> right. Are you going to have Aaron Berg on because uh, he speaks truth to power about Boeing and American Airlines? This next one comes to us from Jen. Really sticks it to Comcast. She's a frustrated Bernie ho. She's in Utah. <laughs> Dear David, love all of you, especially Liam. Oh, my God. Damn it. Oh, I love you, too. Uh, Bernie Ho, Utah cat. For the angry immunologist, I think I already contracted and recovered from COVID-19. Well, there you go. She's not thinking clearly. That's why she loves you. Oh. I thought I took her breath away, but it was coronavirus. (laughs) That's the name of my number one song of 1939. Some of the symptoms... Some of the early warning symptoms of COVID-19, enjoying Liam's comedy. (laughs) A fever that cooks your brain so so badly. That you actually buy working class fancy (laughs) and enjoy it. Hey, are you invited to Colin Jost's nuptials to Scarlett Johansson? You're good friends with him. We're not good friends. I, you know, like, uh, but I, I am buddies with him. I did congratulate him on getting engaged when I heard about it through TMZ. So are you invited to the wedding and uh, have they had to postpone it? No, I wasn't invited to his wedding. We're not like good friends like that. How long do you think that marriage lasts? 
I hope it lasts as long as those two are in love with each other, which is about three and a half years in my estimation. That marriage has an expiration date, I'd say, January of 2022. You think he's going to be off TV that soon? I don't think she's... I don't know. I just don't see that marriage lasting. I wish them well. They're a cute couple. You know what? Colin's a really nice dude. He is. He's a really good guy. He is a nice he's very, guy. And he's a good stand-up. He is. And I'm actually very uh, genuinely happy for all his success and uh, and the fact that he found love with Scarlett Johansson. And I'm not kidding. Like It, it makes me very happy that like he's always been very good to me. He's a good guy. Uh, even after he got famous. I have a lot of friends who got very successful, and uh, they lost the ability to respond to me when I asked them to be on a show or yeah. asked them to help me submit to a TV show they worked on. A lot of people lost that ability as soon as they hit it, and uh, he did not. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe he thinks of you as a charity case. Uh, right. Well, I mean, the, <laughs> it's not like he's on my podcast twice a week, an hour, an episode. This next one comes to us from Harry. A lot of people, David, a lot of people have forgotten old Liam. Boy, I'd be a lot further along in my career if people could just remember me after they hit it big. Boy, a lot of people. This next question comes to us from Poor old Liam just eating out of a can of beans on a street corner selling pencils. Harry Bazonia. He listens to us in man. They call me and Rose. Man, Florida. His zodiac sign is the crab. David, I'm self-isolating from the coronavirus. Wow, you caught his zodiac sign? <laughs> what? You caught his zodiac sign? His, he says his zodiac sign is the crab. Right, and you caught crabs. David, I'm self-isolating from the, <laughs> from the coronavirus, and I'm very bored and looking for things to do. When measuring my penis, where should I start? From the top by the pubes or the bottom by the taint? That's a great question. Well, you know, I feel like uh, if you're if you're measuring from the bottom by the taint, you're cheating a little bit because uh, you know you gotta you're adding the balls to the equation. I feel like penis is shaft, and then balls is a whole separate measurement. Do you include the helmet? Yeah, all the way to the tip. Yeah. Now, your helmet is like a Kaiser Wilhelm helmet, right? It's very pointed. It's got a spike on it, yeah. And also... For her, for also, her pleasure. Under, also under it is got mutton chops. <laughs> uh, measuring your penis. I, I start from six feet away. <laughs> Which, you know, like, uh, sounds like a bit much, but my penis is six foot one inches. Right. Okay. Because I don't have a very large penis. Six foot one however, inches. <laughs> however, it does measure. It measures eight inches around. I don't want to do it penis jokes. not a pleasurable experience. I don't want to do penis jokes on this show. Please. Oh, let's not start doing jokes on this show. Is this funny? What? Um, you know about cum face? 
No. What? Somebody asked me, what, what, what does your cum face look like? Oh, your O face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know about that. I said, try to imagine my face with cum all over it. <laughs> and that person did not think that was funny. Was that person your girlfriend? It was a somebody I met in a Greyhound bus station. Hey, this comes to us from Senor Brainwash. In what? a Greyhound bus station? You met your girlfriend in a Greyhound bus station? This next one comes to us from... Did your girlfriend go to Harvard? Am I imagining that? Tell me. We're, tell me. I'd love to hear your... Imagine. Imagine away. I'm pretty sure you, your girlfriend went to like Yale or Harvard. Go ahead. Did she teach there? Was she a <laughs> professor? Maybe she was like a, you know, like... She a sexy no. professor? No, she's not sexy. She's your girlfriend. Oh. Okay. She's like a Ruth Bader Ginsburg type, but a little older. <laughs> nice. 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 Send your brainwash. Send your brainwash. He's, he's, he's on the West Coast, the good coast, he says. And his zodiac sign is Jello Snots. Uh, You've heard of like Jello, Jello Shots? Shots? Right. He does Jello Snots. Wait, does that mean he, like he pours and cools Jello in his nostrils and then drinks out of them? I don't know, but you know, suddenly I'm not afraid of the coronavirus anymore. <laughs> <laughs> He says, I miss the Reese's cookie cups, not the bastardized reincarnation that is the one with the cookie bits. Should Bernie still contest the nomination in Milwaukee this summer? Yes. I mean, Bernie's done. So is Biden. I'm hearing Andrew Cuomo. I'm hearing Andrew Cuomo. Yeah, but he's not on the ballot in any of the states. I know, but they're going to Biden can't make it to Milwaukee. That's ridiculous. Biden, Biden, I watched Biden's press conference with CNN yesterday. He looked pretty good. Dear, oh, this is from Bernie Ho, baby uh, cat. Wait, hold on. There's a, got to wait for the police. Very tragic case uh, just popped up on uh, on the news. Uh, some some uh, like a high school troop was just hiking nearby and they fell into your mother's vagina and so now they have to be rescued wow that's what the police siren is the whole troop the whole troop including the scout leader I hope they don't drown they, they think they're like three miles in oh my god uh. they're, they're worried that if, if they're not rescued soon the poisonous gases will get them you're talking about my mother's vagina yeah, of course. This is from uh, Bernie Hobbit. An entire Boy Scout troop, David. Not Cub Scouts. These are pubescent teens. They're like five to seven feet tall each. Hmm. And they fell into it. <laughs> Were any, uh, Twelve. Twelve? Yeah. Were any injured by the stalagmites? They think there's a bear in there that might eat them. Oh, my God. That's terrible. That's terrible. Well, I hope they don't suffocate. Luckily, it's big enough they're practicing social distancing. Well, that's some good news. 
But the air does get stale in my mother's vagina, doesn't it? Yeah, the deeper you go, the harder it is to breathe. All right. Oh, here comes the rescue plan. I hear Elon Musk. <laughs> Speaking of Musk, <laughs> he, isn't he inventing some kind of sub <laughs> subaquatic transport device to rescue them? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it takes a 10-man team to operate it. Okay, that seems reasonable. So they're going to send like five or seven in. All right. That's a lot of people inside my mom's vagina. <laughs> eh, it's, you know, it's a weekday. Yeah. Well, I hope she gets, gets reimbursed. Gets a little busier on the weekend. Yeah. What's that? I hope she gets reimbursed. <laughs> Well, I started GoFundMe. We raised $17. For my mom's vagina. Yeah. That'll get you a lot. That'll get you a lot. Well, if they called you, you're familiar with her vagina. Have, have you? Yeah, I mean, you know, know, the contours and the shapes. Yeah. Don't, don't you know a shortcut to get out? Uh, through, through the back where fudge is me. Oh, Okay. Hey, uh, by the way, uh, I have a tape of your mother's uh, most latest queef. Her most latest queef. This is the sound your she, mother. This is the sound your mother makes. Oh, wait, hold on a second. The Army Corps of Engineers is coming <laughs> to send a twenty-man team in. To- I'm sorry. It's like now it's getting a little tight. Hey, this is the sound when you. This is the sound your mother's vagina makes when her clitoris is excited. Okay, okay. Uh, dear dented head douchebag. This is from Brian. This is she's talking about the CDC website. One day we're gonna have that Bernie Ho on. My God, her her emails are long and rambling enough. Can you imagine her in person? Yeah. Bernie Ho Baby Cat. There's a little something called editing. Okay, we got to wrap it up. This comes to us from Gus. His zodiac sign is Microphallus. Gus, the football kicking mule. He's located in San Francisco. Dave, listening to you and Liam stutter about economics on the latest episode was about as. <laughs> Dave, listening to you and Liam stutter about economics on the latest episode was about as cringeworthy as watching two teenagers grope for each other's privates in the dark. Or perhaps it was like watching two apes try to assemble a car from a bunch of spare parts. Whatever the metaphor, it's 10 minutes of my life. I'll never get back. Keep the show free. It's worth every penny. Thanks for helping me burn my shelter in place hours. All right. Don't you think it's sad that Governor Cuomo is now this folk hero just because he's slightly competent in time of emergency? Yeah. Well, I praised him. I, 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 I praised him on the last show and people took me to task. Okay, we have one voicemail I want to play. I mean, he's fine. You know, it's like it's reassuring to have someone who's giving press conferences is like actually doing something. But like, I'm not I'm not all like he's not a well, whatever. Yeah, I I shouldn't talk about him because he helped uh, someone I'm close to actually this week get their unemployment insurance straightened out. Good. All right. We have a voicemail. Uh, Gus. Okay, So he did something good for someone I'm close to. 
But that doesn't mean that I like him. Okay. This is uh, Gus doesn't like you and I stuttering on and on about economics. So I want to play this voicemail for Gus. You ready? This is uh, a voicemail that was left for us this morning. Here we go. Hey, David. Name is Paul. And uh, I have to confess from the start, I'm not funny. So just get that one out of the way. Neither is Liam. <laughs> Neither is Liam. I just made fun of you. Right? I know, I know. Okay, here we go. I made fun of myself. Okay. But I do have some information I want to pass on to you. And you're the first uh, media outlet that I voice this to, but I think you'll find it interesting. It's, a, it's basically a way to pay for uh, the uh, crisis that we're going through now. And it's based on a report from the New York Federal Reserve. And let me just read you something. Until 1935, Federal Reserve banks from time to time purchased short-term securities directly from the United States Treasury to facilitate Treasury cash management operations. Okay, uh, This authority was to undertake such purchases, provided a, a robust safety net that ensured the Treasury could meet its obligations, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Congress prohibited direct purchases in 1935, but subsequently provided a limited wartime exemption in 1942. The exemption was renewed from time to time following the conclusion of the war, but ultimately it was allowed to expire in 1981. What this means is that there was a time in fairly recent history that the Federal Reserve was actually allowed to create money and use that money to purchase government bonds. It is not allowed to do that now. The government does not create money now, despite what you might hear. Um, in fact, the only money that's created that we use is created by commercial banks when they lend, but that's another matter. If we just reinstate this exemption, this will allow the Federal Reserve to create the money that's needed to provide for this current legislation that they're trying to pass. And um, it's something that uh, I think has slipped through the cracks. So I think you might find that interesting. And, uh, again, you're the first media outlet that uh, we've mentioned this to. So hope you uh, go with it. Thank you, Thanks Paul. for everything. Thank Bye. you, Paul. So but then uh, you get a situation like, you know, 1920s Germany where, you know, it takes a barrel full of Deutschmarks to buy a loaf of bread. Go on. Because inflation, you know, because hyperinflation goes crazy. Government can't just keep printing money. It's got to have a, a set value. Really? Yeah. Go on. That's it. And, and That's so. Like basic, one, the economics 101. Really? Yeah. You can't just print $3 trillion and put it into the economy. Like, at some point, the more money you pump into the economy, the less value that the money has. Who says? It's, it, I look at any Banana Republic uh, South American country. How come we don't have inflation in America? We do. We have, we have inflation, and we keep it curbed. Let me put it this way. Uh, if the, if Oreos produced a thousand boxes a day, it would be worth X amount of money. Suddenly, uh -huh. Oreos produced 
a uh, hundred thousand boxes a day and just put it everywhere in the public. Uh, eventually people will be like, well, you know, uh, Oreos aren't worth that much. I can get them anywhere mm-hmm. and the value would go down. Is that why your mom doesn't charge so much? My my mom keeps a basic baseline level of pay for her sexual services, and she creates a a false scarcity. Is that correct? That's right. She only services twenty five to fifty men a day. I see. I see. So Can you imagine if she pumped it up to hundred people, like ah, I can go fuck Liam's mom whenever. Well, I think Gus, uh, who said the football kicking mule. What? Football kicking mule. Gus, who says listening to David and Liam stutter about economics on the latest episode was about as cringeworthy as watching two teenager, two teenagers grope for each other's privates <laughs> in the dark. I think, uh, in honor of Gus, you should. <laughs> you now are my economics correspondent. Okay. I, I I want you to explain the Fed next week. The the Fed? Okay. And by that I mean Chris Christie. Oh, you mean the overfed? Yes. I, I think you come on the show every week and talk about what the Fed has been up to and explain economics to my listeners. Okay. Because, I mean, inflation is just a general increase in prices and fall in the purchasing value of money. Yeah. So the more, the more money that's in the economy, the more like printed bills, the higher prices get, and the lower that the lower the value of the money gets. Okay. Liam McEnany has a podcast called "Tell Your Friends." He has a history's greatest podcast. History's greatest podcast. Tell your friends. Not the other Tell Your Friends. There are two Tell Your Friends podcasts. And there's only one Liam McEnany, thank God. (laughs) And he has a comedy CD, Working Class Fancy. Follow him on Twitter. Hey, it's Liam is his Twitter handle. And if you've got questions that you want Liam and me to answer, go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit the Ask Me Anything button. Hit listener questions, ask away, and we also have a uh, hotline, a voicemail hotline. If you want to leave a message, call. What's the number? What's the number, Liam? Uh, it is nine one one six seven seven. Did you give that a real number? Yes, it's in the nine one one area code. No, 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 don't don't give out a number. Hang on. Call me. Here, here's the number. I should two oh two six seven zero twenty seven. Someone's calling me right now. Two oh two six seven zero twenty seven fifty two. Liam McEnany, I love you. Have a great I weekend. Stay stay hey, in shut up, David. It's not so bad. Yes it is. It's not. Yes, It'll it is. be fine. Everything will get better. That's right. That's right. Stay on the it will get better. It, everything gets yeah, better. It will. It will. If everyone stays in place doesn't go out unnecessarily eventually everything will will straighten out yes all right whether it's two weeks or 18 months it'll all get better yes all right and if it doesn't get better and you need to flee the united states 
Luckily, we've set up a very good track record here with refugees, and other countries will be dying to take our citizens. Right. It's karma. It's only karma. It's only karma. <laughs> Stand the line, Liam McEnany. <laughs> gas mask we're rolling by the way the the one day one of quarantine and day 39 of quarantine oh god yeah we can't talk about that but uh yeah from new york i'm sure i understand it Uh i'm sure not i'm not even sure i understand it i don't know whether it's from overuse self-abuse lack of abuse yeah. I don't, I'm not that familiar with that area. We all think we are, but we're not. Yeah, it, it was so disgusting. I can't even send it to my children. From New York, from beautiful Bayville. <laughs> from beautiful Bay, Bayville. That's all right, I did. <laughs> <laughs> One of my kids went, oh, that's Uncle Jackie. From New York, from from beautiful Bayville on the glorious Gold Coast of Long Island's North Shore, let's welcome our old friend Jackie the Joke Man, Martling. Friendless jokes say, Alexa, play Jackie Martling. Hey, follow Jackie on Twitter at Jackie Martling. Jokes every day at 4.20 p.m. International Marijuana Time. You want personalized videos? Of course you do. Go to cameo.com forward slash Jackie Martling. Instant fun. Call Jackie's Dirty Joke Line. Use your finger, 516-922-WINE. You want jokes sent to you? Simply email Jackie at jokeland at AOL.com. Hello, Jackie. Hey, what's the worst thing about jerking off on the toilet? (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Not every gas station bathroom has a lock on the door. (laughs) (laughs) True that. (laughs) Here's a bipolar postcard. Having a wonderful time. I wish I was dead. (laughs) (laughs) So a guy says to the bartender, you know, it's not every day my wife says, take me upstairs, fuck me in the ass, and shoot on my face. Jesus. And today was no exception. <laughs> Come on, Jackie. These are nice people. Be nice. <laughs> Why the Jewish kid breastfeed until he was 10? Why? <laughs> so he could invest his milk money. <laughs> She says, communicate your feelings. He says, what's that mean? She says, perfect. You can be the husband. <laughs> hey, that's just too clean, Jackie. Come on. These are, ba- these are bad people. Be rude. <laughs> what, is, what insect loves show tunes? <laughs> oh, what? The ass hopper. <laughs> oh, come on, Jackie. Come on. 
I'm a... You're the worst actor I've ever... <laughs> <laughs> How do you sink a polar submarine? How? Knock on the door. <laughs> oh, that's great. So a guy walk a guy walks in a bar all bruised. He's all bruised and his clothes are all torn off him. Bartender says, Geez, what happened to you? He says, I just I just buried my mother in law. <laughs> Bartender says, Why are your clothes all torn? He says she wouldn't lie still. <laughs> great. Great joke. Great joke. Great. Thank you. So a blonde, a blonde says to the dentist, I thought your chair went up and down, not back and forth. <laughs> he says, you dopey twat, get out of my filing cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, here you go. Here you go, Feldman. This is Andy Breckman. I hope you're listening, Andy. A girl with one leg shorter than the other hobbles up to the bar, and she's standing on an angle. And she just says to the guy next to her, you want to go out in the alley? He says, Jesus Christ, Gimpy, why, why would I? She says, why? I'll tell you why. Because you'll put me against the wall. You put a brick under my short leg, pull up my dress, stick your cock up in me, and just when you're about to finish, you kick away the brick. And while I'm dancing around <laughs> trying to find my footing, you'll be getting the best fuck you ever had. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, All right, so what do a 9-volt battery and a girl's asshole have in common? What? Sooner or later, you're going to touch your tongue to it. <laughs> oh, come on, Jackie. Be nice. I haven't lied yet. <laughs> <laughs> so a really big woman says to a gynecologist, Doc, I've always been very fat, so I've never seen my vagina. He says, trust me, lady, you don't want to. <laughs> All, right. All right. So the guy says, judge, I got a divorce, judge. Judge, I got a divorce. I haven't spoken to her in 18 years. The judge says, you haven't spoken to your wife in 18 years. Why not? He says, I didn't want to interrupt her. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. That's nice. Hey, did you hear about the Jewish guy who committed suicide? No. <laughs> he hung from a beam by his left arm and choked himself with his right hand to save the price of the rope. <laughs> so a guy says to his marriage therapist, you know, I knew right off our marriage wasn't going to work. The therapist says, how'd you know? He says, I'm an Aquarius, and she's a cunt. Oh, Jackie. Jackie, we've got kids listening. <laughs> a young nun, 
a brand new nun, a young nun, runs to the mother superior and she says, Mother superior! Oh, Mother Superior, the new gardener, the new gardener, he threw me down in the rose garden, the new gardener, threw me down in the rose gardener, he did, he did, and he, and he flipped, he flipped me over, Mother Superior, he flipped me over, and then he pulled up me habit, and he fucked me deep in my arse, I'm saying that he did, he fucked me way deep in my arse. This is a nun. The Mother Superior, the Mother Superior says, well, child, you best go suck on ten or twelve lemons. The young nun says, and will that be making the Lord our God in heaven forgive me? The mother superior says, of course not, you dopey twit. But I'm hoping it might take that stupid grin off your face. (laughs) (laughs) Uh... So how do we know that Adam and Eve weren't Chinese? (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. How? They ate the apple, not the snake. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 not now, not now, not now, not now. So Stokowski says to his brother, you know, Sasha asked me to get a vasectomy so she wouldn't get pregnant, but it didn't work. All it did was change the color of the baby. (laughs) His brother says... His brother says, you, th- you think they'll give you your money back? <laughs> wow. That's a great... So Jake, Jake is a farmer and he's got a really nagging wife. Got a nagging wife. And one day she comes out in the field and sits there and she's barking at him while he's sitting there eating his lunch. She's barking at him. All of a sudden the mule kicks up his back legs, smacks her in the head, and he kills her instantly. So they're at the wake, and the minister notices that when a woman offers sympathy, Jake nods his head up and down. But when a man comes up and talks to him, he shakes his head from side to side. After a while, the minister says, Jake, why is it that you nod your head up and down to all the women and shake your head from side to side to all the men? And Jake says, well, the women all say how pretty your dress is, and the men all say, is that mule for sale? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, fantastic. Hey, Jackie. So what did Stukowski say on his honeymoon? What? I think I can fuck her. <laughs> <laughs> Jackie the Joke Man, follow him. So, the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, you know them. Yes. The R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, here's about a 108-year-old man in Missouri, 108 years old, and he claims he smoked two packs of Camel cigarettes every day since he was eight years old. Well, the ad rep goes looking, and finally the ad rep finds the old guy, and he says, My friend, we're going to pay you $50,000 to endorse the product. We'll fly you to New York City, put you up in the Waldorf Astoria, all expenses paid, and all you have to do is get up at 8 o'clock and appear on a national morning show just once and tell the good folks who are watching that you're 108 years old and you smoke two packs of Camel cigarettes every day since you were 8 years old. And you just have to get up at 8 o'clock and come and do it on national TV just one time. The old guy says, I, 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 I can't do that. 
The guy says, why not? He says, well, well, fuck, I don't quit coughing till noon. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Hey, how do you know when you're really stressed? How? You wake up screaming, and then you realize you haven't fallen asleep yet. (laughs) (laughs) Follow Jackie on Twitter at Jackie Martling. Jokes every day at 4.20 p.m. International Marijuana Time. You want personalized videos? Of course you do. Go to cameo.com forward slash Jackie Martling. Instant fun. Call Jackie's Dirty Joke Line. Use your finger, 516-922-WINE. Want jokes sent to you? Simply email Jackie at jokeland at AOL.com. Thank you, Jackie. That's right, Jokeland mailing list. I've been sending out jokes once a month for about 25 years, and it's a mailing list of like 30,000 people. But nowadays, I'm getting emails from people saying, listen, you've been sending these for a, while, for a long time. But nowadays, we really need these jokes. So <clears throat> whatever you do, don't stop. And, I, you know, I ain't going to stop unless somebody shoots me, and I'm sure right. there's a lot of people would like to. Right. And I'm going to play uh, Stump Jackie. Uh, we're going to stop recording. And uh... No, no, I, I, I'm not done with you. Oh, okay. Two, two carriages are side by side in the park, and the first baby says, I get breastfed. How about you? Second baby says, I wish. I get strained peas and strained bananas and strained spinach. Blech, it's crap. You sure are lucky. First baby says, lucky? Are you shitting me? I share those tits with a cigar smoker. (laughs) (laughs) I got two more. I got two more great ones. Okay. Mr. Friedstein is a really tough boss. He's a real ball buster. So everybody's always really on their toes with Mr. Friedstein. And Jerkowitz has been on time every day for 18 years. Every day for 18 years, right on time. One day he comes limping in 55 minutes late. His head's all cut up. He's badly bruised. He's all ripped up. Friedstein goes over him and says, So where you been, Mr. Jerkowitz? Where you been? There you been. Jerkowitz says, sir, I, I stepped into the open elevator shaft and, and I fell three stories. Friedstein says, and this took you almost an hour? (laughs) (laughs) Great, 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 great joke. Great. Last one. A little old lady, a little old lady's in the dentist chair and she's obviously a little nervous. So to help her relax, the dentist decides to tell her a story. He says, you see these latex gloves? You know how they make them? They have a Mexican dip his hands into melted latex. He pulls them out, and after it dries, they peel it off. All of a sudden, she starts giggling. He says, what's so funny? She says, I'm... I'm just picturing them making scumbags. <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of scumbags, we'll talk to you next week. All right, buddy. Everybody, right. everybody be careful out there. Be careful out there. We need you. All right. I love you, Jackie. Stand on the line for one second. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. 